Hello and welcome to the Grand Theft World. I am your host and navigator, Tony Myers. We have a jam-packed show for you tonight. We got to start a little bit late. As always, we like to make an entrance. It is February 6, 2022, and there is a plethora of clips to show. And we have another roundtable upcoming. Brett Finant is joining us as well as this special, secretive, enigmatic, esoteric Turkish intelligentsia by the name of Senna that we'll get to later on tonight as well. So they're going to both join us for a round table. We're going to discuss this. Uh, and then they came for, and the title of the name of the show tonight comes from, you know, I think it was 1946. It was uh, Martin Nymoller. I'm looking at the information I have here in front of me. It's a poem about, you know, first they came for the socialists. I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And I thought that it's such an apt title because of what's happening to Joe Rogan right now. Hopefully he's above the mark, uh, and he's uncancelable to a certain degree because of how much prestige and how large his audience is. But at this point, I, we need to cover the situation. We don't cover enough cu culture, I think, too often on the show because of what's going on with the vaccine and the issues around the lab release, as Dajak likes to say. And um, we get sort of bogged down in a lot of details, but uh, we sometimes the culture, which is you know politics and a lot of these other elements of what we're experiencing are downstream from culture. And it's important that we also focus on what this means for the culture and why is it happening now? I mean, it's very interesting that right after having Peter McCullough, Dr. Peter McCullough, and then Dr. Robert Malone on, and all of a sudden there's so many shots taken at him. So many shots, including Jen Psaki, um, a press correspondent for the White House, and they're saying, yeah, you know, the, we need to deal with misinformation, disinformation, and that includes Spotify. Hmm. I wonder if she's pointing anything out there. So we have Joe Rogan. We're going to get to a plethora of clips surrounding the situation, including what happened yesterday with the the unfortunate release of a video that was taken out of context and cut up to make him look bad. Uh, we have this interesting video, and it'll either be Kim Iverson or Jimmy Dore talking about this new study out of, I want to say Johns Hopkins University, about the issues of lockdowns, the fact that they didn't help at all when it comes to mortality related to uh, COVID-19. Uh, we have Tucker Carlson talking about this slip-up uh, with the State Department admitting that, oh, yeah, they, they don't release anything that's not true. Oh, wait, we just said that Russia is going to invade the Ukraine. Oh, wait, no, don't I, don't worry about that. Nothing to see there at all. And then, of course, we're going to get into the roundtable. But as we do with every show, we're going to get started with Luke Rudowski from We Are Change. He's going to give us a view, a overview, a panoramic overview of what happened at the end of the week and what we can look forward to uh, at the beginning of this next week. So let's go to Luke Rudowski from We Are Change.
the trucker protest happening right now in Canada, which, of course, the corporate media and government bureaucrats have been calling very dangerous and racist. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Luke Radowski here of WeAreChange.org, and we have a lot of very important things to talk about, especially with CNN and now beating the drums of censorship as if they were sharks in the water smelling blood, just waiting to attack anyone calling out their larger hypocrisies. This is the moment that they've been waiting for, and hopefully we can quantify to, of course, correctly explain to you what exactly is happening here, along, of course, with the bigger ramifications. We're also, of course, going to be talking about the latest trucker news from Canada, as, of course, there have been massive protests that have been significantly underreported happening globally right now that are important to talk about. But before we do that, plus a lot more, we're just honestly going to jump into it because of how jam-packed today is. As just moments ago, Bloomberg News published an article that declared Russia invaded Ukraine. It went up on their homepage. It scared a whole bunch of people. And Bloomberg, of course, removed the original post and apologized for this mistake, which, according to them, was because of an inadvertent publishing of the story, which they, quote, deeply regret. Now, the original article was up for 24 minutes and shows you the tremendous amount of power that, of course, the corporate media has that they hold irresponsibly. This as the New York Times doesn't even wait for an invasion to declare that it's definitely going to be happening according to their anonymous Ukrainian sources. And when it comes to matters of, of life and death and, and war, the corporate media could, of course, do a lot better. Now, in a totally unrelated story, there was elements of the corporate media that was also launching a full frontal slanderous assault on the trucker protests happening in Canada, along, of course, with Canadian politicians and other bureaucrats that have successfully pressured GoFundMe to delete their grassroots fundraising campaign where money was going towards legal battles against the Canadian mandates and to support blue-collar workers of the world uniting together and collectively bargaining with the government for liberty and freedom. GoFundMe on a Friday night decided to declare that they will be confiscating the $10 million raised in donations for the truckers and reallocating it to whatever causes they see fit. As of course, the platform allows fundraising for Chaz, a left-wing Seattle protest group that took over a six-block area in the downtown area and was also responsible for the slaughtering of two black teenagers. You want to raise money for CHOP that literally had segregated areas and violent altercations with the press that to GoFundMe is totally acceptable you want to raise money so truckers could go honk honk absolutely unacceptable and of course they felt a massive backlash after they declared that they will decide what they want to do with the money they of course backtracked from that initial decision they said that they will be actually giving people their money back without needing to fill out a form as of course a lot of people called to do credit chargebacks which of course would have cost GoFundMe more money. Elon Musk has called this entire fiasco the work of, quote, professional thieves, and obviously this blue-collar populist protest in Canada 
has been negatively affected by this major decision by GoFundMe. A lot of people feel defrauded. A lot of people feel cheated. And this is why the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, has just announced an official investigation into GoFundMe and what led to this major decision. The trucker convoy, by the way, has decided to move to the Give, Send, Go website, which has been under a DDoS attack, but has successfully been up to where at the moment of the making of this video has already raised 2.8 million dollars in popular support of these working class individuals who are protesting the lockdowns, the mandates that have, by the way, ended in many countries around the world already. As of course, Denmark, Finland, Norway, the Czech Republic, even the United Kingdom have totally dropped their lockdowns and restrictions already, as other countries have loosened them, as pointed out by the dude who looks like my dad, Bill Maher, in another very important rant against a lot of this nonsense. And in, in my opinion, what the truckers are asking for, it, it's it's not crazy. It's what the world is already doing. Why aren't they doing it in Canada? Well, I guess they must just not trust the science anymore, as perfectly depicted in our latest t-shirts that, of course, we have available to you on thebestpoliticalshirts.com, where, of course, you can not only support this independent media organization, but at the same time, you could also help spread important messages and notify the... Now, we're living in very precarious time, especially with financial calamity looming, the potential of a huge conflict between Russia and the United States unfolding in Ukraine. There's so many problems happening within our healthcare system. But with all these problems facing the world, the biggest thing that we have to talk about is a comedian that likes to talk about MMA and chimpanzees. Yes, this as CNN has just started their outrage machine against Joe Rogan and his horrible misgressions against the general public for making some offhanded jokes a few years ago. Taking, of course, clips out of context as well. We, of course, had Jim Acosta and Brian Stetler trying to look as serious as they could, as concerned as they could. Look at the faces of these two as they tried to convince you that the biggest thing you should be worried about right now, in this very moment, is jokes made about 10 years ago. Look at the focus on Brian Stetler, a man who has been characterized as the eunuch many times. The worry and stress of, of Acosta. The blinding focus of Stetler. As Rogan said a bad word. <sighs> and they go on this for segments after segments and will so for days and days after this and most likely weeks. As of course, there was massive pressure from multinational corporations, from the Biden administration, from of course, British royal even Barack Obama himself, a man who was pictured not looking so happy, of course, speaking to his masked servants that are building his multi-million dollar mansion in Hawaii, as of course he is mask-free, like the many other prominent Democrats that have been calling for mask mandates. Now, uh, there's a lot to question with exactly what's happening here, especially with the fact of why is a comedian facing more scrutiny facing then the political leaders of this country that are figuratively sending our future down the drains why is there such a concerted powerful effort to bring him down when of course there's so many other insensitive comedians commentators why is he the direct target for all these powerful people when of course you have justin trudeau 
who on multiple occasions wore blackface. You have Howard Stern, who did unspeakable things that we can't even mention or even show you a photo of on this broadcast. You, of course, also have very insensitive comments by The Rock, The Young Turks. I'm not even going to tell you what those guys did, but I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not buying this manufactured outrage that, of course, Joe Rogan is being targeted with right now, as, of course, Joe Rogan has been questioning the narrative of a lot of these same powerful institutions and people that, are, of course, are attacking him now. And to me, this is more about retribution than it is about any kind of care or consideration about the use of bad words. This is more of a cleansing purity attack than it is anything else to me, as of course, Rogan has hosted a lot of medical professionals like Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Malone, and also recently, Dr. Epstein, which some people are speculating is why, of course, he has been deemed enemy number one and under such massive attack. And let's be honest here, Joe Rogan also did... A lot of crazy things, especially when he worked at Fear Factor, especially when he also just promoted the use of drugs. But that's not the issue that, that of course, the establishment has with him. He did mention a cheap, readily available drug that was prescribed to him by his doctor, which the mainstream media and medical establishment also didn't like. And he has sincerely garnered the trust of a lot of people who, of course, saw him as a breath of fresh air, especially when you compare him to the disgusting, pathetic, quote, nonsensical garble released by the creatures from, of course, CNN. And this is why it was a bit disappointing to see Joe Rogan have over 71 of his podcasts deleted, which, of course, provided context to a lot of the major attacks against him. Now that context is lost, along with these important videos. And Joe, for some reason, also decided to, essentially what people are saying, bend the knee to the establishment and also issue a very bewildering, not PR-savvy apology that has essentially opened the floodgates for many more segments on CNN and MSNBC. Now, will CNN be happy that hundreds of Joe Rogan podcast episodes are deleted? No, this is only the start of it. Give cancer culture an inch, and they will take away your entire existence. And that's what is at threat here, especially when it comes to the latest troubling developments with Joe Rogan. Now, why the Joe Rogan make this uh, apology video? Was this a really bad emotional response because of all the stress and pressure that he's been under, which is understandable? Or is this someone deliberately trying to undermine his operation? Was he threatened to do this? That, of course, is all hypothetical conjecture and, of course, totally unknown as of right now. But Joe Rogan also had a lot of individuals, including the Rock, Dwayne Johnson, that of course a couple days ago said that they supported Joe Rogan before Joe Rogan's apology. The Rock denounced Joe Rogan and apologized for backing him. Was it this that that influenced this major decision? Well, it's very hard to say, but but as of course Joe Rogan is connected through, of course, a lot of people in the Hollywood community. But let's also not forget here that The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, also has a history of colorful language to say the least, making, of course, many jokes and comments that would see him canceled outright if, of course, there was more mainstream attention on it. The same goes for a lot of celebrities, again. And I think there's a reason why, of course, we're focusing on Joe Rogan's comments and not The Rock's comments, as, of course, this cancel culture has been weaponized in a way to take away dissent 
critical voices that help promote informed consent and the ability to hear two different sides of the story so you as an individual could actually make the right decisions for yourself. There's a huge war against free speech, against even just questioning authority. Those that do are under attack and I believe should be supported. Will Joe Rogan be the same from this? How will his show be? Well, it's obviously going to be affected as, a, as I think. There's going to be more moves made against him. There's going to be more hit pieces. He essentially opened the floodgates. They're most likely going to be concentrating on some of his Asian jokes and then Latino jokes and then who knows? Pacific Islander jokes. It doesn't matter. It's not going to, to end here. Joe's also going to be affected by this as, of course, he's going to be not the same person, not willing to make the same jokes, and it's not going to be the same Joe Rogan experience from here after this major step, I think it's fair to say, and expect more nonsense from here as, of course, I think Russell Brand will be the next person that, of course, they target and go after. And this is why I've been telling everyone from 2008, speech is only going to be limited on, of course, the internet. Build your own infrastructure, build your own websites, have your own mailing list. This is, of course, why we have LukeUncensored.com, three master classes, videos almost every single day, our own private members area where we get to say and do whatever we want. Will Rogan go the same way as many other alternative independent media types. I've been doing this for a number of years now. There's content from LukeUncensored.com that's available for almost seven years now. I've been doing this for a long time. This is not my first rodeo, but this is a way where people could become somewhat uncancelable. And I hope that happens, but I think there's definitely going to be more of a bumpy road ahead moving forward for not just Joe Rogan, but for the basic concepts of free speech and questioning authority. What do you think? Let me know down in the comment section below. I appreciate your constructive criticism, your perspectives, and especially where you see this entire situation going from here. I've been doing polls on, on my YouTube channel, specifically asking very detailed questions, getting your opinions and perspective on things. So make sure to check that out on our I think it's on our community tab but essentially whew, that's pretty much what I have to say Luke always doing a brilliant recap he had some really good insights that we're going to follow up with after uh this little course we're going to take that Brett Finot has been so courageous to have already gone through and you know extricate the value from before we do that, I just want to let people know Richard Grove will be back next Sunday and we'll be back to the normal format, the normal flow of the show. But uh, instead for this week, we're going to do one more round table. It's going to be a little bit different pacing. So, you know, it's uh, just Brett Vinat and Senna, like I stated tonight. And we're, Brett has decided to play the role of the teacher. Having He was once the student, but now he's the teacher. And I'll leave it up to Brett. Brett, what are you teaching us tonight? Oh. Uh. Boy, that's a big setup for a very small lesson. <laughs> All right, so and like Omicron, like a very small thing. Yeah, this this was actually really, really disappointing because I was hoping that there would be some challenge here. But maybe two or three weeks ago, a uh, NPR, this is from their special series, The Coronavirus Crisis at NPR. Uh, this article was brought to my attention. It's called How to Talk to Vaccine Doubters five tips for parent ambassadors. And what it did was it basically uh, previewed a course that was put together by Johns Hopkins University on dealing with the vaccine hesitant, compassionately, empathetically. 
So I just wanted to take a little bit of this NPR uh, article first and then preview just to like emotionally prepare people for what you're going to see inside the course. Uh, the video that NPR choose, uh, chose to include with the article. So uh, may I, oh, may I share screens? Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, that should work. LD, is there any problems with that? He can just share and show or do you want or should we send it to you? Uh, shouldn't be. Hang on, let me. Okay. Let me make sure he has the ability. That's funny. Oh, he's got it. Yeah, he's yeah. good. Yeah, co-host. Right. The okay. As long as make sure it's sharing sound and all that stuff when you share the screen. Oh, the NPR is streaming live right now. If you just want me to hit play, we can just listen. Oh, instead. that would be okay. Right. The whole Crowder CNN thing where he just like goes <laughs> to CNN, cuts to it every once in a while. No thanks. All right. So how to talk to parent? <laughs> uh, how to talk to vaccine doubters? Five tips for parent ambassadors. Uh, this past summer, Rupali Limier uh, says she was uh, says she sort of became the vaccine lady at the pool. She's a behavioral and social scientist at the John Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, so it made sense that other parents were coming to her for information. Limier has also spent the past decade studying vaccine hesitancy. In that work, she has come to understand deeply that when someone has doubts. Hearing the facts from the person, from someone the person knows well, can be a powerful force in overcoming those doubts. So that's where the NPR. Oh, this is sort of like a viral marketing situation where you you listen to your inner circle, so to speak. You know, those your friends, your family, people you trust, people you you know frequently patronize and frequent something like that. Yeah, it's kind know, of some guerrilla marketing too. Yeah. So yeah, gorilla. Yeah, more gorilla, and that's a better term for it. She knows, too, that not all families have the kind of relationship, that kind of relationship with a doctor, excuse me. Quote, we've had such an erosion in trust in the healthcare system and in public health, she says, that we should really leverage the peer-to-peer -peer approach. Right. So uh, LeMay and Johns Hopkins University have created a free two-hour course. I, I have to tell you, I did not finish the whole course. I might have made it through half and I felt like I had seen all I need to see um, on the it's online brave of you to get through half of it. To be honest, I have to commend you for your bravery, your courageousness, your well, metal excited. and your fortitude. <laughs> I'm excited to share some of it with you. So it's created <laughs> on Coursera. It goes on to say it's called COVID vaccine ambassador training, how to talk to parents. Would you like to see a, uh, the video that NPR chose to promote the course with? Would I? Yes. I can't imagine any other thing I'd want to do with my time right now except watch this <laughs> this video that you have so, presented for us. Here it is, but just one more paragraph. Their goal is to prepare <laughs> everyone from principals to PTA presidents to counter misinformation with empathy. You've heard about empathy for the unvaccinated. You probably see it all the time in the mainstream media. Uh, and ultimately to move people to seek out the life-saving vaccine as life-saving. You got to love the way they're qualifying. This is subtle subversion marketing techniques. Mm. Oh, I love that. Mm. As of That's January 18th, just 28% of children ages five to 11 had received even one COVID vax, uh, COVID-19 vaccine shot. Wait, how much? Go back down real quick. Uh, 28%. 28%. Only 20. That's good. Okay. I thought it was way more than that. James Jordan here says, have you read, have you ever heard of the term vaccine hostile? Apparently that's a term floating around. I've never heard of that one before, but I'm just curious before we get started with the video. 
I I have not. I think vaccine hesitant was the olive branch and that didn't work. So now we're on to vaccine hostile. Language become becoming more and more extreme, but let's go with this video. I'm curious. Yeah, let's get ready to intervene with the vaccine hostile. <laughs> this is a video explaining how mRNA vaccines work. Hi, I'm Rupali. I'm an associate scientist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Today, we're going to go on an mRNA journey. Let's go. Let's go. Are they throwing the Mario sounds, really? This trip, we're going to see how mRNA vaccines work up close. Meet our vaccine recipient, Morgan. They're only 10 years old, so they will only receive half the dose that their parents received. Like their parents, the vaccine will enter into their upper arm muscle. Let's go into the bloodstream. It's good so far, right? Oh, this is amazing. Like I'm riveted. You notice how she third person pronouned Morgan, by the way? Oh, I didn't pick up on that. I noticed That's that, Brett. Yes. There. The M in mRNA. She's inside your body now. So she's like, messenger oh. go ahead. Now it's going to pull a very bad uh, analogy to an anime that a bunch of nerds I know like in the Rockfin chat, but I'll leave that alone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll continue. For a reason, it sends a message to your cells to develop something called a spike protein, which is harmless. Harmless and then a ding. You gotta love, like, okay, so I just had the shout out to Adrian from the town hall, but he talks, he was a marketer and a salesman for a long time. And he talks about using these, how often people are using, using these subtle subversive techniques in language. And notice how she says harmless. It's like what they said before the, the safe life-saving vaccine, the harmless spike, like these qualifications, these adjectives or adverbs that they're using, uh, before or after, you know, these nouns. I just, you have to love because these qualifications, then they have these like emotional triggers in our mind that we're not aware of, but subconsciously are having effect. This is like Bernays was sort of like this being the St. Paul, if you will, of the Freudian movement, if you, you know, so mm. it's kind of a similar analogy. Hey, can you see my cursor, by the way, in mm -hmm. the screen share? Oh, that's great. That gives me uh, the opportunity to do some John Madden work here. Um, yes. Very stern face upon harmless. And I mean, look at this thing. I mean, honestly, it, <laughs> who could this hurt? Who could this hurt? I was just going to say, like, it makes me so, uh, it's, it, it seems so innocuous that why would I even consider getting a vaccine? Because it must not hurt. Even the virus itself must not hurt anyone. Or is that just the spike from the vaccine, not the virus SARS-CoV-2? This is the harmless spike. Oh, uh, this is the harmless spike that the vaccine produces, not the virus that has the same spike. Okay. That's why we smiling. clarified that. Yeah, that's why it's smiling with those nice big eyes, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm right, bothered here. by something here, though. Sure. She's walking around that person's veins with her shoes on. That's not OK. Oh, it's I very agree. dirty. <laughs> it's very dirty. Hey, I, we won't have time to get to it tonight, but I encourage people to uh, do your own research and check out the Family Guy PSA on this very same topic. It is better and more informative I would say. Is that a long clip? If uh, not, we'll have LD queue it up it, while it, we're doing this. It's about three minutes, but I actually think like whether whether you trust the science or not on this and are willing to accept what might be left out of a video like this, like if you just take them like as, you know, 
uh, good faith attempts to explain the science. Family Guy actually does a better job than this video. But LD, see if you can find that. I, I, I want to see. I want to do that juxtaposition if we get the opportunity. Yeah, family Guy PSA, uh, P, uh, COVID like vaccine uh, or COVID yeah, PSA. Okay, yeah, it should be. It, it's more entertaining. Well, I don't know. I mean, entertainment is relative subjective term. so you yeah, can subjective. decide which one's more entertaining but we'll, yeah we'll continue we've got about a minute left one may but one can be more informative sorry yes absolutely i i think family guy did a better job i'm curious i'd like to see that the cells display the spike protein on their surface see once that process is complete soon thereafter your body will remove this spike protein you're done you're done our immune system <laughs> realizes that the protein does not belong here. Wait oh, I'm sorry. Minute. Far is it? Far is it? <laughs> this is just supposed to be the emotional preparation. <laughs> We're not supposed to get hung up on this. Are you serious? There's so many problems with this already. They're just like stating blatant facts without going into any more detail about, you know, oh, just it just leaves. It, your body produces the spike. The spike does its thing. And then it just it leaves your cell. There's nothing to see here. But where exactly is the spike? In what cells do the, is the spike being produced? Is it being produced in the ACE2, the receptive binding domain of SARS-CoV-2? Is it being produced other places? Where is it all? Is it collecting in like the ovaries or the heart or other places? Uh, no, that just produces on a cell and then it breaks apart. And that's the end of the story. Wow. Sorry. I, I'll keep my mouth shut. This is going to be hard to get through. This is just the beginning. So what you're saying is, you distrust this face. <laughs> just a just a smidge, bro. Just a little bit. Yeah, it's a modicum of concern is what I'm expressing in regards to uh, the the authority, her established ethos, in regards to whether or not I consider her to be a believable entity. You know, mm -hmm. she talked about you know peer to peer communication, grill. We mentioned grill, viral and or guerrilla marketing techniques, which really use peer-to-peer -peer marketing. Like what's your, what do your friends and family say about a certain product or good? Boy, she's not, uh, she's not selling me thus far. By the way, her, her behavioral and social scientist at uh, Johns Hopkins. And it's important because one of the things she points out about being a behavioral and social scientist is that's correct. We tend to like, I studied marketing in college at uh, Penn state and at the Smeal college. And interestingly enough, like that is something they taught us back 15 years ago, whenever I was in college that it was, we are much more trusting. And that's when the science was just emerging, you know, based on the psychometric studies and this sort of idea about um, viral and guerrilla marketing, that peer-to-peer -peer marketing works best. We tend to trust the people in our inner circle more than some talking head on a TV, right? That's, yeah. that's, it's a pretty, it's not a far stretch, um, but anyways, go for it. So I, I, also too, I, in their defense, I think like the style of video, uh, the, 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 it's really inconsistent as you like go throughout the course, like different people made different contributions to this. So here they, and I'm being completely sincere as I say this, I think they're going more for like a, a TikTok kind of appeal. Like this looks and feels like a video that would appeal to a TikTok crowd in, in its production style. There are videos that are different, but eerie in completely different ways, uh, but they're done, they're done in a very different style. But that's what I think this is going for. Because when I, when I mentioned this to everybody last week, I felt like it was really low hanging fruit. Like I was really hoping for more of a challenge uh, to see what, you know, I mean, 
Johns Hopkins, say what you will, uh, implicate them in what conspiracies you want to. Uh, there are people that I love who, you know, that hospital saved their life. Right. So I <laughs> my was dad kinda, went to Johns Hopkins yeah. for God's sakes. Um, like mm -hmm. it's not. Yeah. Besides, I mean, there's a lot of nefarious funding associated with some of their colleges at Johns Hopkins University, but that doesn't mean everyone's in on it necessarily, so to speak. So, yeah, but like everybody doesn't pull up there in a clown car in the morning. Like that's <laughs> right. like the point that I'm making. And this was just really underwhelming and disappointing, this this presentation. But then it's a question of like, what is their perception of the of the viewer and the person that their intended viewer, the NPR audience member, um, the perception of the person that that responsible and smart science following person needs to talk to, needs to intervene with. And I think that um, that perception contributes to the production style. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to show this video. The other one is worse. If you like save your energy, everybody, <laughs> the other one is worse, but we'll get through this. It's about real quick left. before you begin yeah. though, with the or finish this clip here, you made a brilliant point about the TikTok appeal. Yeah. It also shows like how, and again, I'm not getting, I don't want to get too deep into cybernetics, but like there's a feedback with the medium here. Like people are now used to these quick jarring cuts. It's literally like a phone, like the way a phone or TikTok, you would record something on a phone, right? With the, the vertical column where you'd see everything, like it's not edited in so far as, you know, a, a larger video. It just, what's that say about our culture? Like, are, are we that conditioned to accept videos of that nature now because we're getting used to TikTok or the, or are they appealing more to the younger generation? Or people that are going to talk to the younger generation that are supposed to be scientifically savvy, if you will, savvy, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that is actually the big reveal is maybe a bit of contempt, which is nothing new with, <laughs> uh, you know, the intellectual class um, or the ivory tower class. And I, I guess you could put like certain people behind the marketing of this at Johns Hopkins into that category. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it is very, very demeaning throughout, regardless of the style. Yeah, it's of condescending video. in a way. Yeah. Right. Very, very condescending. And the next video that I show you is going to be entirely different from this one, but it definitely matches this one. So this is like the video to get you into the funnel. Wink, wink. Well, this is the video that NPR chose to like, here's the trailer for the course. Wow. So yeah, so it's the video to get you into the, yeah, go for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so a group of people who were putting this article together said, what's the best video that we could show? And they chose this one. <laughs> that says so a lot about, about our culture right now. We got about a minute left. Oh, go for who it. Who are you? So, how long does it camp out for? Not a long time. Let's stay out. This triggers the immune system to produce something called antibodies. Antibodies help the immune system think that there is an infection in your body. Oh, and what COVID tests look for are antibodies. Antibodies do not show up in your immune system until a few days after you have been infected. Pause. I'm sorry, Brett. I Oh man, dude, I don't know. Tony, let's make a 10 hour course about how this two hour course sucks. Oh my God, dude. This is like when Rich and I had to, uh, <sighs> had to logically break down Sager and Crystal. Also, um, Francis Collins, when Lex Friedman interviewed him, this is just brutal. The COVID tests. Yes, there are antigen tests and they do measure for a specific type of antibody. There's multiple different types of antibodies. But there's also the PCR that tests for genetic material. 
So that's the one they were using for most of the pandemic. I don't know. This is all just very confusing, but continue onwards. Best I could do in my assessment of this, best I could do was that this whole course is a conspiracy to waste the time and energy of people like us. (laughs) They're doing a good job then. Best best I could do. That's That's a a hell of a deduction there. What it's all about. (laughs) All right, we got 45 seconds left. We're almost through this, everybody who's ready to push your computer out the window. (laughs) Our bodies will have learned how to fight off a future COVID-19 infection. This patient may experience slight discomfort in their arms for a few days. Any side effects that happen after the vaccine will be temporary. And all it means- Pause. Body's system is- I know, Brad, you're right about to fucking rip my throat out, but this (laughs) is, uh, what the fuck am I listening to? All side effects? Not most side effects. I mean, these are qualifying terms when we talk about deduction and logic, but to, to, in the beginning of a proposition, there's like four different, but I'm not going to get into the details of that. But the point is like, she says all side effects, all side effects. I mean, hell, even Pfizer's own study that was released after 90 days doesn't show that all side effects are going to be mild and temporary. What am I? There's so much propaganda. There's so much anti-science going on here. It's just like stating blatant facts without any sort of reference to any other potential facts that could contradict what they're stating. Anyways, it's just, this is hard. This is really hard for me. I'm having a difficult time. This is save your energy. I'll try. (laughs) All right, everybody. We've got 20 seconds left (laughs) to fight against a real COVID-19 infection. Oh, by the way, they're saying that uh, they work. What about the fact that it's admitted, I think, even by the CDC's own standard, that the vaccines don't work well against Omicron? Obviously, the study out of Canada, there's a study either out of Denmark or South Africa that showed the one showed negative efficacy. The only the other one showed 35% efficacy after eight days, hmm. I think, when it comes to uh, Omicron. Anyways, I'm getting into details, and obviously, that's not something they're interested in. So let's... Uh... No. So yeah. Then you have the question of like, why a two hour course? Like, why was that the the threshold for attention that was chosen? And obviously it's going to affect Brett, quality. Hold on. Yeah, hold on. Everything like, you see. You're right. You're absolutely right. But that video seems like it's almost geared toward a younger generation. Dare I say kids or like older adolescents, you know, maybe like 15, 60s, like the way it's a TikTok appeal to your point has all these animations as he's like quick facts, quote unquote, about the vaccine and how it works in a very juvenile fashion, imperial and inane fashion. It's just like very childish in other words. And so like, it just, if they're appealing to adults that are supposed to be interested in the science, it's, is that how adults are appealed to nowadays through TikTok like videos that have cartoonish and almost like condescending, um, you know, individuals like that trying to explain the science of how the vaccine works yeah i i think that there are a lot of adults who are into tiktok at this point like all uh, the nurse videos there is yeah to the oh the tiktok nurses it's been so long uh-huh since yeah. we've seen them there is a like a balloon popping sound effect that that kind of triggers you to like feel like what she says is final like that she says something and the balloon pops and then it's like well i guess that's that it's like so, uh, that's a classic, another subtle 
uh, technique in marketing. I remember when Rich and I, we were watching the thing for the squatty potty like 10 years ago. This is going to, I promise this will make sense to everyone in the audience. <laughs> and, uh, and the squatty potty, there's this sound like bloop, bloop, you know, and it's just sort of, it's that, um, you know, subconscious triggers with sound in order to kind of get used in the sense of like, oh yeah, I'm in the bathroom. I'm doing bodily functions. Same here. It's like the pop is like, boom, got it, nailed it you know, totally figured it out. These subtle, these subtle cues have such an important impact. I mean, I think most people in the audience are probably aware of like Adam Curtis and the power of nightmares and, or like the century of the self and all the many documentaries he did about in regards to these, especially the century of the self talking about Bernays work uh, and Lippmann and these other characters, but you know, and Freud, but I don't, I don't think people really pay respect to how important these techniques, how well they work. Like we should be much more concerned about how well these subtle subversive psychological techniques actually work in manipulating the subconscious of man. And if you're not aware of it, like NLP, uh, neuro-linguistic programming, you know, these, these techniques do work extremely well or various forms of operant conditioning, unless you make them explicit and know how to guard against them. So. All right, Tony, all that being said, I cannot wait to see how you interpret what we're hold on hold on Sam, do you have any comments that. i yeah, want to get please i was going to say these look a lot like the um scholastic videos they make for elementary schools yeah, that's what i'm and right. that's right yeah because i i spent an entire year watching my son's uh remote learning a couple years ago and this is exactly the type of disgusting material that scholastic pushes out and this is what passes as lessons in class. So what they do, they do say here in the title, a magic school bus inspired journey. So there's. Oh, interesting. There is some recognition. A call oh, back. man. Could you imagine if we just spent the next hour reading the YouTube comments on this? I'm sure the comments are disabled. Who wants to bet <laughs> comments are disabled? I'm not, I'm not going to. Zero comments. Zero comments. Is that, is that the new comments are disabled? <laughs> no, no, mine still says comments are disabled. Try to put a comment in. Just like type. All right. Well, should we should we go to Rockfin chat to decide what the <laughs> comment should be? I'm purposely not on Rockfin tonight, just so I don't have to see what they're saying. I'm always. I love you guys. Don't worry. Much love and peace, y'all. You know. But uh, yins. <laughs> that's what we say out in the Western PA. So yins is. All right. So. Do I want to, under my real name, be the first comment? No, don't don't post a comment. Just see if you can type. Just see if you can type like letters. I okay, love it this. <laughs> okay, maybe he might be able to comment. I don't know. Twenty four thousand subscribers, six thousand views, about sixty five hundred views, close to it. Sixty one. I'd love to see the like dislike ratio on that one. Oh man. And there's a filter. I have it downloaded, but it stopped working. I don't. They probably found a way around that quickly mm. to to show the dislikes. But and it's been up for almost a month, and it it's linked. It's embedded in an NPR video uh, article. So that's very interesting. It shows you how how much that whole platform is dying out. Well, if you're like me and you read this article and you watch this video, your next question was, "How can I take this course?" So that's what I did. And we're going to go into it now. It is in Coursera. And I just wanted to highlight maybe one video. Maybe we only have time for one. And maybe like, you know, you guys can circle back to this in the future. But this is called Effective Communication Strategies. 
and there's going to be a scene set. There's a, a family uh, responsible. This is re the responsible guy, uh, the science guy. He is wearing a, a short lab coat, and he's got a little uh, medical cross on there, and these are his children. little appeal to Ad Veracunium there, a little appeal to authority, getting you set up, ready to accept the authority, ready mm -hmm. to take him in. Yeah. Befriend I Accept him as I, family. These are, uh, I know this isn't the most astute observation, but these are not the best colors for human skin <laughs> in the portrayal of health. Right? <laughs> this one, this one is nausea. This, this boy, right, is not, that's nausea. That's this nausea. Death. That looks like his oxygen's being cut off. So some sort of hypoxia, hypoxia, whatever it's called. Him? Yeah, or the blue one. No, he's food poisoning. This is death. <laughs> and then he has one, his young son. Hypoxima, yeah. Healthy. Hypoxemia, whatever. Hypoxia. There's low blood oxygen. I don't know. It looks like low blood oxygen leading to death. Yes. All right. And is then, everyone yeah. ready? What was the yellow one? Uh, what, this one? Yeah. Healthy. <laughs> okay. Or wait, no, jaundice. John, oh, yes, John, yes. Okay, we Food got poisoning, hypoxia, jaundice. But it, it, these are the healthy people. Just th this is a color palette they chose. I asked a graphic designer about this privately. I said, why? Why did they do this? Why are they trying to mess with us? But uh, apparently it, it was uh, th their guess was it was just a, an art style that they chose for this family. No issue with, you know, portraying actual human skin color and the, the woke problems that comes with, not at all. Right. Well, nobody's this color or that color. Right, that's my point. So you can't, you can't cancel it. Right, you can't cancel green skin. No, not yet. That'll be the next one. Here we go. This whole video, just so people know uh, what l lies ahead here. Two minutes and 15 seconds. We promise we won't be talking about it more than an hour from now. Here we go. It can be difficult to have conversations with people when you may not see eye to eye with them. Pause. I'm sorry, Brad. Five seconds in, the dude's talking behind a mask. And it's like the production stuff. I mean, did they never figure out how to master the levels, mix the levels and then master it like in post-production? They, I mean, it's, Fucking Johns Hopkins, right? They have smart people down there. The dude's talking behind a mask. I mean, they tried to make it sound muffled on purpose just to condition us to accept, like, listening behind a mask. You think he sounds muffled? To me, maybe. I mean, to my uh, earphones, yeah. My headphones. I don't know. He's, it sounds in the background. I don't, it might just be coming through, but that, uh, LD, read off some Rockfin chat if they're not, if there's non toxic ones. Does anyone else, does it sound muffled or not Rockfin? Anyone else in any of the chats, Twitch, YouTube, Odyssey, Float, whatever on DLive? Let me know. Does that sound muffled as we continue through it? But the but this talking through a mask. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. Bill says it does sound muffled. We didn't go on long enough. But the fact he's talking behind him, like that's another subtle psychological subversive technique that they're employing. I didn't even get five fucking seconds into this. Excuse my language, everyone, but god damn it. Tony, I mean, maybe the animator just doesn't know how to do lips. I, this is just a workaround for not being good at <laughs> lip animation. But, but they are moving the cheeks. 
You think somebody who picks these skin colors for humans knows how to do lip animation? God, I mean, well, that's God, that's a fair point, but God damn it. All right. So let's meet everybody. Here's Mateo. He's the dad. He may or may not be dead. We'll find out as the video plays on. This is just act one. (laughs) This is Skylar. And this is Alex. The green one is Alex. So seven and ten years old. Skylar is seven and Alex is ten. Okay. All right. And they are them, just to be clear. Ah, pronouns. Yes, them. Pronouns, thank you. I mean, they might not even identify with them. I don't know if that's their preferred pronoun or not. It could be like jaundice. could be hypoxia. And it could be nausea. I don't know. Maybe they identify as the diseases by which their skin color is resonating. Mm. But anyways... All right, this Jesus. Let's see what happens. Free communication techniques to help navigate. I'm just going to start again. It can be difficult to have yeah, start again. Yeah. When you may not see eye to eye with them, we will go over three communication techniques to help navigate these challenging conversations. Presumptive communication is a technique where you structure your conversation in a way that presumes the behavior is the norm. Skylar, my seven-year-old, has an appointment at the pharmacy next week. When is Ellis's appointment? And did you know that 80% of parents in our neighborhood are planning to get their second graders vaccinated? Oh, wow. I didn't know that so many second grade parents were planning on getting their children vaccinated. Motivational. That's number one. That's it. It's that easy. That's all it takes, huh? Uh, so that's so, all it takes to change behavior with the complexity of the, the human mind, soul, physical process or complex that is, is, is being human. Really? They're obviously not going to cover fallacies in this because it's just a, an appeal to popularity. <clears throat> oh yeah. It's actually an appeal. Yeah. It's appeal to, it's ad populum or appeal to popular emotion. One is just dealing with like one individual emotion. One's dealing with the crowd's emotion. So in this case, when he says, actually, that 80% is an ad vericundium fallacy too, because it's, it's an appeal to an authority, but you're stating the authority being is the 80%. So it's a mixture of two, but that's me being pedantic. And if anyone's interested, I am teaching a logic course specifically going over the fallacies and a definition that'll be hosted. First week of March, we begin and last for about four to six weeks. And we'll go into those two topics of the four topics that make up formal logic. So you can learn more about that there. But yes, there's a lot of fallacies. Ad populum uh, appealed to emotion, which is the same as ad populum, just on an individual basis. And then ad vericundium, uh, like a modality of ad vericundium, where the percentage stands for the appeal to authority. Oh, did you know all these people? That must mean they represent an authority and an understanding that you don't. Clever. Very clever. Yeah, so they skipped right to rhetoric here, right over logic. And yeah, uh, we're on to number two, uh, motivational interviewing. What did they call the first one? Presumptive communication? Uh, just presume. Presumptive communication. Yeah, presumptive communication. Frame the conversation to highlight vaccination. So do you under, like, instead of appealing to data, like here, this, in fact, this whole thing is basically how to be a sophist 101. So let's not, we're going to, yeah, exactly. They jumped right to rhetoric. We're going to teach you how to engage with individuals, how to lessen their hesitancy, how to appease or ease their hesitancy. Um, but we're not going to actually talk about those data that are associated with the vaccine. We're not going to make appeals to actual evidence, which is actually doing logic. We're just going to skip that stage and we're going to go right to doing fallacies. Brilliant. Really good. Now it says here, right. By on the way, do you think that's a person of color, the purple? 
are they purple or pink purple i don't know i i saw all these people i was like are the colors right on my screen because so, i mean they have I, a black mask on it i mean just you know and it's purple and just the hairstyles like you know what that's a very or am i just the one being I don't know. And maybe it's uh we're racially profiling. That's representative of the people who need to be spoken to about their vaccine hesitance. Oh, right. There for we go. some right. reason. For some reason. Uh so it says here on the screen, try framing your conversation in a way that highlights vaccinating is the norm. So instead of making appeals to actual evidence, we're just gonna make it seem like it's what everyone's doing. Go along with the crowd. Ad Vercundia mad populum. There you go. Boom. Love it. All right. We'll get on to number two. Vaccinated. Oh, wow. I didn't know that so many second grade parents were planning on getting their children vaccinated. Motivational interviewing is a technique where you structure your conversation in a way that guides someone to strengthen their motivation for change. I recently took my 10 year old Alex to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, this guy looks like he has a leather jacket on. So, you know, he's trouble, right? <laughs> Well, let's see how Mateo does with him. Uh, so he's like that wayward youth. He's a rebel without a cause. What was that 1950s film? Um, when they called rebel, rebel, without, rebel a without a cause. Yeah, yeah I watched that back in socialite class. Yeah. Mm. Now he's he's not like too outside. He's got his mask on at the birthday party outdoors, but he's trying. He's more like you know, it's like a fox punks rocker, which are like all my friends in high school, where they you know get the leather jackets and so on the. The patches and whatnot but they're not really punk rockers they're all like doctors and lawyers now but you know it was just a little rebellious phase they went through yeah you know, it's a way to give themselves a sense of identity i guess wink wink he might yes. be skylar's dad by the way oh oh well, that's a problem <laughs> oh that's skylar's wow question. that's skylar's yeah. real dad <laughs> oh shit that's a great option i mean he's yellow skinned john this i mean but they don't do they accept genetics I mean, I don't know of like genetic determinism as is, far as is like, that a social color. construct? I forget. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> oh boy, but he is wearing his mask to Brett's point. I mean, so he's like, he's a rebel, but he's not a rebel, but he's a rebel. He's sort of like wearing it on his sleeve, so to speak. Well, he's at a or his yellow party. skin. I mean, this is a party. Happy birthday, Bella and Eric, by the way. All right. So, uh, hold on. What was this called again? Um, the beginning motivational interview. Okay. Thank you. Let me write that one down. Motivational. Okay. I got it. Yeah. All right. So yeah, just shout out, pause whenever we need to pause, but we'll, we'll try to get through a technique number two here. Motivational interviewing. Their motivation for change. I recently took my 10 year old Alex to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Jaden is 10, right? When are you planning on getting Jaden vaccinated? Uh, pause. Learn more. <laughs> Oh, man. My head's going to explode. I did not get a lot of sleep last night either. Oh, boy. Having a long show tonight. That's a complex question, another fallacy. So he's it's a basically like if people, marketers are taught this. You, you can lead. It's called leading questions in marketing where you're sort of like you want a specific answer. So you ask the question in such a way to get the answer that you want. So instead of just asking, are you going to get your child vaccinated? He said, when are you going to get that again, there's these subtle qualifications that make all the difference of the way you're going to answer this. And visa, also, Visa or MasterCard, dummy. <laughs> you got it. There's a false dichotomy. 
Oh boy, it's this fallacy fucking rain. It's just raining fallacies right now. It's a fucking torrent torrential storm that's now, inundating this my mind filled with fucking nothing but mRNA juice. So here we're on the screen. We have the ultimate clash. White lab coat, black leather jacket. Let's see what kind of pushback we get from black leather jacket guy who is still doing a lot of the right things, but for some reason still has enough of an attitude to wear a black leather jacket to a kid's birthday. I mean, he's a walking contradiction. I can't say it's a pair. This is a straight contradiction. He's a black leather jacket. He's at a birthday party, but then he's wearing a mask. So he clearly is into, he's like, he's, yeah, he's just a, a fake. He's a facade. You know, he's, he's someone who wears on his sleeve. It's like, yeah, way to identify, but I'm not really that. I'm going to act like I'm actually like this rebel, but nah, I'm wearing my mask. I'm chill. He's actually going to get his kid vaccinated. We, I, bet, I bet, how much money do you want to put on it? Probably going to get his kid vaccinated. Imagine if there were a group of people at Johns Hopkins University sitting around a table going, how can we get on Grand Theft World podcast? <laughs> and this, if this is, is their best attempt. Like, I can't imagine all the smart individuals at Johns Hopkins. And this is what they come up with. Yeah, so I, I that's that was what was really confounding about this for me is like how was this their finished product? How is how is there like b- before? Uh, so so there's Johns Hopkins University, agree, and and then there's you know all of then the, there's the colleges a part of the university, right? And then there's you know the hospital in Baltimore. Sure, yeah. yeah. It's, it's so, but like to put the Johns Hopkins name on something, how is there not somebody's going like let me see that before it goes out. You know, wasn't John Hopkins for event 201? Yes. yes yeah. Are they the main them and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? And notice, you know, Chris Martinson pointed this out. I hope we get to that clip later on. But he did a fantastic interview with Brett Weinstein, by the way. Or Brett Weinstein interviewed Chris Martinson. He said, you know what? I'm not really big into the... Chris Martinson's not big into the conspiracy aspect of it. But he's like, I can't help but get out of my mind that event 201 because they didn't have a single virologist, immunologist, doctor on that panel it was like cia you know it was you know uh heads of media heads of uh government hotels hotels airlines but no way to stop no no one no epidemiologist sitting there saying how do we save the most amount of people it was a bunch of industries talking about how do we make sure we make a bunch of money and capitalize off this basically anyways i'm sorry go ahead i promise let's 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 do motivational. Let me just jump back to the beginning of motivational motivational interviewing. Here we go. It starts out with a complex question. Another goddamn fallacy. Excuse my language. I just gotta stop swearing tonight. I'm I'm angry and tired. Go for it. Their motivation for change. I recently took my ten year old Alex to get the COVID nineteen vaccine. Jaden is ten, right? When are you planning on getting Jaden vaccinated? Uh, I need to learn more about the vaccine trial process. People who wear leather jackets are the kinds of people who need to learn more before they do things. You know, <laughs> that's the that's the, the their rebellious nature. Comes I mean, their wardrobe. I've he might be the smartest, most inquisitive leather wearing jacket individual I have ever experienced in my entire life. So we're we're getting a uh, a pop up here pop up mm-hmm. video on uh, what the what the technique is. I'm glad you're taking the time to learn about the vaccines. 
I'm just not convinced that there's enough information. I'm going to wait and see. I understand that you want to make the best choice for your family. I'm glad we were able to discuss your concerns about the vaccine. Oh, stop. It's hard to know what's right and wrong. Brad, are you noticing anything here? This is the Delphi technique. Elaborate on that. Uh, it's a DARPA-developed technique to lead your audience. We literally use this at um, focus groups at Young and Rubicam. Well, okay. And oh, it's a DARPA-developed technique, um, Delphi method, as in Delphi. Um, the, um, the Oracle the at Delphi? Yes, idea. correct. Yeah. The spelling's it's the a, same. Yeah, this is a leading uh, technique that's used so that you can have your audience come to the conclusion, a predetermined conclusion that was already, everything was already set up. So all you're trying to do is making your audience feel like they're coming to that conclusion on their own, but they're not. You're leading them completely through this path and bringing them to where you want them. It's a trapping technique. It shows up uh, it, it pretty frequently because I was actually going to try and do a show, an episode of School Sucks about this with um, the, the guy who introduced it to me was Scott Hambrick from, from Online Great Book. Oh, yeah. He's we should great, totally yeah. do a show about this Delphi technique. So we started looking to see what we could find as far as like footage to show of people actually using it. A lot of it comes from town halls in California around like ballot referenda. So it is basically uh, what John Taylor Gatto talks about in the underground history as remediation. And this is kind of with the behaviorist revolution in education that happened through the universities and like a nexus of universities, corporations and government in the 1960s. So like Bloom's taxonomy of educational objectives and eventually by the 1990s, right here in Western Pennsylvania, uh, as Peg Luxick was trying to blow the whistle on uh, outcomes based education, which is where a remediation process took place to get certain attitudes and values out of students. So this is talked about by Michael Chapman from EdWatch in his uh, uh, presentation. I think it's called um, Dumb, Dumb and Dumber or Outcomes-Based Education, Dumb and Dumber, uh, which he was trying to like sound the alarm about Agenda 21, maybe back in the early 2000s, maybe even the 1990s. Peg Luxick was in the 90s. And it's saying like we have the attitude conclusions we want to what Senna was saying is that like they have the, the public policy opinions that they want people to arrive at. So they test. And when they don't get those opinions, they circle back and do a process of remediation. It's much easier to do with students who are obviously defenseless in the schools, defenseless against outcomes-based education, which is values, education, attitudes, education. So that is, that, that this is a, you know, a green guy cartoon example of that. I, I do agree that you, you do see the Delphi technique here, but I, I see that sort of remediative process just as much. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's congruent with um, both. I mean, what's disconcerting here also, not to put this down, because I know at one point we probably supported this type of communication strategy, but nonviolent communication does a lot of similar techniques here. Um, it's, you know, focusing on certain needs of observation, feelings, needs, and requests and presenting it in such a way that you're trying to find common ground or solidarity. I can see how when individuals critiqued us about it, 
I mean, a lot of this reminds me of that a little bit too, whether that was intentional or not in regards to being psychologically subversive. Um, but the idea of trying to build bridges, trying to get on the same page as someone, but then you have, you want to lead them somewhere all looks very similar. Um, uh, real, real quick. I want to share, I'm going to share my screen real quick and we'll come back to this because I want to follow up for the audience that may be unaware about the <clears throat> underground history. And this is therapy as curriculum. Do you see that guys? Does everyone see that? Yep. Okay, good. Um, yeah, because I did not put my screen share on. Or actually, no, I'm going to take my screen share off. And we're going to do it this way. Do you see it that way? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So I'm just going to read a couple sections. For those in the audience who may not be aware of Brett's reference, um, this comes from page 313 of the, all, the Ultimate History Lesson. Or not the Ultimate History Lesson. The Underground History of American Education, not the production that we did. Therapy as curriculum. To say that various psychologies dominate modern schooling is hardly to plow new ground. The tough thing to do is to show how that happened and why, and how the project progresses to its unseen goals. The Atlantic Monthly had this to say in April 1993. Schools have turned into therapeutic remediation. There's that term you're alluding to, Brett, remediation. A growing proportion of many school budgets is devoted to counseling and other psychological services. The curriculum is becoming more therapeutic. Children are taking courses in self-esteem, conflict resolution, and aggression management. Parental advisory groups are conscientiously debating alternative approaches to traditional school discipline, ranging from teacher training to uh, teacher training and meditation uh, to the introduction of metal detectors and security guards in the school. Schools are increasingly becoming emergency rooms to the emotions. Boy, what a lot <laughs> compared to what we're dealing with or in compared, yeah, compared to what we're dealing with today with the woke culture mm. schools are increasingly becoming emergency rooms of emotions, safe spaces, anyone devoted to repairing hearts. What we are seeing is the psychologization of American education. Two years before I ran across the Atlantic broadside, I encountered a different analysis in the financial magazine Forbes. I promise one after here, I was surprised to discover Forbes had correctly tracked the closest inspiration for school psychologizing both its aims and its techniques to the pedagogy of China and the Soviet Union. Not similar practices and programs, mind you, identical ones. Not similar, but identical. The great link with Russia, I knew, had been from the Vuntian Ivan Pavlov, but the Chinese connection was news to me. I was unaware then of John Dewey's tenure, then in the 1920s, progressive education, um, uh, pragmatist, for those who are unaware, and had given no thought for that reason to its possible significance. The techniques of brainwashing developed in totalitarian countries are routinely used in psychological conditioning programs imposed on school children. These include emotional shock and desensitization, psychological isolation from sources of support, stripping away defenses, manipulative cross-examination of the individual's underlying moral values by psychological rather than rational means. That's actually what we're dealing with by watching this video. And these techniques are not confined to separate courses or programs. They are not isolated idiosyncrasies of particular teachers. They are products of numerous books and other educational materials and programs packaged by organizations that sell such curricula to administrators and teach the techniques to teachers. Some packages even include instructions on how to deal with parents and others who object, which is exactly what's happening with the school board meetings, not just with masks, but the whole critical uh, gender theory situation. Stripping away psychological defenses can be done through assignments to keep diaries to be discussed in group sessions and through role-playing assignments, both techniques used in the original brainwashing programs in China under Mao. 
this comes this. So the first reference was April, 1993. And I'm sure that wasn't, I'm not sure he didn't give a reference to the Forbes, but it's in the table of contents, but I'm not sure what year the Forbes was, but a little bit of context on, cause that was a really important point about the idea of remediation. They're essentially psychological subversive breeding grounds, um, uh, or these techniques are used as breeding grounds in the schooling system in order to test out and utilize them to condition the next generation. But to your point, Brett, this is a generation that isn't had never had the opportunity to develop critical thinking capacity. So they're in a, especially at a very, a younger age where that's not even a, they're not at a biological biological stage where that's a possibility yet. So they're much more as the classic adage, give me the child until he's seven and I will show you the man situation where they're just, they're just taking in information, very impressionable, and they can be essentially molded into the type of individuals for the most part that the state or whatever the educators want them to turn into. Um, the fact that they're utilizing techniques that have been well-established and had this has been known about for decades is the, now this ties into Rockefeller and Carnegie funding. I went into this with uh, Renee Warmser, uh, the Reese committee, Norman Dodd, you know, the lawyer for that. It's interesting because when we look at the history of this, and you could go back to the Frankfurt school and like Lukacs and Marcuse and these uh, individuals, they were associated with communist departments um, in Europe. And on top of that, they utilized all the same psychological techniques. So when Rockefeller funded um, a lot of these universities in the thirties, twenties and thirties, it had to do with their social science programs specifically. I went into a deep dive on this, like the first time or second time I hosted GTW, but everything was about infiltrating social sciences that goes back to the twenties and thirties. That's even before, like we were really getting into the fifties and sixties of operant conditioning. So just carry on this sort of like these psychological techniques and the development of said techniques into the future. Um, you know, we have Solowinski, fifties and sixties, I believe. Right. Um, we have also, um, you know, Yuri Bezmanov talking about what the KGB was utilizing, which God is referencing here from the Atlantic monthly. It's all about psychological subversion. So everything. So the Delphi technique to follow up on then to bring this home that's like, okay, so I started off by saying there's a complex question. They started off with a leading question, a complex question. They developed a complex question into a whole technique, a whole protocol, a whole procedure to utilize. Like they start with a complex question, but then they, they continue along by utilizing techniques and nonviolent communication that I've recognized. Marshall, what was it? Uh, Rosen, Rosenberg. Rosen, yep. yep. And uh, I forget the other individual associated with it, but you know, and that's, in other words, it gets you into an agreeable mind state. Um, what's his name? Um, Peterson talks about this all the time, as well as Jonathan Haidt about these like non-agreeable versus agreeable personalities. And there's ways to manipulate that through language and subtle bio, uh, um, body language techniques in order to get people into agreeable mind states. So let's, let's start this over again. Cause like we can, it starts with a complex question, but it's much more pernicious than just the complex question or leading question. Let's uh, can you bring that up again because I took it down. Yep, uh, it's coming back up again. This is number two, motivational interviewing. I even noticed, yeah, the the Delphi technique that was a really really good catch, mm -hmm. and um, I missed it, but they speed through it so quickly. I mean, yes. like if you look at this politically or educationally, it's a process that takes a lot of time. You know, so yeah, there's a um, there's a psychiatrist that died like, I don't know, 50 years ago. His name is uh, Jacob Moreno. Jacob Moreno developed a technique called psychodrama. And it's a, um, it's a therapeutic technique. 
where you, oh. uh, and this Delphi technique. Um, so DARPA takes this psychodrama methodology and applies it to their needs. I learned this as a psychodrama technique um, when I was in college. And we were taking these lessons to subvert. Um, I didn't know what I was doing back then. I'm like in my early 20s. We, I was working for Young and Rubicam and we're doing all these um, uh, focus groups. And we were sent to this uh, seminar over and over again to learn psychodrama, how to, how to manipulate your um, uh, audience, basically. But when you're that young, you're not really thinking. You're just thinking, you know, we're just doing jobs for big corporations. We're just doing focus groups. And you're just thinking, oh, we're just learning this technique. And then I learned about um, this whole uh, Delphi method or technique and psychodrama and what it was actually used for many, many years ago, uh, like 15 years ago or so. And I was shocked and I felt terrible about it because it, it's a horrible technique. You're basically lying to a person to change their mind. And this is exactly what that is. If I may ask a question then, is psychodrama, is it distinct from the Delphi technique insofar as you have like a dramatic representation, almost like a play-like representation of what you think? Because yes. I experienced so, that. I was part of a group that did that. And the thing I noticed the most, this was back when I was a hippie and I met these two psychologists when I was gallivanting and sojourning around the Amazon jungle and then the uh, Andes mountains. I met these two in the Andes mountains and they were like 60s children you know, they're older uh, adults, uh, older women. And they took, they had me come down to Washington, DC uh, to do this. They, they referenced some sort of psychologist that got into shamanism that, that talks about this idea of acting out your, your, your repressions, your, your issues in regards to your psychological problems. And so I wasn't aware of the more background theory behind it. I, they, they just gave me a book. It was from a psychologist that they said they're referencing some sort of like indigenous technique uh, that he noticed from, you know, um, indigenous cultures. And the idea, what was so disconcerting to me is people were enacting fantasies and acting as though they were getting over their sort of repressed psychological trauma by giving into fantasies that weren't true at all. And so it's like, I mean, people were, it was really strange to me because people were completely emotionally breaking down during it. I mean, just like wailing and crying and just it, but they're make most of the stuff, most of the dramas we were enacting are just confabulations of their own sort of, of their own sort of imaginative memories around events that may or may not have happened, including one that had to do with like the Holocaust and like some like distant family relative. And I was just like, what am I witnessing right now? And the emotional the conspicuous emotional outplay or out sort of, or, uh, outpouring from it was really to see people break down and be so reconditioned around that sort of play like scenario of an acting out this sort of, uh, these fantasies yes, really because the idea me. is you cannot achieve resolution without catharsis. Yeah. So ah, that was the point of the book that they need person, you yeah. to go through that catharsis, that point of breakdown to completely let go, cry, whatever you need to do to reach your resolution. Without that, you cannot reach your resolution. 
And with these techniques come something else. There's a, a methodology called Feldenkrais, where you um, close your eyes and imagine your body in space and what and you try to imagine everything your body is doing without um, thinking about it, but thinking too much about it at the same time. And these are all interconnected methodologies. And these are used at, um, you know, at different levels in, um, you know, universities where they teach psychology. And that's what I studied. So um, it was, it was interesting. And you don't know what you're doing because your professor says, oh, my God, you'd be fantastic for this. I'm going to sign you up for this seminar that's going to last for four weeks, whatever. And then you get yourself into it. You're like 22 trying to be like, yeah, woo, I just got signed up for something fun. <laughs> that's how I got sort of uh, course into it because they really kept hounding me about coming down and experiencing this, thinking I was really into the concepts of, and I was probably at the time of shamanism, certainly catharsis but it's sort of weaponizing the concept of catharsis in a way. I mean, that's also what the MK programs were attempting to do in, in the form of creating split personality with abuse and drugs and the intermittent abuse, I should say the Stockholm syndrome style. I mean, it's, um, there's a lot of perniciousness going on there to follow yeah, up real it quick. Sounds like it's like to simulate a trauma response almost. That's what it is, but it's a yeah. fake simulate. The whole thing is, yeah, it's, it's all fake. Yeah. And, but it is like people would have these incredibly traumatic, uh, conspicuous displays from like a complete fantasies. Um, I use the term confabulations because it was like partially based on memory, but partially the memory, it was hazy. So it'd be filled in by whatever their imagination would come up with to justify their trauma, justify, and then overcome the trauma, if you will. And it was really, for me, I felt psychologically disturbed because I knew nothing about logic at this point. I had not discovered the trivium. I was still very much in my hippie phase when, you know, uh, where I, you know, my, my epistemology is based on mysticism rather than sort of sense perception and conceptualization, those sorts of things. And even then I felt like something was way off, way off in this experience I was having, just because I, I felt like people were making up something in their mind and acting like they were overcoming it. Like they were trying, like their life, they needed some way to give themselves a sense of meaning teleology purpose and something, and something to overcome because like of, whatever else they were experiencing that didn't seem to fulfill that, that void for them, um, at least in some contexts. The one, again, that disturbed me the most is the one about World War II, because we're a couple of generations removed from that now. And this lady was talking about, you know, an aunt, I believe, of hers, either an aunt or an uncle that was, or great aunt and uncle, I should say, that was in the Holocaust. And she, you know, they actually had this, this boy, or is a young boy, he was like a teenager, or a young man, somewhere between 18 to 20 years old, let's say act as like one of the Gestapo or SS officers. And like the, what really concerned me is how much these people started, like first you feel really awkward, but then you start really giving into the play. You start really becoming the play. And so the more and more people gave into this, the more they enacted what they wanted. The fantasy of the person was trying to get out of it. And it really started to get more intense than I would like to admit. And that's where, when I discovered the concept of egregor or the idea of like this disembodied thought form that comes man that becomes manifest in group action, that's, I could see it on display right there. You can see why ritual is such an important aspect of so many different cultures and societies and, and tribal communities the world over. And, and then that becomes institutionalized when we, be, we go into the civilizations. 
we get we go from tribalism to civilization and why ritual is so important and groupthink and the ability to manipulate people in groups becomes so much more interesting and 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 weaponized. Um, I could see it firsthand there. And it was really, I don't know. I just felt like it was very inauthentic. Um, it wasn't something like psychoanalysis, you know, where you're trying to get trying to really objectify the trauma by getting through the layers and layers of armoring or ways you're trying to misdirect from that, which is the consciousness way of surviving because it's trying to compartmentalize that trauma. It didn't seem quite like that. Um, or the Jungian method where you use dream analysis, um, and try to like understand the symbols behind the dreams that you may be using to cover up for situations of not, um, getting to a more, uh, psychologically balanced situation. Um, this seemed very contrived and uh, it really made me nervous being around that whole situation. And of course it was always described in terms of like, do you feel the energy, you know, do you feel like the vibrations of like the individual? It's like, yeah, I can feel the emotions. If you want to, you, you know, use these synonyms, that's what you're talking about. Like, but these emotions seem to be something that are completely not real, not authentic in the moment because of the way they're doing this imaginative constructs, the way they're enacting these imaginative constructs. And real quick, I mean, Joshua, yeah, you're right. I mean, NBC is supposed to be voluntary. I'm not, I'm not against that as issue. Um, but one can't deny that there might be a subtle psychological subversive technique embodied in NBC because there is the employment of an NBC like, uh, analogy going on with this, this, what do they call it? Motivational interrogation or whatever it was called. Yeah, motivational interviewing and motivational just on interviewing. the, on the, um, NVC thing. Like if the other person isn't familiar with the language and the techniques of NVC, what's what the, uh, practice, the practitioner is doing really isn't fair. Yeah, no, it's if they're, if they're not. Yeah. If they're yeah. not making the other person aware of like, this is a framework for compassionate communication and uh, achieving empathy. Uh, it, it can be a very, very, I mean, you and I, we talked about this years ago, long, long form. We did. Uh, it can, it can be a, a manipulative thing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually what's going on here. Elements of NBC are being used to manipulate without the other person being aware of it. So when both NLP, parties are aware yeah. of it, it's a great technique to utilize and it's totally of each party's volition. I actually have a story with my ex-girlfriend where we did that. We were both aware of the techniques and we both utilized it in such a way that it was very informative and useful. But if you're not aware of it, it can be just as psychologically subversive as the rest of the techniques. We're talking about Delphi technique and the complex question fallacy and leading question, you know, marketing fallacy, so forth and so on. Yeah. If you're not aware of it, it's, it, it's closer to neuro-linguistic programming. Yeah. I was thinking that's the perfect analogy. It's NLP. Yeah. I was almost going to jump over in Google, um, or, you know, search, uh, motivational interviewing. Is that an NLP term? Uh, oh, I don't I, okay. know, but it sounds really familiar and it certainly plays out like one when we see Mateo spring into action here against leather jacket guy. Yeah, let's so, go back to that too. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to reshare and we're going to um, just take the second. This is two out of three uh, communication techniques. This is number two, motivational interviewing. A way that guides someone to strengthen their motivation for change. I recently took my 10-year-old Alex to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Jaden is 10, right? When are you planning on getting Jaden vaccinated? Uh, I need to learn more about the vaccine trial process. I'm glad you're taking the time to learn about the vaccines. I'm just not convinced that there's enough information. I'm going to wait and see. I understand that you want to make the best choice for your family. 
I'm glad we were able to discuss your concerns about the vaccine. It can be hard to know what's right and wrong, as there's so much information out there. Our pediatrician shared some information with me. So pause real quick. Like the problem, like the way out the where I'm seeing the NVC is he's observing and noticing his feelings. Okay. He's apprehensive because he's not sure and he wants to see more information. And then he's reaffirming those observations and his feelings by restating them explicitly. Yeah. And that's the problem because then it gets him into an agreeable mindset without that individual, the, the leather jacket guy really being aware that he's being psychologically manipulated into an agreeable mindset. Right. And then comes the, uh, the Visa or MasterCard part right here. Mm -hmm. at the end. I, I went back like five to 10 seconds. Yeah, go for it. Shared some information with me. Oh, wait. Well, Can I share it with you? So, out there. Our pediatrician shared some information with me. Can I share it with you? Sure. That would be great. Thanks. Taylor. So that's two. Whatever the pediatrician's information was, uh, was great for the leather jacket guy. We're, I guess, left to infer. So three is tailoring. And that is interesting how they brought in that quick. Oh yeah, then here's information for my pediatrician, a supposed trusted source. Yeah, who could argue with that? So this is the last one. Is a technique where you structure your conversation in a way to ensure that you are responding to specific needs and that the information you provide is salient. I'm so relieved that Skylar, my seven-year-old, can get vaccinated. I just don't know about getting the vaccine for my six-year-old, Kai. What are you worried about? I'm worried about some of the ingredients in the vaccine. Every ingredient in the vaccine has been rigorously tested for safety and efficacy. Oh, I didn't know that. With these three... Slam! Wait, wait, go back. Let's watch that one all over again. <laughs> Every ingredient. Every ingredient. We don't even know all the ingredients of the, the round table with Ron Johnson last but, week. They're but like, they're, they're all tested. But they're all tested. Here's That's number one. We're circling back to number one. Provoke vaccination as the norm. And this is the tailoring technique, right? Around, yeah. yeah. What is tailoring? And how do they describe that? Let's just yeah, uh, let's hear what they say. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll start. God, Mateo yeah. sucks. You know what? Like, I don't like that he's green. I don't like the way he talks. Like, I, I really, I, I'm not buying him as the protagonist. He's a goddamn robot. I got to stop swearing. Damn it. And why uh, is he going everywhere wearing a white coat? Yeah. It's a great observation. A little bit of a, it's like a very subtle appeal to ad vericundium or appeal to authority. That's what it is. I mean, it's a subtle appeal to an authoritative position that he supposedly has in regards to special knowledge related to the vaccine. That's the, what, how I interpret it, at least. Why else would you have this white coat? He's the one, it's a symbolic representation of this whole like little allegory we're witnessing right now, but he's yeah. the one with the knowledge. It's, right? it's, it's visual programming. It's, it's visual programming. And if you watch, yes, I mean, it is. I, I was chomping at the bit to get into the CNN Rogan thing because it's like, I mean, I mean, we'll, we'll get to it, but like, it's somebody's job at CNN to color and shade correct Joe Rogan videos before they play on the air. It's somebody's job at CNN to find like, uh, you know, to be the Joe Rogan B-roll picture getter sitting there doing Google image searches of like Joe Rogan crazy, Joe Rogan mad, Joe Rogan regretful. So they can play those pictures over serious people like Brian Stelter and Jim Acosta talking about Joe Rogan. So uh, the best example of this that anybody could ever see is an MTV show called Decoded, which was like an early attempt to explain social justice issues to kids. 
and it's a woman mm-hmm. who's sitting there and she sounds like she's being perfectly sensible, but they're doing like a pop-up video or just like the corner animation, the over the shoulder animation style where they are telling very much uh, a, a very manipulative story through pictures. Um, the, the, the news broadcast with its overwhelming motion graphics and chirons is doing this all the time and people never even notice this visual programming. And that's if the thing. Mateo went from number two to number three, and he had maybe some like cake frosting on his white coat. I, that would have humanized him for me. But he goes right to number three with a perfectly clean, clean white coat, and I'm not buying it. I there is a movie with Dustin Hoffman, Gene, I forget his last name. Uh, it's about like gun rights. It has, um, oh, oh Gene God. Hackman. Yeah. It's Gene a, Hackman. John it's, Cusack. It's, and, John Cusack. Yeah. And what's your uh, name? Runaway uh, jury. It's runaway called. jury. Remember the scene where he purposely has leaves mustard stains on his tie in order to identify with the common people. And he talks about it with, and this is Dustin Hoffman's character, the, the good guy, one of the protagonists where like be right. Are you talking about wag the dog? Is that no, this is a, this, this movie's called runaway jury and it's like a, a pro gun control movie about, uh, you know, it's the fault of gun manufacturers that people get uh, shot. And then there's like this uh, special uh, league, legal adjacent team run by uh, Gene Hackman that comes in to basically buy the jury in the favor of, of the gun companies. And um, then some mass shooting victims or people who are related to mass shooting victims uh, try to intervene. Uh, against the Gene Hackman group. Uh, and that's kind of the, the using plot. the same techniques in yeah. a way. Yeah. And so yeah, it's a, it's a big mess of a movie, but it just reminded me when you say there's some cake stains or something at the party, it just, and that's another subversive technique because these individuals like, yeah, in order to Gene or not Gene Hackman's is Dustin Hoffman's character. Just talking about now I'm going to leave the mustard stain there. I know it's there. I made it there on purpose because I want to be able to identify with the common people. So they identify with the struggle of, people that lose loved ones to guns or some nonsense like that. And I'm like, man, this is, people really think this through. That was an interesting element that the writers added in screenplay adapters. So let's go for it. All right, here we are tailoring number three. Tailoring is a technique where you structure your conversation in a way to ensure that you are responding to specific needs and that the information you provide is salient. I'm so relieved that Skylar, my seven-year-old can get vaccinated. I just don't know about getting the vaccine for my six-year-old, Kai. What are you worried about? I'm worried about some of the ingredients in the vaccine. Every ingredient in the vaccine has been rigorously tested for safety and efficacy. Oh, I didn't know that. With these treatments... <laughs> that out the, first of all, is that how conversations really take place? I mean, really? I mean, I mean, there was a stu- I think it was either a study or recognition done. I want to say it was actually a study early on in the pandemic that many of the people who were vaccine hesitant or well-educated had like PhDs or some other nonsense like that. I remember we had it on the show. This is now going back a year ago, at least, but um, back to one of the people that was, so the FDA advisory council on vaccines, um, when they were reviewing vaccines and boosters, or we're talking about this because people came on and like most of the vaccine hesitant are the nurses I'm working with in the hospital and they're well-educated 
and they're, you know, probably they've already been exposed to COVID and they're telling me data, they're giving me facts and data. I'm not even aware of because you guys, the FDA, in other words, isn't giving me those facts and data to be able to counter their arguments. So is that really how real life conversations like that go? Like that's the point I'm trying to make, or is the vaccine hesitant tend to be a little bit more knowledgeable about some of the concerns? Just Yeah. It's kind of like, I don't know. You ever had a, a conversation with somebody and they assume that like your only problem is you didn't pay enough attention in like your seventh grade social studies class. <laughs> oh yeah. Like about voting or something like, like that was really the delivery on that last one. Like, Oh, they're all safe. Oh, I didn't know that. Or that, right. that, that was his thing. Like all the ingredients are safe. And she goes, Oh, I didn't know that. I was just rigorously tested for safety and efficacy. All of the ingredients. First of all, do we even have access to all the ingredients? Because they didn't actually make available what is all what all the constituents that are a part of the mRNA vaccine. We're still trying to get that information. They made available a lot of them. We know there's like a synthetic lipid nanostructure that encodes to the RNA delivery package inside of it, but we don't know all of the material. There's human genetic cell lines in there. We don't know why those exist, for example. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like, there's a lot of questions yet. And the more questions you ask, the less answers you tend to get, not to mention the vaccine insert seems to be, at least early on, was lacking quite a bit of information. Oh boy. So let, let me just uh, finish this real quick. Uh, Mateo is just going to do a review. And then the, the, the last, I wanted to ask a, a question about purpose here. So I'll just let the rest of it play real quick. Techniques, you can have helpful conversations with people in your community. Bye, Skylar. Oh, man, poor Skylar. What was the other? You had Mateo, Skylar, and I already forgot the other one. Mateo, Skylar, and Alex. Oh, Alex. And poor Alex, too. So uh, the, the one of the reasons why I thought this was, even though this seems like really low-hanging fruit, like circling back to in a round table, is what's the point of this? Like who, how, what adult, what teacher or principal or PTA president would watch that video? And, and I chose those two videos so we could look at like, here's an explanation of the science. Like this is how an mRNA vaccine works. Here's an explanation uh, or here, it, here's one from this, this other um, segment of the course on communication, right? So that's pretty like uh, broad coverage of what is in this course. Uh, most of the videos are about that long. Most of the videos are about wow. that dense as far as the information they can contain. What adult watches this and goes, that was really helpful. I'm ready to get out there now. So I, I, I'm kind of baffled at the purpose of this. In my opinion, the purpose of these is not for adults. This is for teachers to use in classroom uh, to oh, yeah. use on children so the children can go to their parents and say, hey, uh, we learned in, uh, you know, whatever class today, uh, you know, we watched this video. It's from a very respectable university called, John, you know, Johns Hopkins University. And, you know, all, all of the ingredients are tested. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. this is not for adults because I, I don't know how involved you are with schools, but for a very for about five six years, I was very involved with my son's school, and I know the type of teacher who would put this through, who would push this in class. Like there was a librarian who was uh, sitting in for some whatever class it was, social studies or some such thing, and 
this is the kind of stuff that woman pushed all the time. So uh, things such as uh, Meatless Mondays videos. Mm. There are Meatless Mondays videos that look exactly like this. So wow. I think this is the kind of thing because my my son, because I talk about this stuff all the time at home, he would come home and joke about it because saying I'm not I'm going to be a vegan now. Ha ha ha, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, a, after like watching these, it's, it's hard to come to any other conclusion. Um, but I did have the experience. So I, I actually worked in education for a little over a decade. And towards the end of my career, I was in uh, like private service provider, like doing SAT tutoring. And um, maybe about 10, 12 years ago, I worked for a company that was very much uh, like enmeshed in the school bureaucracy. So they you know, like if the school had something that they wanted the tutoring company to show their contractors, we would watch it. And uh, one of the like webinars that I remember sitting through was like anti-bullying or like how I, everybody had to watch it, even though we weren't interacting with kids in anything more than like a one-on-one -on -one situation. And it was no less condescending than this. So I, I think there was just things from my experience, like as as an educator or a, a school adjacent professional, uh, that like this seemed familiar as far as like the treatment we were getting as adults. So yeah, I, I but I I totally agree. It's like yeah, I, again, the title of the course is COVID COVID vaccine ambassador training. So if the ambassador is the teacher, they're passing this on to students who then pass it on, on to parents. And I, the context is for vaccinating children. Yeah. It's not exactly. about vaccinating adults. And that's why early on, I said, this doesn't seem like the TikTok like video you mentioned the way they did the initial video. And then the rest of the videos with this cartoonish characters, these very plain statement of facts without giving a good sense of causality behind those facts. It's just like, here's the facts, but here's not how we arrived at those facts. And that's something that you do with children. You know, children, they just take in information, talk about this all the time. When I give educators, home educators in specific, uh, an explanation of like at the stages of development of a child and when to introduce certain stages based on the trivia method. And for, you know, when a child's between the age of five and 11, they're in a capacity where they're synaptogenesis, their brain is growing dramatically. And they're also just taking in enormous amounts of information. The dialectical process has not really taken place yet. That's not until this sort of folding in of the corpses callosum, which then allows for that sort of question and answer in the brain and the mind, so to speak. And that's where we get into the, the ideas of teaching reason and trying to understand the logic behind why something is the way it is. Instead, before we're just giving them lots of road information. That's where people are learning basic arithmetic, multiplication tables, you know, um, maybe the periodic table, the planets, you know, basic geological structures, you know, stuff like that. And just taking and taking and taking in information. But this is really, really on two levels to look at like one, I do a hundred percent agree an incredible observation by Senna that it's probably for children more. So it's for educators to then present in front of children. Then those children will come back and tell their parents and then the parents will have to either educate them or just be like, okay, yeah, it's good. You learned that at school. Um, but another point that really is disturbing to me is how much this certainly it's not innocuous. It's the opposite of it, but it's seen it's Brett to your point, And I'm going to push back a little bit. It seems like low hanging fruit, but I don't think it is. This is actually extremely well constructed. This is very well thought through or you're, you're, you're on mute. 
I, I just said, I think we've proven that. I mean, we've been yeah. talking about it for well over an hour and yeah. the amount of, of things like, you know, the Delphi. This is Psy War. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I agree. It was, it was more than I thought we would uh, discuss it. And I think what kind of misdirected me is like encountering it through the NPR article where it's like, oh, this is for parents. But then to to talk about, you know, kids engaging with information at that age. I know there might be mixed opinions about Dorothy Sayers and her lost tools of learning, sure. but one valuable uh, takeaway uh, in it uh, and what it is for people who are unfamiliar. Um, she was like a British mystery writer. And I think in the 1940s, she wrote this uh, guide to basically staging the trivium through uh, different ages or different mm -hmm. stages of education and the first stage was the the grammar stage so kids will just go out like vacuum cleaners and pick up information Soak up information yeah right and this so has been corroborated by psychology yeah. psychological studies piaget was like the foundational idea or a psychologist behind this in the 20s and 30s i want to say hmm. who came up with a model for how children interact with uh that like from from the stage of infancy to adolescence how he then and, and people can go against piaget but it wouldn't surprise me if she was maybe somewhat aware of that yeah, psychologist she, as well she calls it i think that first stage is called the poll parrot stage mm -hmm. in other words collect and repeat collect and repeat yeah and that is before you understand um contradiction achieving non-contradiction communicating effect communicating effectively and persuasively uh kids hear things and they repeat them so again, I'm left like confused about how that translates like from the school to the home into an effective strategy for convincing parents other than just to build like a kid army of, you know, people who are on board with the narrative. Uh, and, and maybe that's it. I mean, maybe that's the function. It's it's two hours. It's broad based. And it could be worse than that, Brett. I'm going to throw another scenario out here here because Rich and I covered this they changed the rules around the idea of consent for children, at least certain states have. And it wouldn't surprise me if some parents who are hesitant and told their child not to receive the vaccine, they get this sort of almost PSA-like announcement in regards to the vaccine at school. And then they also have the issue of all the rest of the kids are getting the vaccine. Then I'd just go and do it. I mean, of course they said, this is all it is. You know, the spike leaves the body. It's only there for a second. So you can produce antibodies and then it's gone. Nothing to see here. It's all good. Nothing to worry about. I mean, I don't, I just, I'm theory crafting now. I'm just sort of, I'm trying to extrapolate from what we just witnessed and see like what, what this could mean in a broader approach, but maybe it also is for the children to be more receptive to this apparently, especially if they have parents that are against it. And with the changing rules around cons consent in certain school districts and certain States, I don't know. I mean, this, it all plays together, I guess, in a very ominous portrayal of uh, and future for children in regards to vaccination, if that's the case. And I'm just throwing that out there as a possible potential scenario of why yeah. it might also be used or in, in, way, in a way in which it might be used. So, yeah. So I would just say I was disappointed on, on my initial encounter. I was disappointed with like the lack of challenge in all of this, but it was definitely thought provoking enough that I wanted to discuss it with other people, what my uh, experience was with this. So. That was actually a lot. There's a lot more to it. 
I'm really glad you brought that up because I thought initially it was going to be, oh, this will be a quick, you know, a couple of fallacies and move on. Like, no, this is very sophisticated psychological, subversive psychological techniques. It's pretty much just side warfare, but directed at children hmm. um, for the most part, seemingly. Uh, it's 11.15. You have time for clip and commentary or do you want to, what do you want to do here? I'll do, uh, if you want to do the CNN Rogan thing, um, I can, I can stick around for that. Okay. Let's do that. Let's do that. I got to go to bed after that. Let's, uh, let's see what we're going to do here. Let's do. Okay. So this Rogan said some bad words. So we start, I was going to initially start out with what, what happened? The, the original, well, let's do this. Let's play Steven Crowder. Let's go ahead and play that first clip of the roundtables, roundtable videos, um, LD. And then I might just have you play one or two spare, like one minute clips just to give the rest of the context. And I might have you stop it early, but we'll, we'll get through Steven Crowder's rants about this and then we'll come back and discuss i think we'll play this and then we'll play the clip of the edited version of rogan saying a certain word it's like the tetragrammaton for, for the observant jews it's the word that's you cannot speak it you do not you do not pronounce this so we'll go with that go ahead uh, to that first clip Okay, I came over here because YouTube was being, you know, they were censoring me too much. The premise was that Spotify would be free and open. They wouldn't bother me and tell me what to say. Now it's becoming too constraining. Now it's too much of a headache. I'm gonna walk and go do my own thing somewhere else. Sue me. You're playing with fire, Spotify. This is the disconnect between the woke companies who pull the strings and the woke people who work in your offices and the people who listen to Spotify. Okay, speaking of the pits, Spotify, this is a big controversy right now, and it shouldn't be a controversy at all. I'll give you my opinion on what, what I would like to see happen with Joe Rogan, but, yeah. um, you know, Neil Young last week threatened, uh, he said he was pulling his stuff from Spotify because of Joe Rogan's podcast. Joni Mitchell joined Neil Young, removing her music from Spotify, uh, saying uh, that they are irresponsible people, uh, sorry, irresponsible people on Spotify are spreading lies that are costing people their lives, and then Barry Manilow also followed suit, and Spotify stock shut up 9,000%. So that was them. Wow. <laughs> Next oh, up, no. share. Oh, no. A bit of an anchor. <laughs> oh, geez. I hope Gordon Lightfoot doesn't. Was he dead? <laughs> funny also, who loud. owns... Who, uh, oh, we're going to get into that. Never mind. We're going to get yeah. No, we get into that. That's, that's what's interesting about Spotify and who owns a share of Warner Music and Spotify. Yeah. But um, first... Joe Rogan responded to Spotify announcing, they announced that yeah. they're going to label, and this is just so silly now, label certain content to be sensitive that it might, well, what is their official label? Do we know what it is, what the Spotify label is? Some kind of bring a it warning, up? yeah, we'll have to bring it's it up. It's a warning because God forbid adults actually are able to watch somebody with whom they disagree, right? We need to right, now yeah. warn adults. Remember back when it was Tipper Gore and it was video games, they started self-regulating, saying E for everyone, and, you know, okay, Duke Nukem, all right, we'll put a 17-plus on there. There are strippers and nukes, so, okay. <laughs> but right now we're talking about adults needing to be warned because they might hear a differing opinion. So Spotify said they were going to slap a warning label on these kinds of uh, podcasts, and uh, like Joe Rogan. And uh, Joe Rogan responded uh, to this and discussing uh, COVID-19 and the reaction. I think there's a lot of people that have a distorted perception of what I do, maybe based on sound bites or based on headlines of articles that are disparaging. 
Um, the podcast has been accused of spreading dangerous misinformation, dangerous. specifically about two episodes, a little bit about some other ones, but specifically about two, one with uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and one with Dr. Robert Malone. I had them on. And because of that, those episodes in particular, uh, they, those episodes were labeled as being dangerous. They had dangerous misinformation in them. The problem I have with the term misinformation, especially today, is that many of the things that we thought of as misinformation just a short while ago are now accepted as fact. Like, for instance, eight months ago, if you said, if you get vaccinated, you can still catch COVID and you can still spread COVID, you would be removed from social media. They would, they would ban you from certain platforms. Now, that's accepted as fact. Well, you know, he just, that's just conjecture. Well, it means that instead of the vaccine being able, excuse me, it means for instead of the virus being able to hop from person to person to person to person, spreading and spreading, sickening some of them, but not all of them. And the ones that it doesn't sicken don't know they have it. And then they give it to even more people because they didn't recognize they were right. Instead of the virus being able to hop from person to person to person potentially mutating and becoming more virulent and drug resistant along the way. Now we know that the vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with mm. every vaccinated person. A vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. The virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else. It cannot use a vaccinated person as a host to go get more people. That means the vaccines will get us to the end of this. Now, I do want to take a minute to talk about something, you know, that that little boy was addressing. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things here. <laughs> when they say dangerous and misinformation, let's analyze this both. Dangerous and misinformation. Misinformation means that the information, generally speaking, is not only false, but knowingly false misinformation. Right. Certainly that's how it's been labeled uh, here over the last several years with COVID. Okay, now dangerous. Dangerous would imply what? That it causes damage to people. Now, let me give you one side that's been labeled misinformation and dangerous. And this is important. Just stay with me here really quickly. Joe Rogan and ourselves. So, for example, Peter McCullough, we had on the show, okay? Uh, long before uh, Joe Rogan, I think we were the first people to, 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 to have him on. What did we say? We said people who want to get vaccinated should uh, get vaccinated. People who are vulnerable, who are immunocompromised, it, it makes sense. People who are elderly, it makes sense. Uh, that being said, we don't know the efficacy of the vaccines yet, and it doesn't seem as though, for example, what we would say is, doesn't seem like it stops transmission entirely, but it seems like it lowers hospitalizations. Also, we don't know the long-term side effects. That's a fact. Okay, that's considered misinformation and dangerous. Who does that hurt? What they claim is it could hurt somebody because maybe somebody won't get vaccinated. Okay. Here's the thing. There's a difference between that, encouraging someone to be skeptical off the bat, and instilling, which is what Fauci, what you just saw Rachel Maddow do, what all of media did, all of mainstream media, all of uh, the big tech companies, a false sense of confidence. They told you, you get vaccinated, you can't get sick. They told you, you get vaccinated, you can't spread it. So the vaccinated could go to Thanksgiving parties. The vaccinated could go out publicly. The point is, that was untrue, and that could actually spread the virus because people have a false sense of security. What's more damaging, telling your son to avoid scenarios where he may be bullied or telling your son who you know will get his ass kicked that he is invincible 
So we should walk right up to that bully and tell him to stop, then he gets his ass kicked. The point is a false sense of security, which is what has been given to people, is far more dangerous and has harmed far more people than people like myself, Gerald, Dave, Joe Rogan, saying, you know what? We don't have all the info yet. What's more dangerous? Uh, genuinely, I want you guys to comment. Do you guys see how, how dangerous that is, the false sense of security throughout all of this? The vaccines are coming. We're going to open back up. Yeah. The vaccines don't let you catch the virus. The vaccines don't let you spread the virus. The vaccines, what she just said, they stop the virus. No more variants. Well, that hasn't happened. So at a certain point, you have to look at it and say, all right, you've blamed all of this on the unvaccinated, but that's no longer the issue. Yeah. Could it be the vaccine? I, I don't think that he even broke any of their rules. So it was... It was uh, announced yesterday that Spotify would have these warnings. I don't think they've gone into practice yet, but this is from Spotify's website, Dangerous Content. And they have COVID down here. Content that promotes dangerous, false, or dangerous, deceptive medical information that may cause offline harm or poses a direct threat to public health includes but may not be limited to, and I don't think he's broken any of these, asserting that AIDS, COVID-19, cancer, other serious uh, life-threatening diseases are hoax or not real, encouraging the consumption of bleach. <laughs> Um, and it'll cure various illnesses and diseases, promoting or suggesting that vaccines approved by local health authorities are designed to cause death, and what? encouraging people to purposely get infected with COVID-19 in order to build immunity to it. Um, so it says it may not be limited to, so they're kind of hedging it there. Yeah, of course, yeah. that's what they always do yeah. with YouTube. They say, or uh, anything else that we think. Right. So, same same playbook. Are they going to pull my show, uh, AIDS is Fake, Drink Bleach? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would you, go with a different You were title. banging on all cylinders. Oh, man. But it's so well, clear, just the politics of that, yeah. encouraging. Don, this, the implication there is, just like Donald Trump praised white supremacist Nazis, he never did. He never told anybody to drink bleach. And by the way, that's not even, you guys haven't even agreed upon the right lie. Because some people are saying that he told you to inject bleach. And then some of the people will say, oh, they're telling you to drink bleach. None of it is true. You know that it's a bunch of human yeah. resources people writing that up so that they can ban people with a point of view. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, but also, the idea of uh, putting a warning on this, just like the parental advisory warning that they decided to put on <laughs> CDs like Tipper Gore, that doesn't make it. Not want to listen to it no. or watch it's the it. The other way around, exactly. you look for the ones with right. the parental warning. Like, it, ooh, that it was the fun. greatest sales. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nothing made. Even, I don't know if that's the case uh, anymore. Though when Carlin had the CD that came out, it was just his face over the parental advisory label. Right? No, I think it is. <laughs> yeah. the case. I, I don't think, know what's the case with today's generation. Oh, a lot of I young think, kids like to virtue signal. And think about it. You have anti-fascists for crying out loud yeah. supporting mandates. You have rage against the machine. Demanding that unvaccinated people be quarantined and locked down. I don't know if it's the same with well, I put Rachel Maddow, please stay out of my bird feeder every morning, and she's there every morning. Well, okay. <laughs> she's a contrarian. That big <laughs> will eat so much bird feed. I know. I love the look on her face, by the way. It's not going to hop around and get to, like, other variants that become more virulent. And I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> like, that just did not. But eat. now it would be considered misinformation if you say, hey, why are there more variants now when there are more people vaccinated than ever? Why are there some doctors and why are there some published papers saying, hey, you know what? If you have a vaccine that isn't or an mRNA injection that isn't entirely effective, that viruses mutate and learn to learn to basically get through yeah. uh, the holes in the defense mechanisms. This is I'm not saying that this is accurate. I'm saying that doctors are afraid to even discuss it now because that could be removed as misinformation today, even if we find out tomorrow that it's correct. Yeah. A question can't be misinformation. Yeah. Right. I mean, it can if you're like Jesse Ventura, where it's like, I don't know, was, was George W. Bush behind Tower 7 with an Acme plunger and the Saudi prince? I'm just asking questions. Well, all right, well, point taken. Yes. But 
but I agree with your sentiment. It's a leading <laughs> question. Well, here's something else that matters. Yeah, follow the money. Lead the witness. I yes. get it. Follow the money. Uh, so Joni Mitchell and Neil Young's music, they're owned by uh, Warner Music. Yeah. Okay. BlackRock holds a 1.39% stake in Warner Music. And of course, BlackRock, Elizabeth Warren deemed too big to fail. They also have a bunch of real estate holdings that are worth trillions of dollars. I don't know what the number is today. Uh, And they hold a lot of sway over it. There is no more powerful entity right now as far as business interests. When people talk about, ooh, corporate oligarchy, man, look at BlackRock. Look at Elizabeth Warren wanting them to be too big to fail. Look at their ownership here with Warner Brothers Music. Okay, shouldn't sound like a lot, 1.39. That's $74 million of Spotify. Now, if you don't remember, 2008. Warner Music, yeah. What did I say? Spotify, yeah. Oh, well, I'm going to get to that in a second, Spotify in a minute, yeah. Well, it does. Pretty and slip, foreshadowing. It does explain why two people as high as Neil Young and Rogan (laughs) can't find common ground all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. Remember they used to tell us people who get high, they never never fight. It's always drunk people. It's like, eh, they fight sometimes. Yeah, not well, really not Rogan, just Neil Young out of nowhere for some reason. Yeah. Oh, weird. I wonder what the, oh, right, he's owned. Yes. Except when I saw him live, though, he sang an anti-Starbucks song, but this is totally acceptable. Right, yeah, no, exactly. He wants. Starbucks is not even a fraction of what BlackRock is. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Now I'm singing for the BlackRock Starbucks Uh, is bad. (laughs) (laughs) So 2008, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, that's an asshole name, he said that BlackRock would punish companies that aren't, quote, woke enough. He said, to prosper over time, every company must not only deliver financial performance, that's what a company should do, but also show how it can make a positive contribution to society. And this, of course, was with a liberal uh, woke angle. Just last week, BlackRock punished 53 companies for, quote, climate inaction. Wow. Climate inaction. What does punished mean? I, I don't I don't know that I want to find out. Yeah, can we find out exactly what the punishment was? Probably some kind of fine or some stern talking to. Did they do like an admonishment thing where they're like, oh, admonish. And I uh, love how the UN doesn't punish North Korea when yeah, they're yeah. launching rockets like the 4th of July. But if a company doesn't do a, you know, uh, use a tree, plant a tree bin, right. they're going to be punished by this powerful corporation. So Daddy Blackrock had them pick a switch from a tree. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty, well, they wrote a stern letter, Stephen. Yes. Signed by all people there. Now, this is to go back to your point. Do you know who else... Uh, uh, BlackRock. BlackRock owns a huge share in Spotify. Oh, what? Spotify. They own 1.37 or about 611 million worth of stock in Spotify. Now, here's the thing. Think about that because everyone talked about how Joe Rogan, all this money, and he's dangerous, right? This is this is everywhere on social media. Joe Rogan's dangerous because he has this money and he's unaccountable. Joe Rogan got, I think it was a $100 million deal with Spotify, but then he also got some stock options. So let's call it anywhere between $150 to $200 something million, right? Yeah. That's still a drop in the bucket compared to $611 million from BlackRock, who also have a conflict of interest because they have ownership stakes in other music production companies. This is something that is very dangerous. Now, if I were Joe Rogan at this point, if they start slapping label, keep in mind, they asked Rogan you know, to remove 40-something episodes, which he did. Keep in mind that Spotify has had problems. Their employees threatened to walk out with Joe Rogan. Multiple and now times. they're issuing these warnings. It, it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility and legally probably defensible if Joe Rogan said, all right, took his ball, and walked. He's the most valuable on-air commodity to Spotify, certainly. And BlackRock, BlackRock thinks they have more sway because $611 million right in shares that they have in, uh, in Spotify. But if Joe Rogan says, okay, I came over here because YouTube was being, you know, they were censoring me too much. The premise was that Spotify would be free and open. They wouldn't bother me and tell me what to say. Now it's becoming too constraining. Now it's too much of a headache. 
I'm gonna walk and go do my own thing somewhere else, sue me. Guess what? Could be breach, and there might not be anything that Spotify can do about it because they have changed the terms. I don't know the exact contract, but I don't think, at least in the court of public opinion, Spotify would be in trouble. You're playing with fire, Spotify. This is the disconnect between the woke companies who pull the strings and the woke people who work in your offices and the people who listen to Spotify. When they right. keep talking about all the money that he has, he's bringing in this money through his entertainment that he's getting a percentage of. Right. That's It's completely legitimate what he's earning. Of course. These people going at them is a completely different narrative and a completely different idea than what he's doing. Yeah, well, I mean, well, Barry Manilow has earned Spotify a pretty penny. And by that, I mean one uh, pretty penny. It was pretty shiny, though. <laughs> he framed it, yeah. It came right out of a loafer. Yeah. yeah the, the punishment, by the way, would have to do with uh, affecting those companies' voting action in the fund. And, and BlackRock is worth $9.46 trillion. $9.46 trillion. Is that assets under management, basically, yeah. for BlackRock? So. Wow. Yeah. That is insane. Ass hats. Well, the good news is Elizabeth Warren, right, the socialist folks, they're looking yeah, out yeah, for yeah. you because they want BlackRock to be too big to fail, which means they can continue acting like this. And when they bankrupt companies or when they have the next crash, you get to bail them out with your tax dollars because yeah. they're too big to fail. Looking out for you. Hey, by the way, as much as I hate them, this show is available on Spotify. So please <laughs> subscribe on Spotify, on Apple. On Android, anywhere that you get your podcasts, because again, if you're not on Rumble, if you're not on Mug Club, you Real quick, before we go into a quick to uh, a little roundtable discussion about this, play uh, in LD in the production room, uh, play one minute of Larry Fink. I've done this a number of times for the town hall, but I want to share this with the GTW community. This comes from John Titus. I'll let you bring that up real quick. And uh, start at the 2.58, 2 minutes, 58 seconds. Because this will give you, they mentioned Larry Fink. Let's do a little bit, see who Larry Fink, what he's into. These videos here. And the first banker here is is Larry Fink. He is the CEO of BlackRock, which has something like nine trillion dollars under management. And here Larry is going to share his vision about what a healthy market is and what it what it likes. Pay attention to this. Uh, uncertainty. Markets don't like uncertainty. Markets like actually totalitarian governments where you have a uh, understanding of what's out there and obviously we're uh, the whole dimension is changing now with uh, as you said a democratization of uh, of countries and and democracies are very messy as we know in the United States uh, you have opinions changing back and forth can't have that people changing their so that's that's a little bit of who Larry Fink is and what he what he believes so i now leave it to uh Brett and Senna, what do you guys think about this? So let's give a, just a couple comments on Joe Rogan, this, the initial apology. And then if we have some time, we're going to get into this clip. It's like a minute long of the word that should not ever be said. And then the po apology afterwards, and we can talk about that. But I wanted to give some context to the crowd or the community that might not be aware of it. You know, this, the, all week, most of the productions are around Joe Rogan's untouchable, you know, Spotify, you're playing with fire, you know, if Joe Rogan gets up and leaves, you're going to lose a tremendous amount of influence and patronage, blah, 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 blah. But then yesterday, a bombshell dropped that is going to change that whole narrative. But this was the original narrative in the beginning of the week. What do you guys think? Joe Rogan should never have apologized for whatever the Neil Young thing was about. So someone like Neil Young, 
and Joni Mitchell. They come up and say, we're going to remove all our music if Joe Rogan doesn't leave this platform. Joe Rogan had no business coming out and apologizing for what he has or hasn't done. And then making up a stupid story about Neil Young and how much he loves him or his music or something like that. It was very unnecessary. He, he put a big crack in his armor right there. And yeah. it just opened up. And then they realized, okay, you know what? We can go from that crack because obviously he's hurt by this. All he had to do was say absolutely nothing and keep doing what he was doing. Yeah, all I'll add to that is like if you're in the ocean, like deep in the ocean, treading water and you start bleeding, find a way to get out of the ocean. Uh, and, and that's pretty much like what Joe Rogan's situation is. And um, he the, the apology is blood in the water. And once there's the smell of blood and the taste of blood, there's a feeding frenzy. And uh, yeah, he he didn't help himself with with his first concession and the second concession that we're going to get to is uh, is far worse. And um, I don't have anything else other than what I, I'm worried is going to be a spectacular ramble about that Crowder clip. Um, there's something like I, I think a really big through line and I don't have a solution. I'm just presenting this kind of as food for thought. There's a through line in that Crowder video uh, just like there is in a lot of Crowder videos. And, and I think there's a lot of good information there too. And I like Crowder. Uh, the, the same is true with Ben Shapiro. But the general through line around the issue of misinformation is that the establishment left, the mainstream left, are hypocrites, right? And it's kind of like, oh, you know, like a comedian interviewing people is misinformation while completely giving a pass to what Colbert does every night. Or Rachel Maddow, as they, they showed there, which, you know... Well, that's it. Yeah, that's the contrast that they're setting up. Like, oh, look, the left are hypocrites. So what I would like to just kind of posit here as, again, food for thought for the people watching this is like how much non-establishment energy and time and attention and effort and talent is poured into this narrative of the left are hypocrites, right? They know they're hypocrites. It's like every day Ben Shapiro goes on his show and it's like, if this is the time I'm going to point out left wing hypocrisy and they're all going to go, oh my God, we're hypocrites. Hypocrisy is a weapon that you can use against people who, you know, don't want to be called hypocrites. So what we wind up in watching that Crowder clip and watching these people like Landau and Crowder who are funny and talented, it's, it's like this. Tim Pool does it too. Tim Pool does it too. And Shapiro, Shapiro does it too. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, yeah. Good. So many people who are, who are libertarians, so many people in the non-establishment left, non-cathedral left space of media creation are spending an enormous amount of time in the creation of memes, in the creation of content, doing this like, can you believe what hypocrites the left are? And, and I've started to refer to this in my private community as the Mario Kart dialectic. <laughs> Where Mario Kart, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is it's a, a great game. It's a racing game. Yeah. And when you get into first place, and so just to attach this to, to the analogy here, culturally, politically, you can disperse from the back of your cart to the people in the race behind you oil slicks and banana peels, and people just spin around in them and you get further ahead. So we first saw this in politics with the left 
within the 21st century, I, maybe it existed in some form when the, when the, there was a bit of a culture war in the 1990s before 9-11. But when a debate would get heated up, there would be this like, OK, stop you conservative or. Oh, no. The tech oh, gods not... cut off. Yeah, you yeah. got cut off there a little bit. You got cut off. So repeat that lesson. Why don't we stop the debate and you prove how you're not a racist? So those are the banana peels, right? The banana okay. peels go out racist. So now I think that this this whole like everybody's spinning their wheels and, and you know, uh, stuck in oil slicks over like it's all hypocrisy. And they know they're hypocrites. We know they're hypocrites. And when are people going to move on and actually start talking about, like, how do we build a better narrative? How do we build a better narrative than what, what they have? Because people like Crowder uh, are creative enough and enjoyable to listen to enough. And people like Shapiro are smart enough. And those are just the conservatives who are against this to actually uh, come up with, and, and it might not be a narrative that we all agree on, but it's a counter narrative other than a reactive narrative, because there's just too much reactivity to what, what the left does. Uh, and again, like, oh, Rogan, that's misinformation, but we totally find what Colbert and, uh, Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel do every night. See, I'm more, I agree hundred percent, but I'm a little bit more concerned about that. And I, I, here, let me state it or frame it in this. First of all, I love your metaphor about the blood and the water. That was fantastic. And then your analogy to Mario Kart, because I love that game growing up. <laughs> but I must say that like I had a diatribe about this two episodes ago. And I, it was in the context of critical race theory. Or no, sorry, critical gender theory. And it was uh, talking about how Sh Shapiro and Crowder and Poole, to some degree, built their audience around this. In other words, like it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where they're caught in this like echo chamber feedback loop of having to placate or pander to an audience that wants to see them do this. And so this is the element of a closed system feedback loop in cybernetics. It's like, okay, this is what got me popular. They like when I comment and critique cultural elements, you know, and it's so easy. I, I, I said it was low hanging fruit, you know, critiquing critical race or gender theory is not very difficult. You can do it. I talked about doing it from a scientific side. I talked about doing it from a philosophical side. I talked about doing it from a psychological side. So I covered three different ways in which you can critique and uh, dismantle those theories. But so it's not difficult, but then it's, but it is easy to, so it's not difficult to do that, but it's also easy to create memes to show how hypocritical they are to your point and to sort of create a facade or a sort of narrative around it that is, dare I say, self-defeating insofar as it's like, okay, so it's low hanging fruit. We're able to tackle this down and we're able to make fun of it. So all of a sudden it becomes a form of weird fucked up entertainment that people then want to engage with every day. And that really bothers me because we're not really moving forward. If anything, we might even be taking a step back by not taking a step at all while they continue to push forward. They is the, the left narrative, the left agenda, you know, this cultural Marxist agenda, whatever one wants to call it. And so I find it to be much more regressive while when they continue to do this, because we're not, you know, James Corbett came out and talked about, we need to create a new narrative and he's trying to find ways and speak with individuals that will help to, um, you know, be a progenitor for how that works. You know, I know Derek Rose talks about this too, but these are, I hate to say it, Corbett and bros, like incredible individuals, especially uh, for my predilection, knowing Corbett, um, and having, uh, paid, you know, patronized his work for so long, incredible appreciation of what he's done, but we don't quite have the platforms 
<laughs> to say the least, even Corbett that a Crowder has that a Shapiro has that God, Tim pool. I mean, look how much he's blown up over the course seven, eight years. And we need those individuals in the alternative sphere that we showcase on this show all the time to take that next step to say, yeah, we're done with that. But I'm, I think they're afraid that if they don't, if they don't continue to pander to or placate the crowd in the ways in which they did it before they built the crowd in the first place, then they're going to start losing viewership. And that says something about the individuals that are viewing that information too often. I think we're appealing to entertainment or appealing to comedy. And maybe this is just like, I enjoy comedy, but it's for me, it's a background enjoyment. Like truth always rises above the need for entertainment, whether it's comedy or some other form of it. And I think sometimes truth is being sacrificed. And the truth of the matter is like, this has been thoroughly debunked from multiple angles, these narratives, these cultural narratives. Now, how do we, to your point, Brett, what's the next step? Because none of those individuals you named are taking a next step. All they're doing is constantly regurgitating and rehashing the same sort of themes on their shows by attacking these low hanging fruits. And that's to me very, I think it's because they don't move forward. They're just standing still. And I feel like it's actually in a way metaphorically moving backwards, but it feels like moving forwards yes. because you're getting growth in your audience. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And that's cybernetics. That's literally cybernetic theory when it comes to how we interact with these sort of echo chambers through a medium, if you will. In this case, the medium is, is a machine interface, but it's really, it's, it's, it makes me a little bit concerned for what, what the future will look like, because if anything, I, you know, are we winning the culture war in that context? Are we winning any war in that context? Like, I don't, you know, it's sort of like, we talked about this last week with vaccines, right? Um, we keep doing these victory laps around like, oh yeah, like, look, you know, the vaccine's not nearly as effective or it has all these side effects or, you know, the CDC now admits you can, or it has admitted for a while that it, you know, they, they can be, uh, the vaccines are leaky and you can, the virus can still be transmitted and it causes some selective pressure and which creates mutants and mutations and mutant escape and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Or like, you know, the truckers get Alberta to, you know, lower some of their restrictions, but you so far Trudeau has not, you know, budged as well as France or Germany or Australia. I mean, Australia is full on board. They're even more each week. It's more crazy and more crazy out of Australia. Yet We take these like victories from the standpoint of facts and science, but that's not extrapolating to the culture. And that's really concerning. Cause like who's winning then? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think the, the people who are reacting are not, obviously. Right. That's right. So, no, no. Let's play real quick. Uh, Sonny, do you have anything to say? Follow up on that before we go? Yeah. Who's winning is media is winning because the more they oh, keep your point. eyes on them, th that's why they always scream, oh, war is coming. This is the weather channel. Weather channel, the only way they can keep your eyes on it is if there's a constant threat. So same thing, the Rachel Maddow uh, program, same thing. If she doesn't scream all the time, then your eyes are not on her. Same thing with uh, even people like um, Crowder. If he's not constantly getting into that high-pitched tone and getting angry at the social events, that's why I really enjoy what we do here or what you've been doing for years here. Um, it's calm and collected. There isn't that 
fear porn factor that's like, yeah, it's coming, going, because that's what's expected. That's what's going to keep you attached to there. And that's what's going to bring more eyes and more money. Well, yeah, they play into a certain caricature. Like Ben Shapiro is the witty, fast talking Jew, super smart, you know, and it's so weird to have this like super rational, super smart, super fast. I talk very fast and here's like all the data and here's all the facts and oh look, you know, I'm this witty, you know, fast talking Jew. And like, and he comments on these TikTok videos and I'm like, what? Like, oh, you know, this, like these insane young leftist girls or boys that are dressing up like crazy, you know, and like bog haired people from, you know, some crazy movie in the eighties or some shit like that. You know, it's why are you doing that? It's low hanging fruit. But then you look at the, the video count is like 500,000 people have viewed it or something. So it's like, what? Because it's, it's, just, it's yeah, outrage yeah. porn. Like fear porn yeah. is kind of giving way to outrage porn. Yeah, there you go. That's And awesome. I, I think w- one of the most elucidating books, it was certainly a controversial and flawed figure who wrote the book, but Matt Taibbi has a book called uh, Hate Incorporated. And th- these are his observations from 20 years, 30, maybe 30 more, 30 plus years inside mainstream media. And talking about, you know, how he was trying to cover the 2008 financial crisis and move these articles to different publications. And nobody wanted them because you couldn't blame one side or the other. You couldn't pit one side against the other. So it wasn't it wasn't newsworthy that that one of the most newsworthy stories of the 21st century was not newsworthy because it did not inspire outrage in one group or the other. And that's that's a minor example. But reading that book. And then watching how the last two years have played out just around COVID, it makes perfect sense how the media has dealt with this situation. So it's all about reactions. It's also just about a certain crafting of a narrative that creates those reactions. So then again, we're, we're part of a psychological test more so than a test in regards to a virus and you know how we would deal with, I guess the, the virus is the progenitor, but then the reaction to that. And the pitting of all these different sides against one another is really the, as I mentioned last week, it says if we're the ones being experimented on, not just physically with the vaccine, these uh, synthetic gene therapies, but then also psychologically. And this has been admitted both by the UK government and by Canadian government that they actually have been testing cywar techniques on a large population, including Canada admitting that the, uh, like over 40 or 50,000 phones are being tracked as well during the crisis to see what people were responding to. It's very disconcerting. Now I know they it's getting did late that during, uh, they did that tracking to uh, stimulus uh, experiment during uh, all the color wars, uh, sorry, color um, revolutions. revolutions. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, you're good. Yep. Wait, say it again. So they did the tracking. Oh, to see yeah, how, to yeah, yeah. See- to see, they were actually tracking hashtags on Twitter uh, to see what was the trigger word to get everyone out onto the streets. I, I watched this happen live in Turkey, in um, Euromaidan in Ukraine. It was, and in um, and before that in Egypt, it was amazing. They, they were using these hashtags to get people to get triggered to go out. And no one would go out. No one would go out. And all of a sudden, some hashtags would come out and people would just flood the streets all at once. It was fascinating. Hmm. So and, there's they, a, and yeah, sorry. Well, there's those linguists that uh, I remember I was taking a speech course in college. They showed a documentary about a linguist. Um, I guess he calls himself a language consultant or something of that factor. But 
in regards to helping uh, potential presidential candidates choose words based on large focus groups. Like they conduct many focus groups and they go over, do you say climate change or do you say, you know, um, some other, uh, I can't think of it off the top of my head, like, uh, or global warming, global warming, like which one has more of an emotional response. And so they actually, I mean, they, they have this measured down as much as they can measure it down based on group responses over the course of large, large population sample sizes in these focus groups to find out what words to use. I mean, it goes so, so deep. I mean, um, the Renaissance capital or that, that data mining, uh, corporation that both Trump and Hillary Clinton used in their last campaign. I mean, the, the Hillary Clinton using those fake accents and different I mean, it's, there's so much subtle, psychologically subversive techniques being employed against the public without them being aware of it. It's uh, unimaginable at the scale in which it's being actually utilized, which is really concerning. And certainly, I mean, they had a playbook with this in the early 2010s. I mean, there's obviously, we know about Solowinsky's Wills for Radicals, but there is another book they were using in 20, which is basically like a repeat of that book, but for more, for more of a technological age, it was like an essay or something like, because I remember Rich and I were researching it. At the time, I forget. I'd have to go back in the Tragedy and Hope archives and find exactly what we're saying about it. But that's a huge portion. It's like what words will get people to actually get out there and do something about it. It's really concerning. Um, before, before you have to go, because I know we already kept you late, let's just play. Let's play the N-word video and then the Joe Rogan apology, and just get a, one or two comments on that, and then we'll let you go if that's okay. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, okay, perfect. Um, obviously, none of us. Well, I'll speak for myself. I'm sure the rest of the panel would agree. Uh, and they can speak up if there's any issue that none of us condone the usage of this word. It is a deplorable, a horrible word and the way, especially it was used in history. And I know it's been appropriated in a different context and, and rap and hip hop culture and black culture in general in America, but that doesn't make it right. Especially when you look at it from a historical context and, you know, um, but unfortunately this is taken the, the clips you're already about to see are taking out of context. I've seen many of these Joe Rogan episodes where he's trying to point an example of how much power words can have over people and how, if we can just let go of the baggage of the past associated with these words, we can move on away from it and just realize they're just words. And sort of, I think it was sort of analogy to the idea of sticks and stones may break, may break one's bones, but names will never hurt me. And so in that regard, it's sort of the idea that like this cancel culture, this woke mob, that Joe Rogan has been critiquing for many years. He's trying to show that like, look, it's because they're associating so much baggage, so much emotional baggage of certain words um, that it, it, you start with the N word and it goes to, it can be extrapolated out to many different words, which we see now how many different offensive words there are so much so that bill C 16 in Canada is the reason why Jordan Peterson is famous because of all the hate speech. Um, and it's becoming a, a, a extremely pernicious and um, ubiquitous issue, not just in our culture, but in the world at large. So um, without further ado, let's go ahead and see this uh, this video. It's going to be uh, watch leftists use N words to try to cancel. I think there's it's in that clip, LD. I think there's a video of him saying it. Or are they? Yeah. The Infowars post here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. There it is. It's that one there. Like, 
you know the nigger thing. Yeah. Saying the word nigger. I well, already said nigger. D is just like nigger. Saying nigger. She's calling you a nigger. It's like this boy that he's a nigger and starts calling them niggers. Word nigger. There should be a word like nigger, especially like the word nigger. That's our nigger. About niggers. He says nigger. Guy a nigger. And then our niggers start saying nigger. How to use the word nigger? Out the word nigger. See nigger. Word nigger. Say nigger, and he couldn't say nigger. And else nigger. Nigger. Uh, let's do the apology, and then we'll come back for commentary, and then we'll move forward from there. The apologies, right? The one right underneath the page six dot com. Yep, you got it. Hello, friends. Um, I'm making this video to talk about the most regretful and shameful thing that I've ever had to talk about publicly. There's a video that's out that's a compilation of me saying the N-word. It's a video that's made of clips taken out of context of me of 12 years of conversations on my podcast, and it's all smushed together, and it looks fucking horrible, even to me. Now, I know that to most people, there's no context where a white person is ever allowed to say that word, never mind publicly on a podcast. And I agree with that now. I haven't said it in years, but for a long time, when I would bring that word up, like if it would come up in conversation and stay, instead of saying the N word, I would just say the word. I thought as long as it was in context, people would understand what I was doing. Like that context was part of the clip we were talking about Red Fox, how Red Fox said that word on television in the 1970s and how times have changed so much since then. Or about how Richard Pryor used it as one of the titles of one of his albums. Or I was quoting a Lenny Bruce bit, or I was quoting a Paul Mooney bit, or a, I was talking about how Quentin Tarantino used it repeatedly in Pulp Fiction, or I was talking about how a Netflix executive, ironically, used it because he was trying to compare it to another offensive word, and he said it out loud, and they fired him, not calling anybody a word, just saying the word out loud. I was also talking about how there's not another word like it in the entire English language because it's a word where only one group of people is allowed to use it. And they can use it in so many different ways. Like if a white person says that word, it's racist and toxic. But a black person can use it and it could be a punchline. It could be a term of endearment. It could be lyrics to a rap song. It could be a positive affirmation. It's a very unusual word. But it's not my word to use. I'm well aware of that now. But for years, I used it in that manner. I never used it to be racist because I'm not racist. But whenever you're in a situation where you have to say, I'm not racist, you fucked up. And I clearly have fucked up. And that's my intention to express myself in this video, to say, there's nothing I can do to take that back. I wish I could. Obviously, that's not possible. I do hope that, if anything, that this can be a teachable moment. Because I never thought it would ever be taken out of context and put in a video like that. And now that it is, holy shit, it looks bad. And it it's part of also me doing this podcast for 
thousands of hours, thousands of episodes over 12 years. I said a lot of fucking stupid shit, which is fine when you're talking about most things, but not when you're talking about race. And there's another clip that I have to address. There's a clip from 11 years ago. I was telling a story in the podcast about how me and my friend Tommy and his girlfriend, we got really high. We were in Philadelphia and we went to go see Planet of the Apes. And we didn't know where we were going. We just got dropped off by a cab and we got dropped off in this all black neighborhood. And I was trying to make the story entertaining. And I said, we got out and it was like we were in Africa. It's like we were in Planet of the Apes. I did not, nor would I ever say that black people are apes, but it sure fucking sounded like that. And I immediately afterwards said, that's a racist thing to say. Planet of the Apes wasn't even in Africa. I was just saying there's a lot of black people there. But then I went on to talk about what a positive experience it was and how much fun it was to go to see this movie in a black neighborhood. It wasn't a racist story, but it sounded terrible. And like I said, you can have clunky stories about anything, but not about race. And so I deleted that whole podcast, but obviously somebody made a clip out of it and taken out of context. It looks terrible, but it looks terrible even in context. It's a fucking idiotic thing to say. And I was just trying to be entertaining. I certainly wasn't trying to be racist. And I certainly would never want to offend someone for entertainment with something as stupid as racism. My hope is that, look, I can't go back in time and change what I've said. I wish I could. Obviously, that's not possible. But I do hope that this can be a teachable moment for anybody that doesn't realize how offensive that word can be coming out of a white person's mouth in context or out of context. My sincere and humble apologies. I wish there was more that I could say, but all of this is just me talking from the bottom of my heart. It makes me sick watching that video, but hopefully at least some of you will accept this and understand where I'm coming from. My apologies and much love. My sincere, deepest apologies and much love. Oh, this is bad. This is worse than I thought it was going to be. Is that the okay. first time you saw it? Yeah. Yeah. It was my first time, so I had not seen this one. That's uh, that's a dude spitting out in somebody's oil slick, for sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. When you when you start talking about something that you did as a teachable moment, uh, that's a bad spot to be in. Now, I, I don't mean to be brazen here, but if I'm Joe Rogan, if I have his resources and I have his cachet, my apology is I'm sorry to the person or group of people who have that much fucking free time in their life to put together a compilation like that. And here's an hour long video, since he also has the resources to hire people to do that of all of those clips that you see and you can decide for yourself. And if I'm not for you, then I'm not for you. Now, when somebody buys you for $200 million, you don't have that freedom anymore. That's right. And, and yeah, like in retrospect, those look like bad choices. Like the world was a very, very different place um, in, in, in pre summer of 2020. 
Like it already seems like like that that's hard to believe. But people using that word in a specific contest, academics do it all the time. It's been said in 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 places I'm very familiar with, you know, in in a way that had no hate behind it, that had no racism behind it. And and the rules have gotten stricter and stricter about the use of that word. But like for him to go into that much um, detail to make a video that long, it should be like, here's the whole context. Judge me however you want. That's that's all the time I'm putting into this. But um, I maybe you guys disagree. But that that's a lot of I know we're mixing metaphors here. It's a lot of blood in the water. And it's a lot of spitting out in an oil slick. And I believe videos like that are in the queue. Like, who knows when that video was made? Like Joe Rogan goes after right. he, he goes after the mainstream media. He goes he goes after the people who sing off the the COVID song sheet. And it's like, well, let's put to, this guy's been talking for twelve years. So let's put together the all the artillery we need ahead of time, and then let's see how he plays. Right. It's one thing to have something like a Graham Hancock or Randall Carlson or even like a Bob Lazar on, right? As they're like out there or Robert Schock or something like that. But then he had on Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough and the left and the mainstream normies went absolutely irate. And so much so that even the White House is suggesting to Spotify that they should cancel certain individuals. And I mean, I'll play that clip after afterwards, but it's just, it caught international attention not just national, but international attention because he's such a popular and well-recognized figure, not just nationally, certainly, but also internationally, especially in English speaking countries. It's, uh, I was always taught you never want to apologize unless there's something legitimate to apologize for. Um, and this, it's a lot of blood in the water because to me, if you, to your point, Brett, if he were to look at the context of the videos and I've alluded to some of the context of those videos, it was not in a, he did not use that word in the context of hate. Mm -hmm. it, it was oftentimes to make a point, oftentimes about cancel culture or the woke mob or this cultural Marxist narrative that was going on and, or, or the critical theory narratives that were going on, uh, and, or to tell a story, uh, in regards to, you know, some sh dumb shit that he and his buddies did from back in the day that he talked about, yeah. but to apologize like that, it's essentially now a wound that can't be healed. And now I'm afraid he's just going to bleed out to the point. Was he above the mark? If he was above the mark earlier this week, I'm not so sure he's above the mark now. Yeah. I mean, they did this to lesser figures like Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos, who I'm not the biggest fan of by any stretch of the imagination, but someone sat on a series of clips from him, ironically from the Joe Rogan ep episodes, if I remember correctly, there's two clips from Joe Rogan, I believe. One in which he's talking about these young children on these yachts at these Hollywood parties. Another one where he's talking about how he's molested, how he was molested from a Catholic priest at the age of 14, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And someone sat on those clips until he started gaining a lot of traction, especially in the alternative sphere. And they, you, they threw it in there at the perfect time. He was at the height of his recognition and boom, he was gone. He's just gone now. Like he does his own thing, but that's only for the small crowd that's fine to entertaining. Um, he was certain, like my dad at one point knew who Milo Yiannopoulos was because like he was like mentioned on Fox news all the time and stuff like that. 
and I'm not, again, I'm not saying I'm not a fan of necessarily Milo. Um, it's just cause he was like a court jester or a troll and it was hard to take him seriously. And as, as, he was trolling almost both sides with what he was doing. That's the way I always looked at him, but it doesn't really matter the way I looked at him. He had a lot of recognition, a lot of cloud, a lot of uh, cachet behind him with the way he was doing his thing, especially at the height of the culture war, which is like 2018, 2019, whenever all that stuff happened. And then boom, they hit him with that clip and he's gone overnight. Yeah. I don't, that won't happen with Rogan. He has too much clout, but he, I, I it, just to continue with the metaphor of, you know, the blood in the water, I'm afraid it's a wound that I said, it just can't be healed at this point. That's my fear. We'll see, but it might be, the gash might be too great. And no matter what, when, what, what ways in which we try to stitch this up, there's always going to be some bleeding from it because not because of the clip, not because of the very, the, the way they edited this deceptively edited clip. It's, it's because of the apology. It's this double entendre apology. The one earlier in the week and the one this week, like you have to stand your ground and know you really didn't do anything wrong, except that maybe you should have reconsidered that. Um, no, even in the context of the times, I don't know if he really did anything necessarily wrong, unless there's a specific clip where he used it hatefully. Right. And that's, and if we're going to talk about not using that word, that should extend then to the black community as well. If we know this is something that Larry Elder talks about, like he doesn't want to hear that word used in the black because like we know about hip hop culture and rap culture, they they've appropriated that word to be a sort of like a, you know, a, a way in which I say bro to someone, Hey bro, how are you doing? You know, it's, 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 it's a whole different context in which they present it. But if we're going to you know, have a sort of ubiquity around the way in which we use this word, you know, but I don't know. I, I agree with both of you. And my issue with that, word in particular is Joe Rogan said something uh, he said not my word to use Yeah. well it starts at not my word to use and then that same thing and some place around well people of a certain pigment pigmentation cannot use this water cooler and racism goes many directions racism is not just uh, you know a white person thing I mean, this is ridiculous. This whole situation is ridiculous. So it becomes and a you're slippery absolutely slope. Right. It yep. becomes a slippery and, slope. Yeah. Yeah. And now that show is done. Fine. He will probably continue because he has a contract and he might have to. And he will, but it will never be the same. He will always censor the conversation. Everything's going to be different. He will not have open-minded conversations anymore. And then it will die out like a fade out song from the 80s so uh, he, he killed himself with the whole uh first apology thing and this was like the kill shot yeah it has a huge chilling effect like just as like a side benefit um it has a huge chilling effect on open conversation so like one of the reasons why rogan is so popular is you see these like really uh unscripted freeform conversations as an antidote to the bullshit that people see on television. I think that's one of the reasons why you have Rogan, who was who's a mainstream enough figure. He has hosted popular network television shows in the past. Right. And he was able to make this transition into this world and have this appeal around this type of conversation that people were hungry for. And now I agree with, uh, you know, both of you said the show will continue. But think about the chilling effect that that has on people like, oh, shit, is somebody going to clip this out of context? What I'm saying right here, 
do I need to be careful? I mean, what, what does that do to the, to the feel and the flow of, of his show going forward? In other words, there and are not ripple. just his show. I'm sorry. Exactly. Cause that it's is going to resonate. Yeah. Yes, totally. Yeah. So the but, entire genre is going to completely fade away. Yeah. Or, or open it'll be, conversation. It won't fade away, but it'll now be very contrived, very formulaic. Um, it won't be what it once was, which is just off the cuff, open conversations. The reason why Joe Rogan got big at the main reason is because he was chilling with his friends in a part of his house, just shooting the shit about crazy stories that happened in his life. Then all of a sudden people are like, Hey, I'd like to come on and talk. Hell of an old colleague of ours. Um, we don't longer work with, he was on the show at one point, very, very early on. You know, it was just, he was talking about all crazy types of crazy stuff, DMT, psychedelics and DMT. Um, he's talking about, you know, uh, his adventures, um, as a comedian on all these different uh, traveling the country. He's talking to people about pyramids and aliens and just all bunch of crazy stuff. And then he's also talking to people that are like, you know, scientists as well. And so he had on just the gamut of individuals that grew and grew and grew and people were starving for the long form conversation, starving for it. And it just, it seemed very organic, but no matter what you want to say about Joe Rogan, it didn't seem like it was some sort of plant. Like he was some sort of figure that the mainstream sort of allowed to do his thing. He just did his thing. And all of a sudden, because of the sort of the, the demand that wasn't well-recognized in the culture for this type of, these types of conversations, he ended up blowing up to this sort of uh, the spectacle that no one really, I don't even think he anticipated that. He certainly didn't anticipate that it would become something like this. And then all of a sudden he's in a position in the culture where he's the main focus of the culture. You know, that's the thing. Like he trumps all main, main mainstream news networks and most alternate, all alternative platforms by many orders of magnitude, by many, many millions and millions of people. Because mm -hmm. most people are looking to, I know, like I, we've showed many of his clips on here, especially uh, for the Spotify deal. And whenever we do, we always have to be careful with YouTube because that gets taken down. But it's, um, you know, it, there was something truly, I guess the point, the essence of it is there was something organic about it. There seemed something real about the conversations as he continued to grow, that never really stopped, you know, then like the, 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 the woke culture situation, he'd have Brett Weinstein on, then you have like a Drew Peterson on, and you have like other individuals that were able to have a conversation around what the hell is going on in the culture. And that's when he started to first get people started to be like, ah, we got to do something about Rogan. That's when I started first started hearing about murmurings a couple years ago before the COVID happened. Rogan's a problem. People started associating him with being, uh, you know, uh, anti-gay, you know, homophobic, -trans, transphobic that one. Yeah, yes. Very, that what really put him on the radar. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of people who are going to watch these videos and go, ah, he shouldn't have dealt with it that way. And about the original content and that mashup clip, like, Ooh, I, you know, if I was a high profile person or if I was anybody, I would have dealt with that a little bit differently, or I would have watched what I would have chosen my words a little bit more carefully. But the real effect of this is that it emboldens the ferocity of the outrage mobs on Twitter and the Spotify employees and all the people on, you know, CNN and The View who are attacking them and maybe in the back of their minds going, oh, geez, we really are just full of shit. I mean, that <laughs> thought must occur to some of the they can't all be 100 percent true believers. You know, especially on CNN, they they must see uh, the deceptive Most trusted people. name and news. Yeah. But just like, <laughs> I mean, like 
there must have been somebody in a in a board meeting going, come on, guys, horse dewormer. We're really going to do this. You know, like they they some there, there must be some conscience in some of these people. And now, uh, you know, you see a video like that. It's almost like, you know, we talked about mind control earlier in the show around, you know, NLP and the the Johns Hopkins things we're going to watch. And it, it, in a movie, was it the Manchurian candidate where there's like a trigger word that mm-hmm. snaps somebody into action? The N word is that right. Yeah. It is that it it, it 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 triggers a kind of irrationality. And, and, and an attack mode where any kind of conscience or logic is, is just like taken out of the equation. So now they produced, I mean, Joe Rogan certainly gets a, a co-producer credit in, in that video. Uh, and that's unfortunate, but now they have that video. So whatever, whatever room for debate there might've been or exploration about the, you know, the good of this versus the potential that like that's over for, for a lot of people now who, who've seen that. Um, you know, there's a lot of people whose minds aren't going to be changed by that. Uh, and they're going to continue to watch and great. I think they should. I, I think it's one of the, you know, the best programs, uh, in all of podcasting and all of alternative media. Uh, I know everybody always wants to claim Rogan as like, he's with us, but he, he's done a very good job of being a platform in his own right. Yeah. He's, he's just Rogan. He's always just been Joe Rogan. He's had on everyone from left, right, and center. And then those that fall way outside that paradigm or those respective paradigms. I like the N-word analogy you used there. That was very apt. Um, you know, but I want to just cycle or circle back, pull a sacky here, circle back and talk about this ripple effect. Because one of the problems here is the long form conversation. People are starving for it. And now I, I use the term formulaic, but it's contrived. But now it seems like it might be very, it's not just, Rogan that's threatened his own conversational manner, open dialogue manner, but now it's going to be extrapolated to every single other podcast that tries that and wants to attempt to gain a reasonable audience. And that's, what's so disconcerting about this on top of the fact that we're still dealing with a COVID-19 narrative, particularly a vaccine narrative that they took him down right after those podcasts, those two respective podcasts of McCullough and Malone um, and, you know, I just very want to say uh, worth just pointing out here in the timeline is like things really got rough for Joe when he took on CNN in such an in such an aggressive way. But and he remember, took them on and kind of won. And that really they're not yeah. going to stop. And like, that is an extremely vindictive culture. Right. Yes. It, it, it's it's a it's a vindictiveness business. Again, back to, you know, uh, Taibbi's book. Like there are people who've come into that industry, who've come into that environment and they don't know any other way of functioning for success than just having this incredibly us versus them, otherizing tribalist vindictive mindset. Right. And that goes all the way up to the guy who just resigned, who yeah, had yeah. a reputation for being like that. Zucker. Zucker, so, Jeff Zucker. you know, that's that's the culture that he decided to take on. And he was, I think, you know, in one way, he was brave to do it. It was important to do it. Um, but I, I, I think maybe it could have come down to a better strategy. And uh, I don't know how you do it, though, because I felt like he took them on about as well as you can take them on. And yeah. so far as he, he just presented them with facts and yeah. asked some very tough questions. He didn't do ad hominems. 
He didn't build strong men. He's just like, you said this about me and it's not true. What do you say about that? And CNN had no reply and millions and millions and millions of people saw that. And their ratings are tanking even worse since then. So it's like there to your point, it's almost like, well, if we're going to be taken down, we'll find a way to take him down with us. And so, that's, yeah. that's the vindictive mentality. Yeah. So I'll, I'll end, I'm, I'm going to take off for the night, but I'll end yep. with some optimism because what other option do we have? You know, <laughs> um, maybe this is a kind of turning point where if somebody can present this timeline and I, you know, I think you guys are doing a great job on grand theft world, obviously, but if someone can present the Joe Rogan timeline leading up to this in like the next two weeks, I think are going to be pretty crucial in the whole Joe Rogan story of like, this is what he did. This is what happened next. This is how he disappeared. Uh, that's it, it. Considering how many people are already on board with Rogan and how many people's interests have been drawn in, like drawn into this story through this controversy. If somebody can show the cause and effect of like, this was the biggest podcast in the world and this is how it was destroyed. Uh, that could, that could be very persuasive and that could potentially, again, I said, this is optimistic. That could be a turning point. And it would also be, have been more effective to send his point into yours and to my, I'm all, we all were in agreement here that he shouldn't have apologized the way he had. If he didn't apologize and someone presented that timeline correctly, oh man, that would have been a fantastic counter, uh, counter attack, if you will. Um, there's also one more thing I want to, before I let you go, the Samuel Rivera production where he does these high quality productions are about an, a minute 30 long. A lot of them have Joe Rogan in them. And the, the most recent one was a, two weeks ago. I think I showed it on the, I had it on the show card and we put it on the show really powerful. And if you haven't checked that out, Brad, check it out. It's a minute 30. And in it, he's talking about how for so long we haven't trusted pharmaceutical companies. And there seems to be a larger plan in regards. I don't know what podcast this was taken from, or is it maybe it was multiple podcasts, but Samuel Rivera puts this together. He's a filmographer and an editor and a production, uh, a producer. And uh, he puts this montage together with his powerful music and all these overlaid graphics. And there's a certain pace to it. And it just captures you super powerful. You know, they, it's not like it was huge, but it made me think he's not just taking on CNN, he's taking on something much larger than CNN. You know, before COVID-19, he had like people like Peter Hotez on, you know, uh, a major uh, uh, pusher for the like vaccines and whatnot. And a couple other individuals that were very pro vaccine. And then this happens and all of a sudden he's going against the vaccine and also promoting a drug that's generic and then calling out those news networks that are trying to slander or libel him, depending on context, those potential therapeutics he used in order to get better. And then having people like, it wasn't just McCullough and Maloney also had Pierre Corey, and uh, I think a couple other individuals regard in regards to like early treatment options. And so he's actually taking on someone that's, or a something that's much, much larger um, than the medical like establishment, if you will. And that's, I think we need to contextualize it in that as well. It's not just CNN. That's part of like one of the sort of um, industrial complexes, let's call them. You have the medical, you have the military and you have the media. He's mm -hmm. taking on really two industrial complexes and that's kudos to him. He won the initial battles, but I'm not sure he's going to win the war. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope he does and it's not over yet, but this was, this was a bad week for him. It was a bad week. Yeah. But I, again, optimism, the only option, everyone I'm Brett. Good night. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Tony. This was great and said it was very nice to meet you and interact with you. This is always likewise. Uh,
Likewise. A real pleasure. And I I look forward to any opportunity to do this in the future. You're always welcome, Uh, Brad, a good friend of mine. I love having these conversations and dialogue with you. And anytime uh, you have the opportunity and don't mind staying up a little late. I know we kept you about an hour later than you wanted to, but conversation was so riveting. How could you deny it? So, Absolutely. So I just say my (laughs) website is schoolsucksproject.com. And last week I mentioned schoolsucksproject.com slash gato. I would really love, uh, you know, if 10 million more people knew who John Taylor Gatto was, we might be in a very different situation in this country today. So uh, the most popular video is the one you guys all worked on, uh, the ultimate history lesson. And it's I think it's got maybe a little more than half a million views. Uh, So if we could get his name out to more people, his story, his work, his research, uh, that would be a, a great accomplishment for me. So I would ask people to go there and check out some of them. You were talking about doing a project. I know I'm going to let you go, I promise, but might be something to consider following up on later on. But the way we consume media today, um, 15, 20 minute clips might be worthwhile to go back through and maybe take 15, 20 minute clips and just the the most hard hitting clips, get people interested, get them in the door. And then maybe they'll be willing to look at that five hour journey of history and also your productions around around Gatto and, you know, I mentioned the American way, this American, the American way, I believe it was called, which I personally was just both rich and I found to be a a work of art. Well, thank Uh, you. And mm -hmm. when I started that Gatto video project, it's just a playlist on my YouTube channel uh, called the underground history of American education. It was meant to drive people to uh, the, the tragedy and hope production, the, the ultimate history lesson. I appreciate it. It's five hours long. Um, and I was just making four or five minute clips from the underground history of American education, Gatto's book from about 22, 23 years ago. Um, that is, uh, such a, such a powerful work on the history of not just education, but a lot of these, um, these established interests, these, these, uh, these cartels, these, what, what did you call them in terms of these industrial complexes, industrial complexes, uh, Gatto takes them all on in this book as they existed at, the it's time. almost like we need to maybe get together. You, me, maybe Richard and some other individuals and review what we haven't really done in the last 10 years. Cause like that has been put aside for so much other research. And then this COVID narrative. And before then it was the woke culture I feel, I almost feel like we're, we might want to consider as if that's something we can work into our schedules, like reviewing that once again, because it's been quite a while. Yeah. Uh, and I'm already working on it in the background oh, with my extra time. So I would love to do that. Uh, but for now, I'll say good night. Thank you again. And I look forward to talking to everybody again soon. Have a great Bye, night, Brett. Brett. Thanks again for joining. Bye, everybody. Take care. Uh, Senna, I wanted to throw it to you because you know, we didn't get really, did you have any follow up uh, comments or? Anything to say yeah. about yeah? What I'm seeing, because my perspective is not because I like Joe Rogan or anything, I couldn't care less. My uh, my focus is more on um, the hive mind that's been created with the uh, so right. aptly put by Brett. He called them the outrage mob, but they are a hive mind, and they have trigger words or trigger events. So you throw at them something that has to do with a sexual deviance and they go crazy and you throw at them uh, the Voldemort word and they all go crazy and they take down an entire uh, person's entire life down just for one mistake that was made. Uh, That video that we watched, the um, compilation video, was not made last night. That took time. 
even if you use an AI algorithm and pick out all the, uh, you know, episodes where he uses that word, it would take hours. I'm not very familiar with video editing, but I'm doing, I do photo editing and it takes hours to do uh, work that, uh, that well edited. So this is a hit, this is a hit job. Yeah. They sat on this they, too. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they sat waited. On this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, look, I've been to plenty of comedy clubs in New York City, and my God, the stuff that comedians say in those little rooms, uh, I mean, it's hilarious, but you cannot say them outside. Right. And he was doing the same thing with his own friends. I, I don't see anything that has to do with race here. I don't think he had to apologize, and I really like Brett's idea of doing a Rogan timeline just to show the hypocrisy and the disgustingness of what is being done to free speech, because that's where it boils down to. This isn't about one man. This is about taking down an entire idea of having people have open conversation, being able to say whatever they want to say. And that's being completely taken away because they will tear you down. Correct. That's very well said. And the fact that they, it's, it's not a far stretch to say that they were sitting on something like this is waiting for the perfect time. And it's not just the woke mom that's after them. They're using the context of the woke mom, but I just can't help but wonder, you know, the timeline of the fact that McCullough and Malone, the fact that he went after CNN and he's also very critical on his podcast of pharmaceutical companies. I mean, he's he's really attacking some very powerful entities um, with you use asking questions big yeah. by using free speech. Right. By all he did was ask questions. Yep. That's all he did. I mean, asking questions and trying to seek answers and in, in, in that process, he was able to show people like Dr. Rhonda Patrick or Dr. Sanjay Gupta and these other individuals that are pro-vaccine, like, hey, look, I'm looking at the CDC website and there's a lot of contradictions to what you're saying and bring that up on a show that millions of people are seeing. This is really problematic. This is really problem. Not even Fox News does something like that. Sometimes Tucker's monologue or Laura Ingram will have some monologues that will touch on some of this, but that's 10 minutes. Joe Rogan does it for three hours. It's a whole different, whole different time frame. Plus, on top of that, millions and millions more watch Rogan. Yeah. Um, and in it's... the meantime, something mm-hmm. very strange happened. Um, I saw this on Twitter this morning. The CEO of Regeneron. Regeneron is the um, uh, monoclonal antibody uh, drug. The CEO of um, Regeneron declared that his company will not have a revenue for this quarter because um, his drug was not found to be uh, effective against the Omicron variant. Now that sounds ridiculous because this came exactly at the same time as the uh, declaration of the Pfizer's new drug will be available everywhere all at once. These two um, news items came one after another. So that man is being bought out as well. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't he just pull out his drug that actually worked all this time globally just at the same time when Pfizer declared that their drug will be available everywhere? 
Yeah, the contemporaneous action around it is very troubling and sort of portends to what that could have meant, like what was going on behind closed doors. Now, the argument for Casarimavab, which is the actual name of the drug Regeneron, um, this monoclonal antibodies, is that it targets a specific genetic sequence of the spike, part of the spike protein that is mutatable, that can, that is subject to mutations and that the Omicron has mutated too many times for it to be useful. So I'll give them, let's just say for now, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say, that's true. There is this other issue of called Sotrimabab, which is another monoclonal antibody, which I don't know if it's coming from the same company or not, but I'd be really curious because that targets a portion of the spike protein that doesn't, isn't subjected to mutations in the same way. So for them to pull the EUA on both of them, which I'm pretty sure, but I'll have to research, but I'm pretty sure they pulled the EUA on both of them, not just Regeneron, but also Sotrimabab, is really troubling and concerning. And it's amazing that they even allowed the EUA to exist for these treatments to begin with, um, especially during the Delta outbreak, which is much probably the worst of all the variants because that was actually affecting younger people and causing younger people to be hospitalized with COVID induced pneumonia and those sorts of things. The fact also that the government was controlling the supply early, early on, especially once Texas and Florida decided to open up their own clinics. And I think subsidize those clinics to help individuals be able to have access to them because they are, these treatments are expensive for people who aren't aware. They're like, a thousand or 2000 bucks or something like that. I mean, they're, they're expensive treatments if you have the means to get them. And I think Florida and Texas did everything possible to make sure as many people could get them as possible. Then all of a sudden the government starts controlling the supply. Now, Bill Gates and his letters about 2022, about the future or whatever, talked about this supply chain issue with monoclonal antibodies, but there is no supply chain issue. The supply chain issue is directly due to the government controlling the supply. Like the supply and demand was fine. The ability to produce them, in other words, and get them out to facilities was there if they let the free market do what the free market does. But of course, they had to bootstrap the free market and make sure that that didn't happen in the same capacity. Then driving up the costs, creating an artificial shortage, all these sorts of problems. Um, now, if it is true that Kazarimabab or Regeneron does not work for Omicron, I want to know what happened to Sotrimabab. That's the one I'm really, cause that one I'm pretty sure should be working, uh, and works more universally and isn't as affected by the variants. And I'm curious to see if those companies or that company you mentioned has any sort of access to, or produces that same sort of monoclonal antibody. That's the, that's the hardest hitting monoclonal antibody as well. That's the one McCullough would refer to as like, um, Regeneron is like, you're, you're good. It works in most contexts, but when you're really sick, and you really need like a home run, you go to Sotrimabab. And uh, that's something we'll need to follow up on. Now, there's also the issue you brought up too, Senna, that they could... I, I also need to see the evidence. Is it really true that it doesn't work for Omicron? I mean, I'm just trying to play... I'm not even trying to play devil's advocate. I'm just trying to say, even if their argument is correct about Regeneron, it doesn't make sense in the context of all the other available monoclonal antibodies namely Sotrimabab. And there's also another one scientists targeted that hasn't been developed yet, but could be used in development that would be essentially similar in regards it's not affected by mutation, but they're not taking it to production levels yet. A lot of problems, a lot of issues around. It seems like it would have been the best therapeutic they could have gotten out there. If you really think about it, ivermectin is only about 65% 
effective, assuming that there's those 30 randomized control trials are correct. And for horses or for people, for people <laughs> and lice, nice try, nice try. That's a hundred percent effective for horses. Wink, wink. Good. <laughs> but, it, but really think if we think about that, that's a, like now that I'm thinking about it, the monoclonal antibodies might've been the best single treatment therapeutic that was available. And that's the one they allowed, but kept quiet and also made difficult to get to a certain extent. I mean, most states were sequestering them based on some were do like some parts of Texas around Austin is based on your skin color and New York. It was based on like skin color, or, you know, in other, other states because of the supply it had to do with age and attrition. Like I know uh, family members can only get it if it was above the age of 65 and you had at least one comorbidity. I think that was here, the criteria. Yeah, I, I'm in New Jersey, and that's exactly what they did here. And there was no supply and demand issue that was artificially created. Correct. There was no issue with that because th this is not a new medication. Right. This has been around for other... Uh, it's been a therapeutic for other reasons before. Decades. So this is not invented last year. No. Therefore, there was never a shortage of anything and they keep creating these shortages to make us think something else is going on. Correct. Right. I mean, it's in, in combination too, you can take something like a monoclonal antibody and ivermectin and vitamin D and NAC and all these other things like Rogan take took, and you're not going to have any sort of contraindications. There's not going to be some sort of devastating effect of mixing various medications and therapeutics together, nutraceuticals and so forth. So it's very safe. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. In fact, people who have comorbidities, unless you have a very specific condition, monoclonal antibodies are extremely safe. Same with ivermectin. So to at least not try them um, is criminal, in my opinion. So, uh, but I do want to follow up on that because I'm curious whatever happened to Sotrimavab as well. They pulled it on that one too. And I'm, all of it's just very, it begs the question. So what I want to do is if you have time, I'd like to do one more video with you, if that's okay. Um, Absolutely. Okay. I want to go over this Ukraine one or two videos, but one in particular, we're going to watch this Tucker video. Um, this is the state department being, uh, doing, being duplicitous and hypocritical and doing what the state department does, you know, acting baffled and like, no, we didn't say such things. And then we can get into a little bit of what the hell is going on on the ground in the Ukraine. And so LD, if you can, it's going to be, I'll highlight it here for you. It's going to be the Tucker Carlson, Tucker Republicans and Democrats. I hope this is the correct one. I'll let you know as you start playing it are hysterical about this, both Republicans and Democrats, which is interesting. Why are they both hysterical about what the state department had to say? So let's go ahead and get into that clip and then we'll come back with some commentary and try to bring some more context around what the hell is going on in the Ukraine. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. There aren't a lot of amazing stories left in the New York Times. They're also predictable and self-righteous, but if you read the paper yesterday, you did see one. U.S. exposes what it says is Russian effort to fabricate pretext for invasion. That was the headline. The story explained that at some point very soon, Vladimir Putin plans to stage a fake military attack on his own citizens. Putin will use actors to portray Ukrainian soldiers and intel operatives committing atrocities against Russians. Then he's going to videotape the whole thing and secretly release it to the world. 
When people in the West see the clips of that on Facebook, they'll understand why Putin was justified in invading Ukraine. So it's a PSYOP. That was the claim, pretty diabolical. But you may be wondering, how exactly do we know that Vladimir Putin is actually planning to do something like this? Because in real life, the global intelligence world is a very complicated place. People in it rarely tell straightforward truths. So actually, if you were devising propaganda for the Ukrainian government, this might be exactly the kind of story you would place in the New York Times, which of course is compliant, they're on your side. A story like this would give you a way to plausibly deny attacking Russian citizens. Is that what happened here? Well, we don't know. We have no idea if the New York Times account is true or not. Then again, neither does the New York Times. Right in the story, the paper conceded that the Biden officials, quote, would not release any direct evidence of the Russian plan or specify how they learned of it, saying to do so would compromise their sources and methods. Oh, their sources and methods. Those must be the same sources and methods the CIA is protecting by continuing to hide thousands of documents from 9-11 two decades ago or from the Kennedy assassination almost 60 years ago. Sources and methods. If you live in Washington, you recognize, recognize that as the all-purpose justification for everything. State Department spokesman Ned Price knows exactly how this works because Price began his career at the CIA. Watch Ned Price at the briefing yesterday. We have previously noted our strong concerns regarding Russian disinformation and the likelihood that Moscow might create, seek to create, a false flag operation to initiate military activity. Now, we can say that the United States has information that Russia is planning to stage fabricated attacks by Ukrainian military or intelligence forces as a pretext for a further invasion of Ukraine. Wait a second, Ned Price, what was that? A false flag operation, really? That's a jarring term to hear from a Joe Biden employee, much less an official, because until yesterday, we were under the impression that false flag operations didn't exist. And the extent they did exist, it was only within the diseased imaginations of conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones and his minions in QAnon. That's what they told us. But now they're telling us that false flag operations are entirely real, except they never happen here never in the United States, never in Washington, only in Russia. Okay, we'll let that digest for a minute. CIA veteran Ned Price assures us it's true. Now, normally that would have been the end of it. Reporters would have scurried back to their cubicles to write their breathless little stories about Vladimir Putin's latest false flag operation. And by and large, that's exactly what did happen. The stenographers wrote Ned Price's story. But one of them didn't. That man's name is Matt Lee. He's a State Department reporter for the Associated Press. We know nothing about Matt Lee other than he appears to be a middle-aged man who's been around long enough to ask a skeptical follow-up question or two. And in Washington, that makes him virtually unique. Lee noticed that Ned Price hadn't actually said anything that could be checked or even described in meaningful detail. So Lee asked, hey, Ned Price, what exactly are you talking about? Here's the exchange that followed. Okay, well, that's a, quite a mouthful there. Um so you said actions such as these suggest otherwise, suggest meaning they, they suggest they're not interested in talks and they're going to go ahead with some kind of a, what action are you talking about? One, the actions I've just pointed to. Uh, the what fact, action? What? The, the fact that Russia continues to engage uh, in disinformation well, uh, campaigns. You know, you've made an allegation that they might do that. Have they actually done it? 
Uh, what we know, Matt, is what we what I have just said that they have engaged in this activity, well, uh, in this planning activity. But, but let me let me because because obviously this is not this is not the first time we've made uh, these reports public. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hold on a second. What are you talking about? That was the question, and it's a good question. You wish you heard it more in official briefings. In fact, you wish you heard it more in everyday life in this country. It's usually the essential question and the first step toward finding out what the truth is. Ned Price, of course, didn't want to answer that question, but Lee kept pressing him. Why didn't Matt Lee just take Ned Price's word for it like everybody else? Well, maybe because this is the very same Ned Price who has a documented history of lying to reporters in the briefing room. Here's Ned Price promising that Kabul would not fall to the Taliban not long before it did fall to the Taliban. The president, from the day he uh, announced that the U.S. military would be uh, withdrawing, uh, except for uh, the troops necessary to protect our diplomatic compounds, was very clear that uh, we have partnered with the Afghan people and with the Afghan government over the course of some 20 years now. Uh, that partnership uh, would not diminish in any way uh, with the withdrawal, with the military uh, withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan. Uh, again, uh, we retain a diplomatic compound in Kabul. Um, that uh, is what we uh, intend to retain going forward. <laughs> Settle down, reporters. Our partnership with the Afghan government will not diminish in any way with the military withdrawal from Afghanistan. Quote, so days after Ned Price said that, the Biden-backed president of Afghanistan threw millions of U.S. dollars into a duffel bag and fled to the UAE in a private plane. So actually, the partnership did diminish pretty quickly, in fact. Matt Lee has been around long enough to remember that. He probably also remembers the time that Colin Powell promised the country there were no WMD. There were WMD in Iraq when there weren't. Probably remembers the time Hillary Clinton claimed our ambassador in Benghazi was murdered over an Islamophobic YouTube video. He may remember those two separate occasions not so long ago when the entire foreign policy establishment in Washington assured us that evil Bashar al-Assad had gassed his own people with poison gas and deserved to be bombed, but at the same time forgot to show us any evidence that it actually happened. We're still waiting on that evidence, by the way. Matt Lee appears to remember stuff like that, and he mentioned it yesterday. Ned, I've been doing this for a I long time. I know, that time. was my point. As, you, you, as have, you, know. you, you have been doing this for quite a while. You know I that have. when we declassify intelligence That's information, right. and I we do so in a means, we do so, we do so with an eye to that, protecting that sources and methods. not going to fall. I, I remember a lot of things. So where, where, where is the declassified information other than you coming out here and saying? <laughs> Best question ever. Where is the declassified information other than you coming out here and saying it? How thrilling to watch someone ask something so simple. Imagine if the entire press corps behaved like that. We might have a decent government. Ned Price, for his part, seemed completely unprepared for any of this and highly annoyed by it. Nothing in his CIA training had suggested he might encounter disobedient reporters in the briefing room at the State Department. So he stuck with what he had, which was, I said it, therefore it's true. Here he is. We told you a few weeks ago that we have information indicating Russia also has already prepositioned a group of operatives to conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine. So that, Matt, to your question, is an action that Russia has already well, taken. It's an action that you say that they have taken, but you have shown no evidence to, 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 to confirm that. 
So it went on and on like this for minutes. We're not going to play you the whole thing. If you really want to dislike your government, you can look it up for yourself online. We can tell you that Ned Price's superciliousness gets more nauseating as it goes on. It does make you wonder about the CIA. Do they hire people this oily on purpose? Where do they find them? Well, the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, of course. We'll play just one more portion of this exchange in which Matt Lee flips the usual script and accuses Ned Price of sounding like a crazed conspiracy nut. It's beautiful. Watch. What is the evidence that they play? I mean, this is like crisis actors, really. This is like Alex Jones territory you're getting into now. Um, what evidence do you have to support the idea that there is some propaganda film in the, in, in the making? Matt, this is derived uh, from information known to the U.S. government, intelligence information that we have declassified. I think you well, know. Okay, well, where, where is it? Where, where is this information? It is intelligence information that we have declassified. Well, where is it? Where is the declassified information? I just delivered it. No, you made a series of allegations. <laughs> One correction. Alex Jones lies far less and is far more credible than Ned Price is. But you see the point. Ned Price lost that exchange. He claimed to have information that he did not have, and Matt Lee persistently called him out on it. So Ned Price just ran out of BS. The BS barrel was empty. So what did he do then? What did Ned Price do then? You know the answer. Ned Price did what they all do when they're cornered. He went right to the lowest personal attack. He didn't call Matt Lee racist. He's probably saving that for next week. But he did suggest that Matt Lee is more sympathetic to Russia than he is to his own country, the United States. He implied that Matt Lee is a shill for Vladimir Putin. Watch. If you doubt the, the credibility of the U.S. government, of the British government, uh, of other governments, and want to uh, you know, find uh, solace and in information that uh, the solace? Russians are putting out, uh, that is, uh, <laughs> that is for to, you to do. I'm not asking what, what the Russian government is putting out. And, and what, John, do you, what is this supposed to be? So if you're on Russia's side, now in an earlier age, this is the point where Matt Lee would have vaulted the podium and punched Ned Price right in the face. There was a time in this country when calling a man disloyal was a grave and serious charge. You could not let that stand. That's not true anymore. We're so used to it now. We hear it constantly. On Wednesday, two days ago, during a closed-door briefing in Congress on Russia, Jim Cooper of Tennessee, a Democrat, asked an intelligence briefer to find out if this show is tied to Russia. We're not tied to Russia, of course. It's a cable television program. We're not a diplomatic mission. Jim Cooper, needless to say, knows that. But that's not the point. The point is we've criticized the Biden administration's Ukraine policy. So in retaliation for that, Jim Cooper has asked the intel agencies to dig up dirt on us. To be clear, that's not allowed. It's illegal. It is illegal to use the U.S. government to settle partisan scores or to silence opposition journalists. It is also, by the way, illegal to secretly monitor their electronic communications. But Joe Biden's NSA did that to this show this summer. That happened. We're not speculating about it. The NSA admitted it, and Congressman Cooper admitted what he did today when we asked him, though he was too cowardly to come on the show tonight to explain how he could justify that. This is scary behavior. It's also revealing. After a full year of governing, all the Biden administration can muster when challenged are ad hominem attacks and more spying from the intel agencies. Let's put the intel agencies on them. What they can't do is explain themselves. They don't even try. That's not a sign of strength. It's a sign of rot. It's a sign of weakness. And yet they're doing it and they're getting away with it. How are they getting away with it? Very simple. They're getting away with it because Republicans are allowing them 
to get away with it. Screaming about Russia, even as we ignore China, is now a bipartisan effort. You remember Russiagate, you thought Republicans would never fall for that again? No, they internalized the whole thing. They now believe that Russia is our greatest enemy. They're the existential threat, all eyes on Putin. They could stop this tomorrow. If Mitch McConnell criticized the buildup to war with Putin, it would end immediately. If five Republicans in the United States Senate held a press conference tomorrow to declare that the territorial integrity of the United States is more important than the territorial integrity of Ukraine, this couldn't continue. The lunacy would end. But they're not doing that. Instead, Republicans are every bit as hysterical about Russia as Adam Schiff ever was. Watch. So we do need to go ahead and impose sanctions on Russia now. We need to show them that we mean business and we will be there for Ukraine. Do you think President Joe Biden should send U.S. troops to Eastern Europe? Without delay. It appears to me the administration is moving in the right direction. There needs to be clear consequences for what they do because we failed to deter and now you're inviting conflict. It's a, it's a, it's a very bad situation and we've, and we've left ourselves without many options as a result. I don't think we're providing the deterrence necessary to stop Putin from invading Ukraine. As Putin tries to dismantle NATO and divide NATO, I support President Biden's decision to send more troops in to reinforce NATO. So Lindsey Graham just admits that I'm on Biden's side, but most of them are too clever to do that. They are doing something that you may not notice at first. They're attacking Joe Biden for being weak. His weakness is inviting aggression. And on the basis of that, they are in fact agreeing with Biden and supporting his Russia policy. Got that? We're against Biden. That's why we're backing him up in his Russia policy. Pretty clever. Is that what Republican voters want? Let's see. If you ask them, they'd probably say, well, why don't we send as much military equipment to the Texas border as we've sent to the Russian border? If someone said that out loud, then maybe the entire country could assess how grotesque Washington's priorities are. Speaking of grotesque priorities, Senator John Cornyn represents Texas, has for a long time. Texas is a state that's had well over a million foreign nationals pour into it illegally over the last year, right over the border. That's a far bigger invasion than anything Vladimir Putin is planning in Ukraine. And yet when John Cornyn talks about border security, he's not talking about his own state or even his own country. He's talking about Ukrainian border security. Watch. Make no mistake, an attack on Ukraine is also an attack on America's global security interests and on world peace and could have cascading consequences that right now are too horrible to contemplate. This is an existential threat to our leadership in the world and to the global order we underwrite and to our way of life and the way of life of freedom-loving democracies around the world. Freedom-loving democracies around the world. Now, these are people who sit in committee meetings, often with closed doors. What are they doing? Well, they're apparently sick in the intel agencies and anyone who criticizes them. But are they getting unfiltered information from those intel agencies? Are they making wise decisions on the basis of it? Do they have any idea what they're talking about, including the man you just saw? No, of course not. They cloak their ignorance in the usual cliches, freedom-loving democracies like Ukraine. But the truth is, their interests their beliefs are so far out of alignment with the interests and beliefs of the average person in this country, including their own voters, that once that is exposed to light, they're in trouble. Last point, 
This is only happening because there is no credible opposition to it in the Congress. Hey, Sean Hannity here. Hey, click here. To well, it's quite interesting. I did not know all that context. I didn't get the chance to follow up with that. Um, lot to unpack there. Uh, first of all, I just want to state for the record what Ned Price was engaging in there is um, petitio principi. It means begging the question, and the particular modality is uh, restatement. He's just restating his conclusion and the premise, and the premise and the conclusion. And so he's just constantly talking in circles. While you know we we have credible information that they're going to stage a false flag. Therefore they're going to stage a false flag. And he's like, well, what's that credible information? Well, I said, well, we had credible information. Therefore it's a false flag. And he keeps restating himself over and over and over again. And, um, uh, I forget the individual's name that was questioning him, but he, you know, was sort of pointing that out. It's like, well, you haven't given us any information. And then he, then he finally, when pressed enough said, well, you know, we can't give that type of information because of classification. Uh, yeah. Okay. And it's like, well, you know, I remember WMDs. I remember Benghazi. I remember Cabal. Uh, and I'm, you know, what's, or Kabul, excuse me. So, you know, what's going on here you got, you got to give us something, something that's declassified to go on and you're not, you're just stating it and not giving us any evidence. And this is one of the problems I talk about in regards to using fallacious rhetoric. They don't have any, they're trying to create a narrative. It's all about narrative crafting here. And uh, Sen, I want to get your thoughts on some of some of what was going on there. You're on mute. No, you're good. Perfect. So yeah. Ned Price is fantastic. He goes, well, we told you a few weeks ago. That's his answer. And the man's name is Matt because he repeated it, I think, 50 times between <laughs> sentences. He goes, Matt, we told you. Yeah, Matt. Matt we told you. Yeah. So then he goes, we declassified it. And then Matt asks, well, where is the declassified document? And Ned goes, I'm delivering it to you now. That's not how things work in like This isn't how diplomacy works. I'm giving you the information now. It's declassified by me just stating, I'm not giving you any document. I'm not giving you any evidence yeah, that you can follow that, up on. That's not declassification. That's just shut up, sit down. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. And he's constantly trying to get away with it by just talking in circles, restating the point. It's like, well, I'm declassifying it by stating that they're going to do a false flag. Therefore, that gives us um, sort of a cast belly to at least, if not go to war, ramp up the potential for going to war. So it's um, and sort of intensify that. I also found it interesting. What do you think about the, um, the, the lockstep? of both Democrats and Republicans in regards to this narrative. Uh, that's called a Lockheed Martin uh, contract. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I just checked it. That's what it said here on my paper. <laughs> and we can trust that paper, right? Yeah, because, because I just told you. I just declassified it for ah. you, Tony. I, yeah, I that, can that, totally this is how we're that. going to debrief from now on, yeah. So it's very funny that they're saying Putin is going to take, uh, you know, fake a military action. Well, in the meantime, I'm watching the news last night and Ukraine is uh, training civilians with cardboard rifles. And they are creating their own narrative as well. So nobody's innocent here. Sure. Except for the innocent people who are going to get hurt. 
I think about 50,000 or so people already died in this nonsense that's been going on since 2014 in the current rendition, because this goes back a couple hundred years. Yeah, do you remember the storming of the Capitol where all those individuals are being killed? Uh, that was back in that, like 2014 or something like that. That was yeah. 2013 to 2013. 2013. Okay. That mm -hmm. was the uh, Euromaidan events. And uh, that was a fully Soros-funded color revolution event, just the same. So... Also I want to see if I yeah. can find the video of that because it's crazy what happened with that. And they killed 98 people that day or 100 people that day. And the president of Ukraine had to flee the country because his life was in danger. And he's a he was a, uh, you know, he, he was a coward. All the same. Yep. Yep. I'm just thinking. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's exactly right. It's Ukraine itself is a very corrupt um, country and in, in, in its own right. And, you know, it was interesting. Jimmy Dore pointed out some stuff. I had this on the show card a couple of weeks, but I tried desperately to play it, but it was like a week or two before Rich left for Florida. We just didn't get time on it or have enough time to get to it. He pointed out that we're funding like radical sort of identitarian groups. So it would be like fascist. When you say we like the United States, United States, is, the West, yeah, okay. is, the West, okay. the West is funding, particularly okay. the United States. In fact, I think specifically the United States, maybe with help with Mossad NATO. or MI6. NATO is, is it NATO? NATO countries are, well, of course, okay. the United States, the United States is, is the that. heavy, right? Yeah, yeah. of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Big, heavy. Absolutely. Cause but you can see, time, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. You can, well, I just want to, I don't want to follow up on this. He showed multiple pictures of these militant groups in the Ukraine with the Nazis, Nazi swastika on it, and obviously well armed, and uh, very much in, um, in support of a sort of free Ukraine, but very much also with this sort of pernicious right form of identity politics being played out. Um, we talk about the left form all the time because that's what's happening in our country or in the country we reside in right now, but in Europe, you know, this this just to me. I just kept thinking Brzezinski, 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 because I'm like, this model has been done now for 40 years. Actually, more than that. This goes back to the 70s. So it would have been like almost 50 years of, you know, yes, like Kissinger sort of came up with the general conceptual idea of limited warfare. But Brzezinski took it, brought it to action insofar as like forming and arming militant groups, even, even going so far as to provide them with a specific ideology. We did that with the Mujahideen actually providing some of their own ideology, regurgitating or recapitulating in our, in a different sort of context and framework ideas of Islam, which are way outside the context of Islam. Um, and that's something we could, I could do a whole deep dive into and someday I will, because it is fascinating what we did, including pr printing some of the material in America and sending it to the Mujahideen in order to radicalize them even more. Uh, this is happening in the Ukraine. It's just happening under the uh, sort of the auspiciousness, there sort of the auspiciousness or sort of the cloak, if you will, the smoke and mirrors of identity politics that they identify with being a Ukrainian, that it's sort of an identity movement of Ukraine. I have a Ukrainian friend that was speaking to you about the other night, and he talks about this. And it, I couldn't help but notice as I was regurgitating what he was saying to you, you were like, this sounds like propaganda. And I'm like, you know what? God, it really does. It like really, really does. And it just, uh, it makes me wonder because they've, this fomenting uh, conflict in the Ukraine is really nothing new. 
So why, why all of a sudden is the, this myopic focus on it now? Well, for one thing, this mm-hmm. isn't now. We're paying attention to it now. This, is, this didn't start last week or last month. Right, right, exactly. The, the current rendition of the events that we're experiencing or watching from afar have been happening since 2013, but this is the very current rendition. So this goes back a lot of centuries. If we have a couple of minutes, I'll give you a very short briefing. On, yeah, please do. Yeah. And this is a completely outsider's view. If I, uh, you know, if I have no political involvement in any party, any country, or anything like that, and I'm always about the people because I always feel for the people because we do nothing to deserve any of this. And everything that's done to us is brought on to us by armies and generals and or ruling parties, and we have no power over any of it. So that being said, say something like in the 800s, I think in sometime between late 800s to the year 1130 or something like that, there was only one Russia. And they were under Moskovskaya. And the center was Kiev, what we know now as Ukraine. Ukraine, correct. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, so for 300 years, it was almost, this, 250 yeah. years or so. Okay. Yeah. So they are one country. And um, there is this very in- interesting uh, map of Europe sometime from 400 BC to now. Is that the map you the showed me changing. earlier? Yes. Let me see if I can the bring ever that changing. Up. But please turn the volume off on that. Okay. There's a very obnoxious music in the background. So that sometime really between 12th to 13th centuries, the the union between the this whole nation falls apart because Europe was never one country, two countries. It's always small, um, tiny little city-states or you know the roman empire of course is huge and then the mongols come uh you know there's a lot you had the roman empire then you had sort of the recapitulation the roman empire in the form of charlemagne and the holy roman empire and then you had the mongols coming and these maybe represent the golden horde the golden horde exactly and these these three instances obviously we're talking about ancient history in the form of rome roman history in the form of the Holy Roman Empire, we're now to medieval history. And that was maybe at the closest, they tried to, in fact, imitate the Roman system as much as possible. In fact, many of the terms that were used in the, the court of Charlemagne and that were appropriated uh, for that dynasty and, and the Holy Roman Empire were taken from the Roman tradition. However, then the Mongols come and they're just unified under a very simple, basic system of, of, of warfare and uh, of uh, hegemonic dictatorship uh, in the form of Genghis Khan. And then, but then again, just like Alexander the Great for 33 years was able to unify, you know, all of the Greek speaking worlds of Persia and into the Western edge of India. Um, what happened right after he died is exactly as a parallel and analogy is what happened to Mongol or what happened to Genghis Khan and his empire within about two generations. It was split up into various principalities and city-states and duchies and whatever you want to call them. 
that that's what happened in Europe over and over and over again. Um, and that's for the longest time. In fact, one of the famous battles, the battle of Kalka river was the one time in medieval Europe's history where the, the Russians, well, what we say is modern day Russia was actually just principalities and kingships got together and, uh, was able to form an army of over a hundred thousand individuals to go against this 20,000 army of the Mongols. And otherwise they were fighting each other because there was no unified Russia. There was no unified idea of what a Russian state was. In fact, the, as my friend points out, my Ukrainian friend, Kiev, to your point, is the, to them, the cultural center. He, he likens what's happening in the Ukraine. The reason why Russia is so uh, belligerent in their actions against the Ukraine is because it's the cultural center beyond just it being the breadbasket of Europe. Because that's the concept of Kievskaya. Hmm. That's their... Uh, that's their origin story. So oh, okay. both Russia and oh, that's their Ukraine. cultural mythos. I see. Yes. Yeah, okay. So they're going after no Kievskaya is us, completely forgetting they're basically the same people. Right. So I'll bring us to a little, you know, closer to now from let's leave 13th century behind. So sometime in the 1700s. Uh, that region, especially, um, well, in 1768, there is a there is the uh, uh, there is a war between Russia and the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. and at this time, Crimea or Kurum is a part of the Ottoman Empire. The important the important thing about Crimea is that it's a peninsula that just that's right in the middle of the Black Sea. And at the edge of it is a small city called Sevastopol, where the oh, Russian yeah, yeah. and or the Turkish, at the time, the Turkish Navy was stationed there. And if you rule Sevastopol, you rule Black Sea. It's a famous that battle around that. Oh, my God. Of course. Yeah. So this is where this goes back to in, in its, you know, last two centuries rendition and the more modern so, historical form yeah sure okay. yeah so they have this war and then in 1770s sometime around then russia wants to take over crimea and the ottomans are like okay you know what we're not going to let you take it because it's dangerous we're going to allow um there's a, a treaty called Kuchukainarja, and ottomans give Kurum, crimea its own sovereignty and they become a pseudo sovereign entity sort of tied to Russia in one end and the Ottoman Empire on the other. So in at the same time, in this is happening in 1778, I think, the last um, Han of Kurum, who's a Tatar, who's a Turk, all the way from Genghis Khan's time. Yeah. He's the last one, and his name is Shahin Girai. And this man uh, is uh, kidnapped by the Russians and sent to exile. And in 1883, Russia breaks the treaty from the 1770s and they just annex Crimea, take it to their own because that's where you station your Navy if you want to rule the Black Sea. So that's the story. So I'm just gonna jump a whole bunch of years Mm -hmm. because it's irrelevant at this point. But in 19, so in 1954, there is a president of the USSR. Uh, his name is uh, Nikita Khrushchev. Nikita Khrushchev was 
from Crimea. And he turns around and gifts it to the Ukrainian people. It's a gift. Take it. I don't have anything to do with it. But he still kept the uh, the Russian Navy at Sevastopol. That was sort of like a loose agreement. So there's always these loose agreements. And these people speak the same language. They come from the same exact genesis. Therefore, they're not that far off from one another, but they cannot come together because there's always someone boiling the water in there. Uh, just like the young movements that came about in the 1860s with yeah. Garibaldi and the Mazzini. And right. they also had the young movement there separating these people. There's always someone just pushing into that. You know what I mean? No, into it's absolutely the same. For analogy for people in modern times, it'd be the color revolutions in the 2010s and Correct. the early 2010s same that happened in the Middle East. Same exact idea. In North Africa. Yeah. Yeah. So... In 1991, after the collapse of the USSR, and it, and then you have all these new countries, well, not new, I shouldn't say that, all these countries fall out from USSR and they take their own sovereignty, such as Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, Ukraine, Georgia, uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, uh, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. The importance of Kazakhstan here is that Russia also wants a piece of Kazakhstan right now. They want a piece so bad. And Tokayev, who's the Why do they want that? Because they're saying... Mineral rights? Uh, I don't know. They want a piece. They're constantly sending each other very strange uh, cryptic messages in their speeches. The president of Kazakhstan, his name is um, Tokayev. Tokayev keeps saying, hey, you can't take my land. It's mine. If you look at the map, mm -hmm. Kazakhstan is no joke. It's an enormous country. It's so, actually very important, too, for the Silk Road, which would lead to China, which absolutely. is the new manufacturing base of the world. So China is a key player here, too, that's not being mentioned. But there's also something we have to look towards there is what, what relationship, what sort of leverage does Russia gain maybe potentially over certain aspects of China at least in their ability to trade in the, the Middle Eastern Europe, Middle East, and then Eastern Europe. And it's very important to look at the map as we're talking about these countries because they are so close to one another. And it's important to understand their relation to places like exactly China. Where do they stand uh, in relationship to one another? So anyway, let me see if I can, let me see if I can bring in, up the map here real quick. In 1991, Ukraine has their first president because that's the year that they you know established their country as ukraine away from ussr and they have their first president and constitution and they take over uh crimea along with ukraine and that's a big problem but that also makes them for a very brief period of time russia's very important black sea fleet so Russia says, hold on a minute, Ukraine, like, what are you doing? This is a huge fleet. We built it. Okay, you, you took off on your own from USSR, but you just can't take our fleet. That This is ours. So let's share it. So Ukraine agrees. And then within a year, by some very strange coincidence, a Ukrainian battleship, what a coincidence, um, 
enters the Russian port of Odessa. And of course, Russia and Ukraine go into the scuffle for a a few months. There is, you know, life loss and it's not pretty. And this won't goes on for like four or five years. Sometime in 1990, what, 95, 96, I don't remember, uh, Boris Yeltsin, the Russian president at the time, and Ukraine come to another agreement. Let's stop this fight, it's stupid. Uh, let's continue sharing Sevastopol until the year 2017. So this is going to be a 20-year agreement moving forward. And then we'll see what happens. We'll recuperate our losses in 2017. We'll decide what will happen then. And then magically, a couple of years later, uh, the Rus a, a Russian civilian airliner, the brand is Aeroflot, uh, the plane is going to Tel Aviv, has about 80, 90 passengers, and it gets shot down by an S-200 missile. Russia says, hey, Ukraine, you shot our plane down. You killed our people. We have to go to war. Ukraine says, well, we didn't shoot anyone. It wasn't us. It was a Russian-made missile. So talk about fake military action. Nobody knows who did what. And that becomes that becomes a problem right then and there. So that what year was that? Uh, I think 2001. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm just speaking from memory. I, oh, I don't no, have no, any I paper just or nothing. Sure, yeah. I just want to make <laughs> yeah. sure I got my general timeline. Yep. Okay. Continue. Yeah. yeah. So that agreement they came to in 96, 97 with Boris Yeltsin, of course, completely falls apart with the idea of sharing the, uh, the Black Sea Fleet. If you look up Black Sea Fleet, it's very important. You can completely own the Black Sea with the Black Sea Fleet. It's an amazing uh, Navy. So fast forward a couple more years, there is something called the Orange Revolution that happens in 2004 or five. Uh, and of course that is fully funded by Soros, uh, the Otpor color revolution. So um, what happened was there's a very Western facing president called uh, Yushchenko and he's elected as president and he wants to go into the EU and he goes against this other pre uh, presidential candidate who was, I think, the prime minister at the time and he's Russia facing, he's Russia leaning and his name is uh, Yanukovych. And um, Russia said, as soon as the uh, Western-leaning, the EU-leaning president gets elected, Russia turns off the valves to the natural gas pipeline oh, boy. in 2005. And yeah. this is happening, I think, February or March of 2005. It's cold as fuck up there. Yes. And they turn off the natural gas. Can you imagine? And then, of course, it happened in November 2004 to January 2005, like right there when. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was wrong a little bit. So and immediate know. aftermath of the runoff vote from the 2004 Ukraine, like right after it that happens. Yeah. So in the middle of winter, wow. Russia is like, all right, you don't elect our guy? Here you go. No gas for you. It's the soup Nazi situation. And then they had yeah. to sit down. A new agreement had to be drawn for, you know, everything. And in order for Ukraine to get their gas back on, 
they have to pay 100% more. So they doubled the price. I mean, this is like cruelty at a different level. And at this time, the person person who's doing this is the owner of Gaspro. Uh, I forget his name, whatever. Um, then let's skip a little forward because I don't exactly remember what happened in between, but sometime. I think so, real you know quick, how, if I may cut in real quick, what's fascinating one to your point, like 33% of Russians actually live in the Ukraine right now Two, they share a common cultural heritage, whether they want to admit it or not. And there are the same type of, they look the same, they eat the same foods. They speak much of the same languages or um, the subtypes of those languages. There's so much similar between these groups and yet they're being artificially divided and have been artificially divided for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Hell, nearly a millennia, if you go back far enough to the 13th century. Um, so it's like, you know, I want to hear the rest of the, how we get to the main timeline. But when we get up to the main timeline, like, I guess the point to take away for the audience is, this has been going on for a long time. Issues in the Crimea and the Crimea is much like the Middle East insofar as it's made up of a whole bunch of different types of people that don't recognize like Afghanistan, Afghan, Afga, Afghanis don't recognize themselves as being an Afghani. They're part of another tribe. They're part of another religion. They're part of another sect. They don't identify with that. You know, it's the same with Iraqis in some, some semblance as well. It, it, it's a, it's artificially drawn lines oftentimes from the British or from the winners of various wars for resources, whether it's minerals or oil or what have you. We talked about the Sykes-Picot agreement before in regards to the Middle East, but when it comes to like uh, the Crimea or these other areas that Sun is bringing up, these are contrived artificial boundaries that have a lot of different ethnic or religious, religio-ethnic groups or just other groups that identify with something completely different, maybe some sort of tribal heritage that extends back from what, you know, centuries, if not millennia, like my Ukrainian friend would say there's Cossacks, for example, which is sort of an indigenous tribe of like that and area. There's going Tatars back. there. Yes. Tatars, and there's yes. Tatars there. They're still there. So all this is going on for so long. And then all of a sudden in this sort of myopically designed fashion, we're focused on this one tiny thing for now. Like, that's, what's curious to me. It's like, how did we get to being so focused in America, in the West on this now? Cause it's been going on for God knows how long. I mean, you, you pointed out so many different instances. We just talked about the, the orange revolution in 97. You mentioned before that you had that agreement where they said, well, 20 years in 2017, we'll deal with Sevastopol then. And that only lasted for four years until this mystery missile happened. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sorry, but just, I can't help but just speak out loud in regards to all these anomalies. So you know how in these kinds of countries, there's always uh, one side and then one side wins and then the other side wins. Mm -hmm. And when I say these kind of countries, I mean the United States as well. The Democrat wins one uh, term, Republican wins two terms, and it goes back, forth, back, forth. It's a it's a planned um, pendulum effect. Yeah. So we were in 2004, five, uh, the orange revolution. So now we're fast forwarding a few years to 2013. Remember the, uh, the East, the Western leaning president was in power. So now in 2013, the Russian leaning president Yanukovych is in power. 
And then as soon as he walks in, he tears up a draft agreement that was going to allow Ukraine to be considered for the European Union. And of course, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. And now there's a new color revolution. And that's what happened in Euromaidan. And Euromaidan means uh, Eurosquare. And there's enormous civil unrest. 90-something, 100 people get killed for no apparent reason. The, uh, the, I'm trying to find the, the video my friend shared with me because I was unaware of this. Uh, yeah, so it the with me. president runs. Yeah, president uh, flees the country like a like the coward that he is. It's terrible. So immediately, of course, a new Western leaning president comes to power, and Russia goes, "Okay, well, change your plans. You killed people. You made our uh, president run out. We're just going to go ahead and annex Crimea." And in 2014, they create out of that tiny uh, peninsula, uh, Wait, the who, Republic sorry, of I was Crimea. Thought, who annexed it? I was looking at Russia. the video. I'm sorry. Russia annexed it. Russia, okay, so they, yeah, annexed Russia Crimea annexed again. It. Again, okay. Yeah, separated into two parts. Okay. There is the uh, Republic of Crimea, which is 90% of it, and in the tip of it is Sevastopol, where they keep their Black Sea fleet that there are three cities in Russia that are called federal cities that have their autonomous, they belong to uh, the federal government. They don't belong to just the region. So the number one is, of course, Moscow. The number two is St. Petersburg. And now the number three is Sevastopol. And that can never be taken from Russia. So one day they might give back Everything but Crimea, that but part. Sevastopol, yes. just like how Alaska is a part of the United States, but it's like nowhere near. Right. Same deal. You can take whatever you want crime from Crimea, but Sevastopol is now forever a part of Russia. And that's for control of the Black Sea. Yes. So okay. in 2014, Ukraine, during the annexation, asks for, there's an organization called OSCE, OSCE is Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, They begged for um, permanent observers to be sent to the Ukraine. And these people have been there, the permanent uh, observers. I think there are 400 of them. They've been there since 2014. They're still there. Of course, different people take charge, you know, they're constantly moving people around, but they're trying to figure out a way to stop this war from happening because the people who live in the, um, uh, in the areas that's neighboring this whole place, they don't want this war. Nobody no. wants this war because if this war happens, whatever happened in Syria when they opened the floodgates and they just kicked those poor people out of their own country into Turkey by the millions, 8 million people passed through Turkey. Can you imagine like now? Yeah, or happened to Rwanda into the Congo. Yeah, I mean, exactly. we can go on and on. Yeah. So now they're going to open the floodgates from Ukraine by, you know, completely taking these people out of their homes. God knows how many people are going to die for no apparent reason. <laughs> About 5 million people are going to get 
they're going to be homeless and stateless. And there's a water issue, clean water issue already in the Crimea. If I remember correctly, like there's, yeah, there's a big issue with uh, reservoirs in regards to clean water. Like that's one of the most basic resources, obviously anyone would need. I found the video and interestingly enough, so I was talking to my friend about, he's from the Ukraine lives in Washington, DC. Now this is, we talked about this on August 24th, 2021. I had no idea about any of this. So now I'm going to share for everyone. This is what happens when I try to bring the video up now. See if I can bring this. This is what I get. I don't know where it went. It had been on there for years and years when I watched it. And now all of a sudden with the, the fomenting of conflict, the video is unavailable. Obviously, it was very graphic. You could see individuals being shot to death uh, as they were storming the Capitol. You could see the surrounding Russian uh, military in the woods sort of sniping these individuals as they were trying to push forward and push forward. Just absolutely insane how they keep a people that actually have a shared common mythos, a shared genesis, uh, divided and conquered, divided and conquered, divided and conquered. And it really has to do with maintaining key, not only resources, but military, key strategic military locations and power in regards to the Black Sea. And if your people aren't aware, controlling the sea is controlling everything. We just, it's so much focuses on the South China Sea, right? And then making sure we keep Taiwan safe and then making sure there isn't like this island hopping effect from Taiwan to Japan, because Japan's not allowed to build up their military because of an agreement we have with them post-World War II. But what people don't realize is that regardless of the technology we have in regards to aviation, controlling the sea is still controlling the world. Whoever controls the sea, at least from a military strategic standpoint, controls the world. This is why, you know, we, we think about the British, um, the sun never set on the British, uh, crown or the flat or the sun never set on the British empire uh, at one point, especially when they controlled India, but that was being able to control the seas. We think about the, uh, the opium wars, their ability to go into those ports and control trade. You know, this is still controlling the seed is controlling the controlling the sea is controlling the world, at least from a purely military strategic standpoint. Um, and that hasn't changed. The technology hasn't changed to the point where that, that has, uh, in any way, um, you know, uh, put it into a different strategic standpoint. So I think it's important to point out that Sevastopol for the black sea would be an unbelievably important strategic outpost for Russia. And then on top of that, the Ukraine com combine that with the cultural genesis of that whole area with the Ukraine and it being the breadbasket of Europe and Russia you can see why they would very much want to, I'll put in air quotes, annex the Ukraine, if you will. Well, I'm, look, I'm watching the news constantly. So Ukraine is NATO aligned. They are not a part of the uh, NATO organization, mm -hmm. but they are NATO aligned. So if a war happens, what's going to end up happening, it's going to be a NATO against Russia war. And that's not going to look pretty. And that's also, that's why you see so many politicians, whether it's PMs from various European nations or our uh, president in the United States alongside the House of Representatives, but the Senate and the Congress talking about in lockstep and unison in agreement with taking some sort of action if, and trying to potentially foment that action by illegitimate statements that Bloomberg put out, you know? Yeah. So a couple of days ago, um, Boris Johnson declared that he's giving two and a half billion dollars credit to the uh, to bolster the uh, Ukrainian Navy. And he also pledged thousands and thousands of ballistic missiles. There you go. In, in the meantime, Boris Johnson is meeting with uh, Macron, uh, the French 
uh, president over this whole situation, yet nobody's bringing in the Ukrainian president, Oleksiy Zelensky, into the mix like, okay, you know, maybe we should talk to you first or to Putin. But in the meantime, Putin is at the Beijing Olympics posing with Xi Jinping, like, yeah. hey, look at me. And talking Bush. about NATO and talking about the belligerent actions of NATO. Exactly. And the BRIC nations or whatever it is. Yeah, they're doing. right. Yeah, Brazil, and in the Russia, meantime, Russia. the Russian Foreign Secretary Lavrov, who's like a real hard ass, he's sending very mixed messages. He goes, I watched his uh, news uh, briefing the other day. He goes, yes, we are uh, still piling weaponry against NATO countries. And he goes, no, we're not going to invade Ukraine. We're just doing some, uh, you know, uh, we're just doing some exercises there. And then he goes, and if NATO keeps prodding us and prodding this situation, he says, Europe is going to have a very, very hard winter with the Russian gas not flowing their way. Oh, that's aggressive there a little bit. Yeah. Well, to me, that sounds very aggressive. Yeah, it's, but. <laughs> it's not very passive, but then, it's a different type of aggression. The, yeah. The newscaster asked him, "Well, sir, he goes, if you know, if Europe is not going to buy your gas, who's going to?" Lavrov says, "Don't worry about that. We have buyers. You don't worry about that. You worry about your hard winter." So, these are there's a lot going on, and. Our key resources so impact a lot of millions and millions and millions of people to be able to live their life in a basic way. Yeah. I That's mean, really what's going we'll on. shut off the valves and he's what saying do you think, it over and over. What do you think the U.S.'s strategy here is? Is it just to, is it this diversion? Is this just a red herring to look away from the Biden administration and its failures? Is this a way to, to, um, get us to myopically focus on this instead of what's going on in the U S in regards to COVID policy I mean, it might be all of the above, but I'm just throwing out a couple of different scenarios as to why we'd be some, or the military industrial complex and, and, you know, wanting to the limited war that I talked about with Kissinger, then Brzezinski, you know, and the idea of funding, arming the, militant there groups. There are medical groups. contracts. There are almost like blood contracts written between nations and companies like Raytheon and uh, Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin those are blood contracts and they have to be fulfilled. Yeah. Those missiles have to be sold. Those tanks have to be pledged. Those F-35s, F-16s have to be built and sold. Those are the rules. So someone's getting rich. Is there going to be a full out war? I doubt it. That's the concept of limited war. It's like, can you, can you yeah. use enough of the material so you can justify contracts in the future? Fulfill the contracts Correct. now and justify the contact contracts into the future. And one of the ways to do that from an optics standpoint is you fund radical militant groups of these various organizations look and give a sort of precedent or use them as a way to form a precedent in order to go into those, or a casus belli might be a better word here, to go to war or to have you know various countries go to war, at least for a limited time, because we now possess weapons that can transcend war itself and knock us back into the stone age if we're not careful. So we have to make sure we have a sort of contrived war, limited war, contrived war, regional sort of skirmish types, wars, that sort of thing. Um, and that keeps the dollars flowing and it keeps the world moving forward without complete annihilation and destruction. That's Kissinger's idea, by the way. Um, yeah. So this puts everyone in a vortex. So 
you know, it's spiraling now completely inward, but completely out of control. Yeah. Because so where does it start? Oh, uh, what's that country? Uh, the UK hands over two and a half billion dollars in aid or credit to bolster the Ukrainian Navy. And then Russia goes, well, they just bolstered their Navy with all this money and they just received all these missiles. So we have to produce more. And then you have Turkey over there. They have an enormous army. Turkey goes, okay, well, I have to buy more. I have to make more. And then you just NATO says, well, if they're doing it, I'm doing it. And then you keep adding and you add. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. And who's making all the money here? It's Raytheon. It's Northrop Grumman. It's Lockheed Martin. You and I are not doing anything. They're making all the money and the contracts. So it also sets up a situation. an endless cycle. Where it forces, to some degree, Russia to consider a loose treaty with China which sets up the potential scenario for, although I don't believe it would go this far because I don't think they want it to necessarily go this far, you know, it can some sort of world war continue like some, or some sort of larger conflict than something they maybe would want to want outside of what they would want, I would say, um, which makes it all even much more both interesting and terrifying at the same time. Um, because the Russia and China don't actually have as much aligned in what they want um, but this sort of forces them to at least see eye to eye if we continue to engage in these belligerent activities, essentially for profit. Um, but you're right. I mean, the ones that are winning the most are the military industrial complex that need, they have a product, they have to sell that product and they only produce certain types of products. And if those products aren't used, then there's not going to be a market anymore for said products. And so the only one that wins in this case with the ramping up of military action or two, actually it's the military industrial complex combined with the banking cartels, the central banks of the world, that then loan to those national governments, enormous sums of money in order to, to bolster their uh, armaments. Right. So, yep. those so the they two. keep, they keep turning up the heat under that pot and it keeps boiling and boiling. And then we'll see where they better it goes. be careful. Meantime, of course. But in the meantime, the ID 2020 stuff is not going away either. So don't lose focus, right? Speaking of that, let me get this on the record and then we'll wrap up. Um, this comes from James Jordan, by the way, who was on last week's roundtable. And let me see if I can find this because he pointed this out. Vaccine, this is interesting. I hadn't was not aware of this, but I think we need to at least get this on the record. The vaccine passport scene goes national one QR code at a time. Um, if the part that he, whether they realize it or not, so let me just search this for there. Okay. An NBC news story provides further detail about us adoption of the smart health card, whether they realize it or not about two, let me make this big for people 200, about 200 million people in the United States now likely have access to a COVID-19 digital vaccine card, the digital pass known as SMART, S-M-A-R-T acronym, health card is voluntary and minimal by design to protect personal information. It has a person's name, date of birth, and the dates and brands of vaccination doses, all contained within a type of scannable barcode known as a QR code. And after a relatively quiet start, it has built momentum in recent months as more states and companies have signed on, making it something of a de facto national digital vaccine card. Quote, the beautiful thing about this is that this multi-state coalition is a coalition of the willing. End quote, said Dr. Brian Anderson, 
chief digital health physician at MITRE, M-I-T-R-E, a research nonprofit and architect of the health cards. Any such cards, oh, excuse me, any such cards seemed like a remote possibility a year ago. When people first began receiving paper cards as proof of their COVID vaccinations, the Biden administration said in March that it would not take the lead on any national health pass, instead defer to the private sector. And the idea of a vaccine, quote unquote, passport has faced opposition and even bans, especially in the Republican-led states such as Alabama or in Republican-led states such as Alabama and Texas. Rather than a single app, the smart health card is open source computer code that anyone can use to ping a verified source of health data and produce the unique QR code. The digital cards are now widely available from more than 400 sources, including states, pharmacies, and health core organizations, emphasis added. So this is already available. People aren't even aware that they already have them. If you've been vaccinated, you're already on a database. And we already know that uh, uh, their congressmen have started or passed some bill, I believe, that are collecting data building a database of those who have not been vaccinated. So they'll make sure they have tags on both of us, if you will. Uh, But they already have this available. This smart card system is available if you want to go and get it and have it available to make it it easier in the states by which you have to use identification in order to enter certain premises. And I think it's uh, that's, to me, so much focus on the middle. And I I actually agree with Tucker's had a number of really good monologues recently about this Ukraine because it's like, how does it benefit the U.S. to focus on this? And like, and then to get involved in this. And I'm actually, I agree with this. Like, this is not something there there's this to me is a massive red herring. Um, not that it isn't very important for the reasons we outlined and especially knowing who's profiting from it and why they would foment, uh, this sort of belligerent activity in this area. But to me, it's like the Biden administration has such bad optics surrounding it right now. They'll do anything to have some sort of misdirection, to use a diversionary tactic, if you will, to take our eyes off what's going on at home and look at abroad. And I think it's it's a desperate act, I think, if anything. It seems very desperate and very contrived, especially with that Bloomberg. Was it a Bloomberg article, I believe they quoted in there? Evan yeah, and the, uh, Bloomberg imploded with uh, excitement. They couldn't yeah. wait. They're, they're trying to really foment conflicts. And to me, it's just they're doing so in order to take away what's really, uh, at least I, I, I deduce that they're doing so in order to take away our eyes from what's happening domestically um, with COVID-19, with rising inflation, with supply chain issues, with so many different problems, masks in school. I mean, God, we could just go on and on and all the stuff we cover on the show every single Sunday you know, they want to divert our attention away from him because he has one of the lowest ratings think, of any president in American history. Um, 70% of people recently stated, um, and I'll get this on the show card at the end of the night, that uh, a poll came out talking about that 70% of people, Republican or Democrat, are over COVID. They just want to move, move on with their lives. They're over the narratives associated with COVID. You know, now we know about the issues surrounding polls, but if any of that's true, at least I would, you know, that's, that's a majority now. That's a majority of people are like, I just can't take it anymore. Like, well, well, I'm willing to live with the risk. If it's, if it means just, you know, getting back to some semblance of normalcy before like all of this transpired. And so they need to take our eyes away from this until they can maybe bring in something else that make, have a, have us focus again on domestic policy, a new variant, a whole new pandemic. I think, you know, I don't know. I just, it's all speculation now, but I just wonder, you know, I can't help but wonder. They will come up with other things because right now they've got our attention and they do realize we're watching. 
Yeah, they do. So, I mean, my eyes cannot, I cannot peel myself from the news. And I don't watch CNN, Fox, what have you. That's not what I do. But I cannot stop looking at the news. And I don't find it, uh, you know, it's not exciting, but I'm constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, I think we all are. And that's how everybody is. Yeah, that's why I participate on the show. Like I was by myself in my own corner reviewing a lot of the same information that's presented on this show. And I finally came out of the woodwork, so to speak, because I think it's so important to keep up with the narratives that are percolating in the society right now, because I don't know what's coming next. And if we're not aware of it, we're not going to be able to plan accordingly. And we know about the agenda 2021, but now agenda 2030, they're trying to manifest a certain destiny that does not have a lot of us in that picture. And so we need to, I think of more so than any time in human history, be aware of not only the domestic, but then the geopolitical landscape, because it's something that's going to affect us more and more, no matter how much we try to hide away from it. And that's why we yeah. do this. Show. And, uh, you know, for me and my love is lost. I'd like, I keep trying to find a way to like carve out a time to get back to my research where I am most interested in, which is ancient philosophy and the golden chain and the perennial traditional, that stuff. But lately it's just been, Oh, I've been overwhelmed obviously the rich away as well. And I can't thank you and Brad and the round table we had last week enough for helping provide a dialectic around these very complex situations and ideas that we're trying to present because it's uh, but at the same time, I'm not finding time to really, and I don't know if I will, because the, we have to pay attention to what's going on. They're forcing us to pay attention. And that's to how to... I feel, because yeah. I can't take my eyes off of it, or All right. All right. I'm going to get swindled into something. You never know. That's so right. instead of doing what we should, what we were destined to do, like what you're doing is sort of what I'm doing, what Correct, I used yeah. to do as well. That's how we formed I'm a studying, friendship in the background. Exactly. Yeah. I'm studying philosophy as well. And I'm trying to write this book that's never going to come to fruition. But um, instead, we're unwilling participants in Pandora's unboxing video on YouTube. Like every day, it's a new evil that's coming out. And it's like, uh, okay, Pandora, can we please shut off that box for five minutes? Well said. In fact, is it? Is that a... So that, that 2021 Pandora is unboxing 2021. Yeah. Or the video. Is, is there a video about it or is it just like a reference, a loose like analogy you're making? No, I'm just, I just feel that way. Yeah, I got you. So I thought no, I, there is no yeah, video. Sure. Uh, this is what we're living through. It is through. the video. It's a, the, is, it's a metaphor. Yeah, it's yeah. Pandora's unboxing the video yeah. we are living in. We were living in that simulation of Pandora's box yeah. being opened and the, the chaos exactly. inside being unleashed yeah. on the population. I mean, what's next? Smallpox? Cowpox? You right. Know? Horsepox, what they talked about in that Senate document going back to 2018 or 17. I had that actually in the show last week. I should bring that back up, but I'll do that later. And uh, yeah, and that's an incredible, incredible point. I think if more so than history, any other time in history, now hope for the best, but truly, I think, you know, we've been saying that all for, quite a bit on the show, prepare for the worst. I, I see a lot of alternative news networks. Just be prepared for, you know, grid shutdowns. We already see the supply chain issues. We already see issues in regards to inflation. You know, it's, we're trying to give people the relevant information they'll need to be able to make informed choices as to how they'll prepare and move forward in life, knowing that we're in a different landscape. We're in a different narrative, quote unquote. 
in regards to how they want to lead us into the future. And when I say they, the World Economic Forum and these supranational organizations, the UN, the Council on Foreign Relations, um, using these complexes, military, media, medical, um, you know, big tech as well, which, and uh, trying to use China as its filtering, the one to bring it into fruition, the one to manifest the the sort of ideations of these complexes, these round table groups and these multinational corporations and use that as a model that they can then foist onto the entire world. And that's uh, in this total, total top-down dictator technocratic control grid system that they're trying to bring in. It's all connected. It's all interconnected. When you brought up, we're focusing on the Ukraine, but then there's the digital ID and then we still have the vaccine. And then we still have this, you know, the digital currency, we haven't talked about digital currencies and the fact that the central banks really want to roll out while at the same time getting national governments to constrict the use of Bitcoin and Ethereum and these other coins while they try to then roll out their own central, central bank digital currencies, uh, CBDC. Um, there's a lot going on. It's all going to come. It's going to, there's a quickening Art Bell style, wink, wink, where there's like, it's going to, go faster and faster and faster, I fear, as the years continue forward. And so I think we need to be even more conscious and conscientious of the facts that this isn't going to stop anytime soon. I use the analogy oftentimes in the town hall, the freight train out of control. We're heading for a cliff. The conductor sees the cliff and he's shoveling more coal into the engine. And so at this point, we're, we have to find a way to be able to jump off that train without breaking too many bones or snapping our neck <laughs> so we can find a way to live and, and move forward. In this but at the same time, we, we need to always remember, always remember that this is not the worst time in history. No. There's no such thing because th th this isn't a linear uh progression mm -hmm. this has been going on because everything's cyclical right the yeah universe it's is cyclical, cyclical the, right yeah earth is cyclical the solar uh system is cyclical so you know for and time is cyclical so mm -hmm. this is not the worst time ever there's no such thing so yeah. there's no reason to go into this black pill place where oh my god this is the worst time on the planet why did I come to Earth at this time? Well, you could have been living in 1940, you know, 1940s London, and you could be, you know, getting bombed on your head, or you know, 2014 Syria. Same thing could be happening to You've you. Been part so of a population in Baghdad when the uh, Khanate moved in. Exactly. So bad news there. So. You know, we do what you can do to keep yourself sane and safe, but not COVID safe. I don't care what you do with COVID. <laughs> because saying is the most important thing because the black pill yeah. represents a sort of capitulation to, to the oppressive nature of what we're experiencing now. I feel like it's a capitulation and we have to find it a is. way to maintain a sense of strength and uh, mental sort of metal or fortitude and courageousness to be able to stand up to it in our own right. Even if that doesn't, that doesn't always mean doing a podcast and speaking out, it just means standing tall to the convictions and principles you have, such as maybe you don't want to get a vaccine. Maybe you don't want to take a certain therapeutic, maybe you're ostracized and fine stand up for those principles. You know, that's why I wish Rogan earlier on would have stood up for the principle of the fact that he didn't in context, if you put those clips, clips in context, do anything truly wrong. Um, and he, I think 
it seemed very desperate in the way he very quickly reacted. And I can understand. I can only imagine the pressure he is feeling and the amount of attention he's garnered from people in his own inner circle, which is a lot of people. And that's not talking about the, the fallout we'll get tomorrow on the Monday news cycle in regards to all the commentary will be directed at what happened there. So yeah, we have to find a way to maintain some sanity and not fall into the black pill mentality. One billion percent agree with that. With that, I think we're going to wrap up, not the show, but we're going to wrap up this discussion for tonight. I kept you until almost two in the morning. You are a trooper. See, <laughs> see, Brett? See? I did it. it. You did it. Awesome job. <laughs> this is incredible. Your, your memory reminds me much of Rich. Rich is insofar as the, the, the topics you have uh, studied and you've researched your ability to recall them at a moment's notice and to build a meaningful, cogent uh, timeline that is purposeful and that can be communicated and the essential nature of which can be communicated is really, truly commendable. And I can't thank you enough. So finally, there is a name to the face. Yeah. Face to the name. <laughs> the intelligentsia, this the intelligentsia. intelligentsia that, well, the here I am. I <laughs> there is Senna, the secret, the secret Senna behind the scenes beguiling all of us during the town hall. So <laughs> it is uh, absolutely a pleasure and an honor to have you on tonight. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Always. And we'll do this again next time uh, Rich decides yeah. to take another three or four weeks off. <laughs> Not really. They told me they were going to, he told me it was going to take two weeks off. I didn't realize it extend this far. Um, Obviously so. I don't, I don't fill his shoes even, uh, you know, 1%, but I'd love to have him back too, because he's a lot of, uh, he's very important to this community, obviously. Yeah. He's the, he's the fulcrum and, uh, and the, you know, he's the reason why all of this exists the way it does. So I think we did our best trying to fill in as much as we can. And he did an awesome job tonight as well as Brett and last week as well at the round table. And I can't thank you guys enough. And next week we'll be back to the normal show everyone Perfect. in regards to rich and myself just talking over one another and trying to throw a thousand books in your faces and uh <laughs> you know going over his brand and the billion connections he has all the the synaptic sort of receptor sites that are sort of branching out all over the place we'll get back to all those fun apophenia style connections wink wink Somewhere, so somewhere. i i think at this point this is where i tell everyone um what my uh website is and what my <laughs> anything is and <laughs> unfortunately i'm going to disappoint everyone i got none of that <laughs> yeah, she's I, a, I'm she's... Just, yeah i'm just here on uh as uh tony's friend capacity <laughs> yeah she's just a friend it's it's the enigma of senna so we'll never really know so she's talking about doing a book. She's got a book in the works. You know, it may happen in a couple of lifetimes. She has uh, 30 years or so. My age. She might have a secret yeah. blog. I mean, she's Turkish intelligentsia. You never really yeah. know what, exactly. what she's up to. Um, but I wouldn't have had you on the show if I didn't. Obviously, we weren't friends in the background, but we share a lot of similar interests. And you've, I've, we both share common commonality in what we've researched. So I knew you were very apt uh, to these, to have a discussion of this nature. And it was a perfect, a perfect situation. It was a so. great pleasure. I, I loved it. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for doing this because I know how much, uh, how hard you work for this. It's, it's a lot of effort. I appreciate that. And LD as well. Shout out to LD. You guys are amazing. You made this la the last two years, uh, palatable. You know, so I feel it was you or Brett or someone earlier said something. And that's what a lot of people have 
regurgitated a lot of the same sentiments in regards to it's just ra- you're trying just to have a rational discussion, a deeper discussion around topics that the main, the way the mainstream media f- frames it or the way, you know, Brett sort of, uh, uh, criticized alternative media in regards to what was going on. Um, everyone has a sort of narrative, a way they're presenting information, but we're just trying to be critical in our examination of information. We're trying to present a dialectic that's useful. That's meaningful. That's logical. That's our goal. We're not flashy. We do it live. We screw up all the time. Uh, we don't wear fancy suits and ties and, uh, you know, maybe we'll do that someday. We tried all that stuff. It didn't work. So we're just being ourselves, just trying to give some context to the craziness of this world. So thank you so much. And with that, I'm going to take off. Thank you so much, Tony. I'll talk Have to you Have a great night. We'll see you. Bye. Okay. So for those left on the show at like two in the morning, let's, uh, in order to get through the majority of the vaccine section, uh, let's just do the uh, Jeffrey Jackson report. That's going to cover every damn thing. And then we'll go, we're going to skip the intermission this week, but we're going to get to a bunch of smaller clips after the Jeffrey Jackson report that will sort of bring some more context to what's going on with the whole vaccine narrative, since that's always the largest part. For, it's not just vaccines, it's COVID-19 vaccines, lockdowns, therapy, basically everything to do with COVID. Um, every week. So it's always the largest because that's where the most of both mainstream and alternative media focuses throughout the week. Hence why it's always the biggest section. So we'll just jump to Jackson report to give us a summation or a summary of all the different points that have been, uh, presented this week in regards to what's going on with COVID-19 in general and the vaccines and mandates and all that stuff, protests, trucker protests, so forth and so on. So without further ado, let's, uh, Head to the Jackson Report from the Highwire. Amazing. I mean, it's just <laughs> utterly amazing. Do you still, my, my, it looks like your cheeks are hurting a little. Are they hurting a little bit from all the, the laughter that, you know, at how absurd our opposition, what they're having to say, what they're having to do to try and get around this? It's, it's outrageous. It, oh my gosh, it's it's really easy to look at these headlines these days and just think about all of the stuff that we've predicted over the past couple of years. It's been almost like a crystal ball, but it's just following the data, following yeah. the, the evidence of what um, the people that pushed the vaccine program in the past have done by ignoring the safety. But yeah. Dell, last time we talked, uh, truckers were converging from all corners of Canada right. to descend on Canada's capital in Ottawa. And Days after our broadcast, some of the first truckers rolled in there and started to occupy the city. They've only been increasing since, and they are still there right now. And these are what some of the images look like. Take a look. We are in the middle of Trans-Canada Highway. And as you can see, the long, epic convoy is passing by. It's an incredibly long convoy, enormous support all across the road. A lot of you don't realize the magnitude of this convoy and what we are actually standing for. As of yesterday, we were well over 60,000 trucks strong and growing every day. We have support from west to east and everywhere in between in support of freedom. That's what we're fighting for. It's time to stand up. Don't let our freedoms go. We'll never get them back. Scared of what's coming and, and proud of everyone being willing to stand up for their freedom. Trying to keep it together here is emotional. It's Chris from Police on Guard here and I'm in the car with my family on the way to Ottawa, and every overpass 
is packed with Canadians. Look at this right here. Look at this. This is not a fridge. We will not be divided. This is Canada. We stand together. We stand on guard for thee. God bless Canada. You have pushed the trucking industry to a point where we had enough. We've heard the cry of the Canadians, and now we see the support of all Canadians coming together. This is democracy. This is what democracy is all about. People believe that the government has overstepped with mandates, and they are here to exercise their democratic right. There's no science to keep these uh, draconian measures and these mandates. That's why these people are here, and that's the beginning of the end. You see the police opening the way, allowing the truckers right in. Today. Doing great. How's it been down here? Uh, nothing but good. People are super good. The truckers have been uh, having a good time. They've been getting their point across. And you know what? It's a beautiful city that we're in, and uh, they can't ignore all of this. Right? Absolutely. We want all mandates for all Canadians completely abolished. We've done what we've been told to do, uh, and enough is enough. It doesn't change. Vaccines don't work. The government takes your freedom. They're not giving it back, and we're here to make sure that the Canadians know. The world knows that we're behind people who want to get back to the way it was, not the new normal. What we've seen in the last year with demonization of people, turning people against each other, the hatred that has been spewed from the highest levels is completely unacceptable. And the people have had enough. It's about choice, it's not about vaccine. And we are all together, we are all Canadians, we are all trekkers. I want to fight for the freedoms of Canada and my grandchildren and my kids. All right, and how long do you plan on staying? I plan on staying until October. So Justin resigns, all mandates are lifted. Wow, so all mandates are lifted and the passion of these people. Some of the reports I think I remember seeing 22 degrees below zero. Is that right? Did I, did I read that right? I mean, just uh, nothing stopping them singing, dancing into the night. Absolutely an incredible display in Canada. Let me just say the world is watching down here in Austin, Texas. We're watching all over the world. We're getting reports. We're seeing the tweets. We're seeing the Facebook posts. Nothing can stop what you're doing there. We are so proud to be here on the other border, loving every minute of what they've got going on up there in Canada. Just fantastic. And of course, for anybody catching up to speed with this, this was in response, it started in response to the cross-border uh, vaccine mandate on truckers, which is a digital mandate. Obviously, it has blossomed into a much more unifying movement at this point. But uh, interesting to note, uh, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, he was uh, allegedly in contact with someone with COVID and quarantined just days before the truckers rolled into Ottawa. And then lo and behold, this headline happened as the truckers began to occupy Ottawa. New York Post, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau tests positive for COVID during vaccine mandate protests. Um, he said he's going Amazing. to continue to work remotely this entire week, which is now coming to an end. Again, he was double vaccinated and boosted. Um, he, he told his uh, people on Twitter to get vaccinated regardless, but kind of an interesting and ironic twist to that story. But it let's is. look at some of the headlines coming out of uh, Canada. The Saskatchewan Prime Minister, uh, this is CBC, uh, Saskatchewan Prime Minister plans to scrap proof of vaccination requirement by end of February. And then we have Scott, uh, Scott Moe, this is his Twitter account, 
and he is the prime the premier of saskatchewan uh he says today trucker rallies are being held at many locations across the country including on parliament hill in ottawa and in various communities in saskatchewan here's my message to saskatchewan and canadian truckers and he wrote this press release out of his office and he he says in part because vaccination is not reducing transmission uh, the current federal border policy for truckers makes no sense. An unvaccinated trucker does not pose any greater risk of transmission than a vaccinated trucker. He goes on to say, however, the current federal policy does pose a significant risk to Canada's economy and to the supply chain in our Saskatchewan communities where you and I live. And then this headline, this is a, a fantastic turnaround in less than a month. We're talking like two weeks. This is Quebec Premier uh, Fran Francois Legault, and he says, on January 11th, Quebec to levy financial penalty on unvaccinated adults. Um, and now at that time, this marked the first time a government in Canada was announcing a financial penalty. And in that article, you can say that they didn't have the number yet, but they said it was going to be significant. And in the coming weeks, we're going to announce this and it's going to be deducted from unvaccinated people's wow. finances. Well, we're living in the coming weeks right now. And check out this headline. Here's how it's turned. Uh, the Quebec premier drops unvaxxed tax plan saying it divided people. He says he doesn't like the division he's seeing and he's the anger and he's, he's, it's about protecting not only the health of the people, but about protecting the people in general and uh, fairness for all those people. So protect your own, own ability to be reelected because clearly <laughs> there was a lot more people than I realized that think that this is a boneheaded idea. If I want to stay right. in power, I should probably acquiesce. Amazing. Right. Power to the people, everybody. That's how it works. And over here in the U.S., speaking of covering your butt, it's scapegoat time. Let's check out uh, first Javier Becerra. He's the head of HHS here in the United States. And here's the headline out of uh, Washington Post. It says White House frustrations grow over health chief Becerra's handling of the pandemic. It says here, White House officials have grown so frustrated with top health official Javier Becerra as the pandemic rages on that they have openly mused about who might be better in the job, although political considerations have stopped them from taking steps to replace him, officials involved in the discussion said. It goes on, it reads, several administrations uh, several administration officials voiced similar displeasure with Becerra's leadership, although they would not do so on the record because they were not authorized to speak with the media. The health secretary, quote, is taking too passive a role in what may be the most defining challenge to the, to the administration, said one of the senior administration officials. And now this story uh, from the Washington Post, this story is based on interviews with 28 senior administration officials, health agency officials, outside advisors and experts, most of whom spoke on the condition of anonymity to, de to detail sensitive discussions. Now, just to recap, we're, we're, no one's doing anything because of politics and because they're too scared to talk to the media. All right, but hold <laughs> but, on. What, what's so amazing about this, Jeffrey, is first of all, I think uh, probably 90% of this audience, including I, I kind of have to throw myself in there, don't even know who Javier Becerra is. We're just like, wait a minute. I mean, I, I vaguely remember some guy named that, but like this right. is the guy that's our problem, the man who hasn't been on the news at all. Like clearly he's not making a single decision that's going on. I know who Anthony Bauchi is, you know, I know who Rochelle Walensky is, but Javier Becerra is the one we're going to like. I'm, I'm wondering, like he's probably sitting in some dark closet at HHS back there eating like a jelly donut and the door swings open. He's like, huh? You know, the powder all over his face. Like what's going on? Get ready, Javier. We're about to throw you under the bus. Me? Why? 
Just wait for it. I mean, it's like ridiculous. I mean, he's so far down the line, but this is how this starts, right? We got to throw yeah. somebody, none of the people that are actually involved in decision making, this chucklehead that's hiding in a closet somewhere waiting for, you know, for his paycheck to come in. I don't think it's coming in, Javier. I think you're in trouble. May want to start pointing some <laughs> fingers. Well, let's move to an agency you may have heard of, and this is the CDC. Now, again, mainstream here, Wall Street Journal, embattled CDC rethinks pandemic response after criticism of guidelines. It says the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is looking to reassert itself in the country's COVID-19 response and make criticism it has sown more confusion than it has offered answers. Get this, Dell. It says among the first order of business, according to the agency, is upgrading data collection that has hobbled decision-making and clearing up messaging that has confused many. It goes on to say the CDC hasn't had enough actionable information to respond in real time because its data collection methods are outdated and it has operated like a slow-moving academic institution. Explaining complicated science to 330 million people is hard, said Ezekiel Emanuel, co-director of Healthcare Transformation Institute at the University of Pennsylvania and a former member of the Biden administration's disbanded coronavirus advisory board. It is also true that they have bungled a bunch of things. Well, to Mr. Ezekiel Emanuel, it is hard to explain complicated science. We do this here at the Highwire to millions of people every week, and we seem to actually get it right with about one one millionth of the budget of the CDC. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. And I mean, this is what we've been complaining about, right? I've been saying, how is it that the United States of America, we are the home of Microsoft. We're the home of Apple. I mean, these are things that we are, we'd have computer learning. This is the modern world. Yet we have the worst data collection, the slowest data delivery, which is why we keep showing you graphs out of the UK out of Israel, out of other countries, because they're actually better at collecting data than the United States of America. It's embarrassing. It's horrible. And it's incredible to see how much money has been spent on this pandemic by this administration. And the one thing they never did was collect proper data in the middle of what they said was a horrible pandemic. I mean, Wall Street Journal, clearly, Jeffrey, what's happening here is these are all news agencies that towed the line. They did what their rulers told them to do. They got behind the vaccine. They pushed it. They pushed the pandemic. They said we got a lockdown. And slowly but surely, they find themselves standing out in the cold in Ottawa with no clothes on, freezing to death, saying, what happened here? We are pissed off. You're leaving us all hanging out to dry here. We supported you. And now you never had any decent data. And guys like Del Bigtree and Jeffrey Jackson, the high wire, are making a laughing stock out of us. That's what's going on. And now there are these headlines like, they, you know, the dog is off the leash, if you will, uh, as far as the government and how they've been treating me. Media. media is now stepping on its, on its own. It seems pissed off and it should be. Right. And let's talk about numbers here. So we heard throughout the entire pandemic of how bad the hospitals were doing. And then once they they uh, the CMS healthcare worker mandate went through, they began obviously firing uh, unvaccinated employees, leading to a greater healthcare shortage. So the government was supposed to help these hospitals. Mm -hmm. Now, let's look at stat news over at the headlines here. The Biden administration used billions in hospital COVID-19 funds to pay Drug makers, it goes on to, this, to read, the Biden administration quietly took nearly $7 billion from a fund meant to help hospitals and clinics affected by the pandemic and use it to buy COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics, according to a document obtained by STAT. Now, the hospital money, known as the Provider Relief Fund, has run dry and has no new money left to allocate, according to the agency that administers it. Providers have only been able to submit requests for expenses incurred through March 2021 before both the Delta and Omicron surges battered the healthcare system. This seems like kind of a problem to me. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, but, it's probably why they're saying we're going to have to learn to live with it because the hospitals are bankrupt and the government doesn't have any more money to give them. We gave it all to the drug companies who are running off to party with tens of billions of dollars. And it's not just here in the U.S. In Germany, we have op-eds that look like this. This is in one, one of Germany's biggest newspapers uh, named Berliner Zintong. Uh, this is the headline, Interjection from a Vaccinated Person. Why I have sympathy for the vaccine skeptics. Now, he goes on to talk about American uh, social psychologist Leon Fetzinger, who coined the theory of cognitive dissidence and uh, wrote the book When Prophecy Fails about a group called the Seekers that thought the world was going to end. And when it didn't, they kept adjusting their timeline to when it was going to end further and further and further out. So this, this author writes this, however, the way in which we are currently reducing our quote cognitive dissonance with regard to the promise of vaccination, or I should say failed promise, appears to be much more problematic than in the historical example of the seekers because we use one of the most unpleasant psychological mechanisms to vent our anger. We project it onto the outsiders, in this case, the unvaccinated, whom we make scapegoats for having our hopes dashed. Now he's talking to the vaccinated here. And it goes on to say, it is therefore obvious and all too humane to now target the unvaccinated. But is that really justified? Have quote skeptics and quote deniers thwarted the success of the vaccination campaign? Are they now the quote drivers of the pandemic? It's probably not that simple as the recent scandals about manipulated statistics in Bavaria, Hamburg, Saxony have shown there, there, as the world found out, people with unknown vaccin vaccination status were assigned to the unvaccinated to a large extent. We covered that last week here. Yeah. But Dell, let's go over. This is, in my opinion, one of the biggest stories that's happening right now. Let's go over to now to the UK, where okay. we have uh, health minister Saji Javid. And he just came out with a bombshell, uh, bombshell statement. Take a look. Okay. I believe that it is no longer proportionate to require vaccination as a condition of deployment through statute. So Madam Deputy Speaker, today I am announcing that we will launch a consultation on ending vaccination as a condition of deployment in health and all social care settings. Subject to the responses and the will of this House, the Government will revoke the regulations. Wow. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, this guy was like a tyrant saying that no one was going to get to move forward without a vaccination. And now he's pulling the entire deal. It's amazing how they can just flip flop without any emotion whatsoever. But thank God it's happening. Right. These guys never talk like this. And here's the headlines here. Uh, trust. This is the NHS. Trust cleared to use unvaccinated health staff amid reports of Javid U-turn. Now, that leads to articles like this in the U.S. with the CMS healthcare mandate. Top dot calls for reinstatement of people fired over vaccine mandates. You can see the drum beginning to beat here in the U.S. Um, but there's also a big investigation that's happening in the U.K. And it's something we've reported on for a while, and it's really come to a head here. So check out this headline. Uh, government. This is a telegraph, by the way. Government used grossly unethical tactics to scare public into COVID compliance. The MPs there have launched an investigation after a bunch of uh, uh, psychologists has criticized the tactics they used during that pandemic. And it says here uh, in the article, the letters 40 professional signatories led by Dr. Gary Sidley, a retired clinical psychologist, said they opposed the use of dramatic adverts, which included slogans such as, if you go out, you can spread it, people will die. The letter added, 
quote, government uh, scientists deploying fear, shame, and scapegoating to change minds is an ethically dubious practice that in some respects resembles the tactics used by totalitarian regimes such as China, where the state inflicts pain on a subset of its population in an attempt to eliminate beliefs and behavior they perceive to be deviant. Now, what are we talking about here? Let's go back all the way, and this is one of the things they were talking about, to March of 2020. A group of experts uh, called, I believe, Psy B brought this brought this uh, these options to the prime ministers for persuasion and discussion. Right. So options for increasing adherence to social distancing measures. That was a big thing at the time. Uh, this was before all the vaccine mandates rolled out. So here's one of their options. It's under the headline persuasion. Here's the option they actually went to go with. A substantial number of people still do not feel sufficiently personally threatened. The perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased among those who are complacent using hard-hitting emotional messaging, which they did. To be effective, they must also empower people by making clear the actions they can take to reduce the threat. So we're talking basically scare the heck out of them. Right. And you know, the consequences of that, anxiety, depression, suicides. But at this point reading this, I hope the people who ran this op feel sufficiently personally threatened by this new investigation that the MPs yeah. are launching upon them. And I really do hope we can report that justice will be served on this. I mean, we've been talking about it. I started talking about it last week. Of course, I had it in my speech when I was in Washington, D.C. It's time for the Nuremberg Trials 2.0. We need a worldwide investigation of those culprits that lied about the, the data, that pushed faulty you know, models, and then used fear tactics, psychological, you know, deranging fear tactics to scare people, like screaming fire in a crowded room, uh, you know, untruths, mismanagement, you know, misleading statements, all to scare people into compliance to use a product that we now know is increasing the risk of infection across this country. That's right. And now we noticed about two weeks ago, the UK uh, opened up uh, kind of out of nowhere, but now we're getting the story, the real story is coming out. And much like in the US, Fauci admitted this a couple of weeks ago, the UK is also making it in its headlines. Majority of COVID inpatients in England are not primarily ill with the virus for the first time ever. As experts say, worst the pandemic now certainly over. So they're basically saying what Fauci has admitted that going into the hospital, they were tested uh, for a, a range of other things. They went to the hospital before besides COVID and they right. had found out, well, whoops, I have COVID as well. So we're just marking out for COVID. But check out this, check out this uh, uh, graph here or uh, image. This is the percentages they found. So we're talking at some, some of the places, 57% of the percentage of COVID inpatients who are not primarily ill with the virus, um, 54%, 46%. So it's like a coin toss at that point. So what would these numbers have been if they were reported from the beginning of this pandemic? This is the thing we're really, we're really asking. Yeah. And a group of citizens citizens, they petitioned the Office of National Statistics in the UK for these numbers. They said, we want to know how many people uh, have died with COVID on their death certificate, just COVID, not pneumonia, not right. heart disease, not cancer. And this is what they found. So this is a this is the uh, the raw numbers here. And these are the number of deaths where COVID-19 was the only cause mentioned on the death certificate from February 1st, 2020 to December 31st, 2021. Now, if you notice this highlighted region, basically zero to 24 years old, it's broken down in male and female columns there. It's only eight people. Only eight wow. people have died 
and males and females uh, in this category from zero to 45, it didn't even break 100 people in either one of those columns. And you know, just to drive this home, because numbers are numbers, check out this chart. We have a chart we made of this, and it, it drives home a little more of this idea. So you know, we're, we're pushing vaccines on, on kids all the way, you know, look at basically less than one years old to, uh, you know, 30 to 34, or even 35 to 39 ages for male and females. There's almost nothing happening there in these COVID age groups. And wow. then it goes on to go up to the older, the older people, but still the numbers are so, so low. So this really puts into context some things that I really hope we get this type of really forensic information here in the United States. But as we're waiting here in the United States for full opening, the rest of Europe seems to be opening up. Let's let's run through some of these headlines here. And we have uh, boost for family holidays as Europe changes entry rules. So they're going to let children who have recently recovered from COVID completely open for travel. Adults uh, that have been recovered in the last 180 days, so they can travel as well. Natural immunity is recognized wow. now. So, so this is a big thing. Natural immunity is finally being recognized. We have worked so hard to at least make that point. There's no vaccine that has ever been as effective as a you know, natural infection that's been cleared. You now have stronger immunity, more robust, longer lasting, and finally they're starting to admit it. I mean, we're still not at that point. We're still waiting for Tony Fauci and our health department that's now under attack and under investigation by the Wall Street Journal and, you know, all these other newspapers. But, um, you know, it's a good sign for sure. Yeah. Now, I, mean, I think I remember Fauci saying it was a good idea to look into it in one of the interviews when he's questioned yeah. on it. So maybe he's looked into it. Maybe we can get a progress report at this point. Right. But let's go over to Sweden. This is another big headliner this week. Uh, Sweden decides against recommending COVID vaccines for kids age 5 to 11. Of course, that's the heart inflammation, myocarditis risk yeah. that's driving that decision. Denmark, uh, over at the Daily Mail, Denmark will lift nearly all COVID restrictions within days and return to life as we knew it before Corona after vaccine program, wait for it, proved a super weapon despite soaring cases some kind of sarcasm in that headline there from the yeah. daily mail finland uh, their prime minister uh, sana marin finland to lift all COVID restrictions in february norway following the same thing norway ends most curbs despite rising COVID infections and remember just from recently ireland drops most COVID restrictions in wake of omicron storm and then the big one here france france uh, the old curmudgeon france and macron there prime minister are finally releasing this grip slowly france to stick to timetable for lifting COVID restrictions so a government spokesperson said france has already started easing mask wearing, um, working from home, and they'll allow a number like the big events to open up. And that's phase one. Phase two is going to start in February. So why is this important? Uh, because France and the people of France have protested for 29 consecutive weeks. This in the next couple of days, this weekend will be the 30th consecutive week. So they uh, obviously probably won't be stopping at this point while they're opening up until all restrictions are released. They're vaccine passport is over with. Um, it's gonna be very interesting to see how the how Macron navigates this with the truck rally in Canada. I think they're really watching what's happening there because that's starting yeah. to happen in Germany and other European countries. We've been talking about it, Jeffrey. I mean, this is, you know, the politicians, they, they carried again, just like the newspapers and the media did, they towed this line, they carried it out. We started seeing Boris Johnson getting itchy, deciding to bail out. I mean, at a certain point, and we've said it, these people are being forced to commit political suicide. And now as is, the writing is on the wall, the vaccine's a disaster, everyone with blood pumping through their veins and brains knows it. And so now what do they do if they want to stay in politics? I hope all of these people disappear, even Boris Johnson, frankly. I mean, he was a 
tyrant. It was ridiculous. I don't care that you finally came to your senses. You destroyed your country. You destroyed the economies of your nation and the world. These people need to be just walked off and kept away from politics for the rest of their lives and written in the history books as the, you know, the useful idiots that they proved to be. Well, let's talk about the media because they were complicit in this as well. And so as the world, the curtain begins closing on all of these restrictions across the world, the United States corporate media has been focused and obsessed on one topic. And that topic is Joe Rogan. Take a look. You have a First Amendment right to say what you want. You don't have a First Amendment right to appear on a platform as large as Spotify. The thing is, a lot of people do listen to it and they're getting false incorrect information and that's why it seems so dangerous and not all opinions are created equal you think about major newsrooms like cnn that have health departments and deaths and operations that work hard on verified information on covid 19. and then you have talk show stars like joe rogan who just wing it joe rogan is correct that the medical world gets stuff wrong but sure. there's a process by which the medical world corrects itself and that process is not interviewing guys on the fringe of the medical world on your massive platform because figures like rogan are trusted by people that don't trust real newsrooms we have a tension a problem that's much bigger than spotify many say it's up to people like neil young to quote unquote delete spotify right we have not seen that take hold brianna not at all he's just having a conversation and that's what joe rogan will say yeah, but it's, a, a, it's a life or death issue that's why it's yes. in a special category i had a chuckle that uh you know some people were asking uh, who is neil young uh, there weren't people, many people at least asking, who is Joe Rogan? He's incredibly influential and many people do listen to his podcast, upwards of 10 million a day in the United States alone. Who is Neil Young indeed? Joe Rogan obviously finds himself in the middle of this. It's incredible how to listen to the media in the United States of America saying, well, it's not free speech if people are listening to you. I guess is basically the point. If there's too many people listening to you, then you're not allowed free speech. We, we can't allow that. We have to shut it. Oh, if it's dangerous, if it's, if it's, if it's life-threatening, you know, then, uh, then it can't be free speech. I mean, what war have we ever reported on? We have gotten the wars wrong. There was never weapons of mass destruction. This is where the media's job is at. We're supposed to be calling it out and fringe fringe doctors like peter mccullough the most published heart doctor in the world it's incredible how stupid these people are but now every day i watch these things i'm like they're just etching their place in history to go down and be remembered for once again those useful idiots those propagandists that carried the story even when it was dying and crumbling around them they were desperately attacking people that were bringing the truth in this case over the last couple of weeks joe rogan doing a masterful job to bring attention to some really truly brilliant uh, doctors and scientists. Right. And you have a lot of uh, musicians and artists that are trying to join Neil Young and leaving Spotify in protest. Um, Rogan came out and uh, I'm not going to call it really an apology, but he, he issued a statement basically from his own camera phone. Take a listen to what it sounded like. I wanted to make this video, first of all, because I think there's a lot of people that have a distorted perception of what I do, maybe based on sound bites or based on headlines of articles that are disparaging. Um, the podcast has been accused of spreading dangerous misinformation, specifically about two episodes, one with uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and one with Dr. Robert Malone. Dr. Peter McCullough is a cardiologist and he is the most published physician in his field in history. Dr. Robert Malone owns nine patents on the creation of mRNA vaccine technology and is at least partially responsible for the creation 
of the technology that led to mRNA vaccines. The problem I have with the term misinformation, especially today, is that many of the things that we thought of as misinformation just a short while ago are now accepted as fact. I'm interested in telling the truth. I'm interested in finding out what the truth is. And I'm interested in having interesting conversations with people that have differing opinions. Um, I'm not interested in only talking to people that uh, have one perspective. That's one of the reasons why I had Sanjay Gupta on. I'm interested in finding out what is correct and find, I'm also finding out how people come to these conclusions and what the facts are. Now, because of this controversy, and there, I'm sure there's a lot of other things going on behind the scenes with these controversies, but uh, Neil Young has removed his music from the, the platform of Spotify and uh, Joni Mitchell and uh, apparently some other people want to as well. Um, I'm very sorry that they feel that way. I, I, I most certainly don't want that. I'm not trying to promote misinformation. I'm not trying to be controversial. I've, I've never tried to do anything with this podcast other than just talk to people and have interesting conversations. My pledge to you is that I will do my best to try to balance out these more controversial viewpoints with other people's perspectives so we can maybe find a better point of view. I want to show all kinds of opinions so that we can all figure out what's going on, and, and not just about COVID, about everything, about health, about fitness, wellness, the state of the world itself. I mean, I think those were really great statements, ultimately. I think he's playing it exactly right. A lot of what we've said here, I mean, Joe Rogan essentially saying what I say, which is I'm not here trying to tell you what to think. I'm trying to teach you how to think. I'm trying to show you that there's other differing opinions on there. We were told when it came to vaccines that there was scientific consensus on the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. Clearly that does not exist for this COVID-19 vaccine. There are scientists all around the world, some of the most decorated scientists in the world. In fact, Almost every scientist that isn't being funded by pharma or in a government agency seems to be against this vaccine. Um, and so to, to Joe out there, you know, I know you're not stressing about this. Even if Spotify decided to do the wrong thing and cut you, I would guess your contract probably allows for on their side. If they cut you off, you probably get to hold on the $100 million they gave you uh, for being there. And frankly, the second Joe Rogan leaves Spotify or anything like that, wherever he goes, his audience is going to follow them. That's what's so moronic about this whole thing with the press, like with us. I mean, they cut our Facebook, they cut our YouTube as though somehow that's going to make our audience go away. We have the biggest audience we've ever had, and it continues to grow, passing 6 million last week. Thank you, all of you, for all of your support. But as it turns out, the mainstream media got it wrong. You were capable of typing www.thehighwire.com. They thought, like, if it wasn't on your Facebook, like, you'd never be able to find us. I mean, the whole thing is so incredibly ridiculous. But I want to say, you know, in terms of what... Uh, uh, Joe Rogan saying, I understand he wants to be balanced. And frankly, we were frustrated that he wasn't being balanced. He was talking to Peter Hotez and Sanjay Gupta. And I know Bobby Kennedy was reaching out to Joe Rogan. And we were trying to reach out saying, get somebody on to show a different perspective. Well, now he's done that. And two of the greatest voices I think he could have interviewed. There's more out there. Obviously, it tends to show both sides. But I have, a, I have something I want to say to Joe because I really think um, it's critical. And I think you have set this up so perfectly. Spotify 
Shopify wants you to show both sides. So you said, I'll, I'll show one, and then very quickly after, I'll show the other perspective. Well, why don't we just sort of, you know, why don't we warp speed that process, if you will? Why don't we bring both of those voices together at the same time? Joe, I don't think there's anyone better on the planet to host the official debate between both sides. And for and you said it once when you were interviewing Peter Hotez. You said, why don't you, you know, why don't you have a debate with uh, Robert Kennedy Jr.? And Peter Hotez said something like, you know, I don't want to verify that perspective. You know, I don't want to give it power. And, and you said, well, it's like the, one of the biggest, fastest growing movements in the world. I think it already has verified itself. I think it's legitimate, you know, and so you're going to have to address it. Well, we are certainly at that place now as the vaccine is failing to work, as we're still seeing success with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine and the nations that can use it. You know all about these things, but you've been objective. You've been in the middle. Why don't you say to the world, you know what? I am demanding a platform that both bring your best and brightest from the CDC, Health and Human Services, Tony Fauci, whoever you want to be. Bring two or three of you to the table, and I'm going to reach out to Malone and McCullough and see who else they want to have at the table. And why don't we put this all on the table in front of everybody? And, and then, Joe, if the other side doesn't show up now, now that we have put 40,000 people in D.C., uh, we're about to announce, I think in about a week on the highway, we're going to have the official announcement of, of the, the next big rally that I think is going to be even bigger than D.C. So even if you miss Woodstock, don't worry. It's right around the corner. Another one's coming. But the point being that, you know, if they do not show up at this point where every headline is talking about how fast this movement is growing, if they will not stand in their truth, they're going to lose this argument. And so I think you should offer up Joe Rogan. I think it'll be the biggest podcast you've ever done. The world will watch. Demand that both sides come to the table. And then you ask the important questions as you do so well of both sides and let's have this out now the, the future of humanity depends on this and so that that would be my recommendation i think if you do that it will be revealed who is actually if they don't show up then it can't be on you because you have made your attempt to be fair and balanced that would be my recommendation i think you'll shut this whole thing down if you do it but by the way you know joe uh, we are in complete support here. It's so great to have you in this conversation. And to everyone out there, I want you to think about what's happening here. This is cancel culture, right? This is an attempt by a bunch of so far, you know, not as famous uh, musicians. Of course, they were back in the 1960s. But now, obviously, they're terrified of dying. I have a theory about this, actually, like with, uh, you know, uh, these, these artists that ultimately they've lived the most incredible lives when you think about it, right? You got Neil Young. These guys are loaded. Everywhere they go, people just give them free food in restaurants and oh my god can i get your autograph i mean living in castles you know sailboats around the world i get it they probably don't really believe in god and they are terrified of dying there is no way for neil young that heaven looks better than the world he's been living in so he's afraid of dying and i get it he's going to do anything he can to stay alive and he watches the news and he thinks this vaccine is going to keep him alive so he can enjoy his wealth for a few more years and you have every right to do that neil you just don't have to live on our lives or force us, you know, you know, as, as, they, as the saying goes, you know, if you're truly about being, you know, free and wild and a rocker, then certainly you should allow us the same freedom that you had in your youth that made you so incredibly wealthy. 
in the end, though, this is what we have to do. I want to make this a call to action for everyone in our audience. There are millions of you now. We need to support Joe Rogan. We need to go right now. I just did it a week ago. I've never watched, uh, listened to Spotify. I joined Spotify so that I could hear the Malone interview. We'll go to Spotify now and just click on, you know, Joe Rogan experience as one of the things that you're interested in seeing. Simply by doing that, you will show Spotify that they are standing with the right person in this conversation. It's really simple, but this is how we vote with our dollars. This is how we vote with our attention. If you want to make a big difference today, then go out and show Spotify what side of this conversation you're interested in, or at least that you're interested in having the conversation, that you believe in free speech. You can vote for that today by going to Spotify and making Joe Rogan the most popular. I mean, he's already the most popular, like uberly popular. Um, I think that would be great. And by the way, if Joe suddenly just jumps off the track and starts just having pro pharma people and, and doesn't show the other side anymore, then just withdraw Spotify and it'll have the same powerful effect. This is how we play the game. So let's do our part. Go and support Joe Rogan at Spotify. I think it's really important this week that we stand with him as he takes on this onslaught from yet more of the useful idiots out there in the world. All right, Jeffrey. That's my little yeah. diatribe and my, <laughs> you know, little <laughs> uh, handoff to Joe Rogan. I, I am happy, though, that he's here. It is clearly, I mean, these headlines is what we said. I've said from the beginning, there's no such thing as bad press. Joe Rogan mm -hmm. has brought so much attention to Dr. Robert Malone and Dr. Peter McCullough. Um, it's fantastic. And the world is waking up because of it. And so here we are. Joe releases a balanced, a balanced statement. Yeah. Um, Spotify says we'll put a, a label on some of the more controversial interviews, yeah. I guess, whatever that means. That should be enough. This should be done. But it's not. The White House has jumped into it. Check this out. Headline, White House urges Spotify to take further action on Joe Rogan. More can be done, says Jen Psaki. Now, keep in mind, Spotify is a Swedish company based out of Stockholm. And the White House is asked, pressuring them to censor people and change their business model to stop free speech of an American yeah. citizen. Amazing. Where are we at here? What's what's going on? But not everyone's buying it. This is the New York Post, one of the uh, articles out of there, and another op-ed. Op um, government has no business rooting out and flagging misinformation. This was in response to our Surgeon General, Dr. Murthy, who's, who has been really rallying against this idea of just censoring people if they don't toe the line on the COVID narrative, which is failing. Well, but let's look at this air. New York Times. <laughs> right. Let's look at this New York Times reporter. If you want some fresh air, Get ready for this. We're just going to blast you. We're going to open the window. There's a storm coming. This is a New York Times reporter, Pulitzer Prize winner. He's uh, took to Twitter, Matthew Rosenberg. He said, Joe Rogan is what he is. We in the media might want to spend more time thinking about why so many people trust him instead of us. Now, even over at Substack, this is a place where a lot of people are going to write their articles um, to, to avoid censorship, their vice president of uh, communications took to Twitter as well because Substack has been receiving a lot of uh, the same issues that Spotify has received. And this is what she had to say. She says, at Substack, we don't make moderation decisions based on public pressure or PR considerations. An important principle for us is defending free expression, even for stuff we personally dislike or disagree with. We understand principles come at a cost. So 
let's <laughs> let's. Well, that's awesome. I want to say, by the way, you know, I've jumped into the, the swimming pool of Substack myself as of today. My first post ever on Substack is there. Now, a lot of you know I love to talk. Writing is a very slow and arduous process, so it took some time for me to get it out. But it's based on, you know, the conversations that came out of the Washington, D.C. rally, these sort of accusations that we mishandled references to the Holocaust. I dive straight into the fire with that conversation. If you want to read about it, share it with your friends. If you go to my delbeatree.substack.com. Big truth is the moniker I'm going with on all the facts I'm going to bring you in the stories in the future as I begin trying to slow down to the writing process. And let's continue to support uh, these spaces where we are still allowed to have free speech. Uh, it's what's going to, you know, persevere, I think, and make sure that we hold on to it. And just to cap this off, uh, great job, Dell. I can't wait to read that. Brian Stelzer said uh, on that video clip, CNN has a newsroom, they have desks, they have a whole team of people. Well, that team just has minus one now, and that's their president, CEO, Jeff Zucker. He has stepped down, announcing immediately, Jeff Zucker resigns from CNN after a relationship with top executive. So he said he hid this during an internal investigation into the now former CNN anchor Chris Cuomo, who was being investigated by for aiding his brother, Andrew Cuomo, the former governor of uh, New York, for his uh, sexual harassment scandal. So <laughs> I don't know what the heck's going on at CNN, but if you want your news and you want people focused on the news, maybe don't check out CNN because it seems like they have a focus on some other stuff going on there. Yeah, they got some problems. And really, uh, this is what happens when you're, you know, when, and it's, it's true, it's, it's, it's sort of, it, they're toxic, it's, it's, they're full of lies, and ultimately those things, that's a disease that eats you from the inside out. Mainstream media is collapsing. Guys like Joe Rogan here on the high wire, all of you supporting us, they're writing about it, they're frustrated, they're pissed off that you're there, uh, that you're supporting us, you know, it's making them angry, they're railing against us. Why are you bigger than us? Why are you, you know, why are you doing a better job than us? We need to censor you, we need to stop you. We're supposed, we're the ones in the newsroom. It's true, you have a bigger newsroom than we do, but we have more talented people in our newsroom, like Jeffrey Jackson. Jeffrey, you're amazing. Keep up the great work, and I'll see you next week. Thank you, Dell. Always great work by Jeffrey Jackson, um, giving a sort of detailed overview, a panoramic, panoramic overview of the landscape in regards to vaccines, the lockdowns, everything to do with COVID 19 in general. Uh, it's interesting to see the juxtaposition between Joe Rogan on Thursday when they did that show and Joe Rogan on Sunday when we're doing our show now and how much can change in a 48-hour, 72-hour time span. Uh, and so we'll have, to, we'll have to see what the fallout is going to be in regards to the, uh, what's going on with Joe Rogan. And I'm glad they covered it. He is right. He has the largest platform currently. And it would have been very interesting to really call out the medical professionals that would be, and call them out for a debate, get them in, in get Peter McCullough and Robert Malone together and get two of the best from the FDA or the CDC or whatever uh, to come on and actually have a debate about this. And of course, I, I think they wouldn't actually honor that debate because they'd be afraid of empowering the other side, but by not honoring it, it's, it's funny because it'd be a form of entrapment insofar as like by not honoring it, you are empowering the other side. So you'd be in a situation where now you're forced to actually go over those data that you present all the time to the, an unwitting population that doesn't understand how you're doing the data collection and what something 
we've mentioned many times on the show and Dell Big Tree's mentioned and so many other commentators in the alternative sphere have mentioned the data in America seems to be heavily sanitized. And all the data we're getting from Israel or from Denmark or from South Africa or from God knows where Japan. I mean, there's been so much data that's been accumulated uh, and culminating in the fact that there's a, a massive contradictory narratives forming from the data we're getting overseas in contrast to the data that we're receiving from the CDC and the FDA in regards to efficacy and safety uh, around these vaccines. And also uh, the, the other therapeutics. There's just a Japan study that was released this past week about showing a how effective ivermectin has been. Um, we might, I don't know if we're going to get to that because I feel like it's kind of a bromide at this point. We've gone into that. We know about the effectiveness of these other therapeutics. Uh, Senna and I talked about the monoclonal antibodies earlier, uh, taking them off the table. My big question was on citrimabab. So we know, and that, that's not even to mention high dose, like vitamin D and nutraceuticals and vitamin C and these other uh, vitamins and minerals that can be taken in tandem and have a synergistic effect with all these other uh, pharmaceutical therapy, uh, therapeutics. So uh, at this point, he's still, Joe Rogan certainly still needs support, but uh, there is a huge blow to free speech. And there had to have been, they had to do something. They did one of the most underhanded tactics possible. They went for the, you know, the, the ball shot, so to speak, the crotch shot and uh, hit Joe Rogan low, you know, the below the belt shot, we'll call it that euphemize it a little bit and, you know, pulled out a really, really, and this is like the V2 rockets and, and uh, with Germany and the UK during world war II, utilizing an unproven technology where the rocket technology uh, was not ready to be utilized efficiently and just causing sort of a reign of terror of the British people uh, in regards to the, the V2 rockets. And it's unfortunate, but it is a element of history that when a certain, especially when a powerful force that has maintained its power for a long time starts to become severely threatened, not only the media, but I mentioned the pharmaceutical companies, they're going to retaliate. And that means they have to, that means if they're going to go down, that their ship is sinking and they can't uh, fix those patches, they're going to bring down as usually a last ditch effort, the person that really uh, helped to uh, enable those holes in the ship. And so they're doing everything they can at this point. I'm not saying they're specifically behind it, but someone sat on that clip for quite a bit of time before they finally uh, put it out there in the public sphere. And so we'll have to see what emerges and manifests as a result of it. The public apology was not a good look on Joe's side. I can only imagine, though, as Luke Radowski pointed out, all the pressure, the frustration, just uh, the, the, how, how much he's having to deal with, not only, as I mentioned, with his inner circle, but then with the media fallout of this. And if what might be built into a Spotify contract, I mean, we don't know. Um, we'll have to see. I mean, it's unfortunate. And, I, and it's, it just looks like he's disempowering himself by the way he apologized. So uh, desperately as it looked like an act of intense desperation, not saying it wasn't horrible to utilize that word, but in the proper context, he didn't have to apologize to the way that video is placed together. And he could have recontextualized it by, as Brett pointed out, if someone's willing to take the time to go through the specific episodes and, you know, spend the hour or two hours it'll take to edit together to show the context in which he was using those words so we can make a decision for ourselves. And that's how he should have presented it. Um, it's, uh, you know, what's one thing to apologize for the fault. It's another thing to apologize for the use of the word out of context. And that comes from a place of disempowerment 
It makes him look weak. And once you're weak, the woke mob will absolutely devour you and they will not stop until they have eaten like locusts. There will not be anything left like a rain of locusts in your wake. They will completely consume you and you will have, there'll be no memory that there was ever a Joe Rogan if they get their way. Um, that's I'm being a little over the top and facetious, but the point is they will, they won't stop until they have completely dismantled every aspect of them. And I, you know, the timing couldn't be more curious and strange. Um, and it's just, you know, I can't help but beg the question, like why now, especially after having McCullough on, after having Malone on and questioning the pharmaceutical companies within a very short time frame, And, uh, yeah, it's not, not good. Okay. So we have a couple more clips we need to get to before we end the night. And I got to the majority of the ones I wanted to get to. I think what we're going to do next is go to this Jimmy door clip. This is something, uh, 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 Richard pointed out to me. I think we're not going to play the one he pointed out to me, but there's another one here that I think is important for getting on the record. And it is about this Johns Hopkins studies in regards to lockdowns. And so LD, I think I posted it in our production discord, uh, text channel. So if you have that up, we'll go to that one. And then there's a couple small videos we're going to go to about the vaccine. Another, uh, John bound in a good sort of summary of last week, what we showed at least a portion of the roundtable discussion that Ron Johnson sponsored. I want to get into that. And then for everyone that's really into the conspiracy side and the more, uh, out there sort of theories in regards to what's in the vaccine, uh, Greg Reese has a follow-up about the whole graphene oxide. So I figured just to, you know, you know, uh, placate those individuals that are more interested in some of the more nefarious plots that might be surrounding the ingredients in regards to the vaccine. We'll get into that. And then there's a what's her face. So it's just released. I think we might get to as well. It's a short video talking about the metaverse and some sort of assault that took place in the metaverse. This is going to be entertaining, but for now let's jump over to Jimmy door, get some laughs in while we, <laughs> while he breaks down this Johns Hopkins study, talking about the ineffectiveness of lockdowns. Right now, we're talking about this a new study out from John Hopkins. It's actually called Johns Hopkins. Did you know that? Yeah, Johns like Hopkins' parents were drunk, and they named him Johns. That's his first like, name. Like Ruth's Chris Stankast. Yeah, like Ruth's Chris. <laughs> John, it's, it's Jimmy's Door Show. <laughs> Jimmy's Door Show. <laughs> it's a door show owned by Jimmy. <laughs> So the Hopkins is owned by Johns. It's Johns Hopkins. Whose Hopkins is it? Johns. Anyway, so what are they saying? What are Johns Hopkins saying? Lockdowns only reduce COVID study, COVID deaths by 0.2%. So it is 0%, but it is 0.2%. Whoa, totally worth it. I think that amounts to 15 people. Uh, here we, so here, I'm just going to show you this. So it says that, uh, wait a minute, researchers at the Imperial College London. So now the reason why we did all these lockdowns and stuff was because there was a group of morons over at the Imperial College London that predicted uh, all these deaths that, that, that on all the horribleness and it didn't come true. And the Great Barrington Declaration had a different way to handle it. And they were going to target the vulnerable. And that's the way we should have did. But we didn't. They smeared those 
doctors. We had them on the show. Oh, who smeared them? Fauci and the head of the NIH. So it says researchers at the Imperial College of London, for example, predicted that such steps could reduce death rates by up to 98 percent, that it would reduce. So lockdowns, that's what they're saying. All that crap would reduce the death rate by 98 percent. Really? Didn't happen. According to the new study by researcher Steve Hankey, hi, Hank, Mr. Hankey, <laughs> uh, Jonas Erby and Lars Jonog at Johns Hopkins. Who's Hopkins? Johns Hopkins. <laughs> uh, they examined deaths early during the pandemic and determined that by the end of the lockdown period studied on May 20th, 2020, a total of 97,081 people had died of COVID in the United States. A prominent study at the time had estimated there would be 99,050 deaths without lockdowns. <laughs> so we had ex almost exactly the same amount of deaths that they predicted we'd have if we didn't do lockdowns. Do you see what the problem is? Didn't stop any deaths, really. That's what are, it's saying. Are, are they adding suicides into that? And, like... <laughs> and you tell me, are they adding suicides into that? Okay, so... Uh, a new study out of John Hopkins University is claiming that worldwide pandemic lockdowns only prevented 0.2% of the COVID-19 deaths and were not an effective way at reducing mortality rates during the pandemic. We find no evidence that lockdowns, school closures, border closures, and limiting gatherings have had a noticeable effect on COVID-19 mortality, reads the paper, which is based on a review of 34 pre-existing COVID-19 studies. Worse, some of the studies even suggested that limiting gatherings in safe outdoor spots may have been counterproductive and increased the death rate. Holy effing F. Given the devastating effects that lockdowns have caused, the authors recommend that they be rejected out of hand as a pandemic policy instrument. In both Europe and the United States, researchers found that a lockdown could only be expected to bring down mortality rates by 0.2% as compared to COVID-19 policy based solely on recommendations. For context, 0.2% of the total Canadian COVID-19 fatalities thus far is equal to about 70 people. So that, was it worth it? And I'm going to guess all those 70 people were 82 years old or older with several comorbidities. Yeah, I don't know. I was going go to say, are those 70 CrossFit people or are they right. fat people? <laughs> right. Are they the obese? Okay. Uh, the impact of border closures was found to be even less effective with death rates only going down about 0.1%. Holy cow. The, <laughs> the study did give partial credit. It gave partial credit to policies that shut down non-essential businesses, which they concluded can bring down COVID death rates by as much as 10%. Well, that's something. The study noted that this was likely to be related to the closure of bars, meaning nightclubs. Mm -hmm. One cited paper is a November study published in a review of financial studies. Researchers comprehensively broke down the COVID strictures, strictures in every single U.S. county throughout 2020 and then compared them against the county's subsequent COVID fatality rates. That particular study found that restaurant closures and mask mandates saved lives, but the spa closures basically did nothing. 
Another cited study is a July 2020 paper from The Lancet that tallied up COVID-19 outcomes in the world's 50 hardest hit countries and then compared it to factors ranging from border closures to obesity rates. That study found that full lockdowns and rapid border closures could measurably bring down a country's case rate, but it didn't have all that much effect on death rates. Huh. The Johns Hopkins, who's Hopkins? Johns Hopkins researchers only wanted to study death rates. They discarded any study that examined the effect of lockdowns on hospitalizations or case rates. So a lot of people are complaining that, well, they didn't take into effect studies that talked about hospitals. They weren't interested in that. They were only interested in death rates for this paper. Jennifer Grant, an infectious disease physician at the University of British Columbia, she told the National Post that focusing on mortality is a crude measure. She's saying that's not a good measurement. This this study isn't a good measurement of effectiveness because studying just mortality is crude, really. There are other elements of lockdowns that should be considered. Hospital overload. I already told you why that's bullshit, because hospitals are planned to be overloaded on purpose by private equity firms that staff them. Well, that's why you got to prepare for it. That's right. <laughs> uh, that should be. Uh, hospital overload and general burden of disease, including the need for hospitalization in those who fall ill and long-term consequences for the infected. Okay, uh, I, I want to tell Jennifer Grant, everyone was likely going to get COVID. So this idea that you could stop it somehow is not right. Okay. But they they frequently lean on the lives. What about the lost lives? The nine eleven numbers of lives. Right. Like now it doesn't matter. Now it's just the sniffles or the or the thing we're right. counting. So then they then they just move the goalpost. So here we go. Nevertheless, that same that same woman, Jennifer Grant, she has been a critic of the lockdown measures herself, in part because they impact whole segments of the population who were at very low or low risk to begin with, like children. Who's getting hammered by COVID? It's probably worse than anybody. Children. They got to wear masks when they're developing. They got to go to school for six, seven hours a day, wear masks the whole freaking time on the bus. On It's just... So they're spent, they're really getting the brunt of it. Well, it sounds bad, but I hear they're working on in, vi- in vitro vaccination for fetuses. So we'll we'll get this thing. They, I heard they are cold. actually doing that. I, I, <laughs> no. I, 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 all right, back to the story. It made little sense to prevent young people from living normally because they are at very low risk of getting very sick, but have been very very heavily hit by the impacts of a lockdown. So even that woman who's critical of this study is saying that, yeah, it was BS to do this to kids. Unlike much of the media-cited research on COVID-19 thus far, the new Johns Hopkins paper, whose Hopkins paper? The Johns Hopkins paper is by economists. It's the, Here's the thing. It's by economists rather than Epi- by epidemiologists. No. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, so 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 let's go back. Lead author Steve Hankey, Mr. Hankey, is a senior <laughs> fellow at the Libertarian Cato Institute and a contributor to the right-leaning National Review. So keep that in mind, right? So a lot of people are pointing that to discredit the study, right? Uh, nevertheless, 
It's not the first study to pour cold water on the notion that lockdowns were a significant factor in saving lives during the pandemic. They cause way more problems, I think, than they than they cure. That's for sure. An April study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, for instance, determined that U.S. shelter in place orders had no detectable health benefits. However, that study concluded that the policy failed mostly because Americans had already begun social distancing protocols on their own. Similarly, John Hopkins researchers, who's Hopkins researchers? The Johns Hopkins researchers concluded that policymakers may be underestimating how much of COVID spread was mitigated simply by the private actions of citizens. If lockdowns were ineffective, they write, this should draw our focus to the role of voluntary behavioral changes. It will be years until researchers have a complete picture of the harms caused by lockdown policies, including damage to mental health and corresponding spikes in cancer and overdose fatalities. What is known, however, is the costs. Government-imposed lockdowns spurred by COVID-19 pandemic have proved to be one of the most expensive single events in human history. In Canada alone, the first year of the pandemic yielded 343 billion federal deficit dollars uh, federal deficit dollars driven largely by payments to workers unemployed by government mandated closures in gyms, restaurants and other public spaces. And guess what else is happening? So this is a big story you would think. It's coming from John Hop- Johns Hopkins. And you would think it would be worthy of debate and certainly worthy of mention. Like, you could mention it just to maybe discredit it, but you certainly should mention it. Not if it's conservatives that were involved. That's right. They're not going to mention it. So they're not mentioning it, uh, except maybe right-wing papers like the Washington Times, uh, that place, that thing I just read from, I think that's from Australia or Canada. So why did so many American mainstream, this is from Daily Mail, so why did so many, by the way, it's just funny when certain newspapers are considered right-wing or conservative, every (laughs) newspaper, and they're all corporate. They're all right-wing, conservative, however you want to put it. Remember the New York Times? Hey, Biden, don't try to be FDR or anything. (laughs) I'm not saying that the New York Times might not favor Democrats, which they certainly do, and that certain corporate media might favor Democrats, but those Democrats are also, would be considered extreme right-wingers in any other country. Joe Biden would be considered an extreme right winger because he's a, he's against universal health care. There is no there's it's hard to find uh, a conservative or a right winger in Europe that's against universal health care. So why why did so many American mainstream media outlets ignore a reputable university study that lockdowns didn't work? New York Times, Washington Post, ABC, NBC, and CBS all failed to run the story because they have their own negative narrative. So this is on the Daily Mail. The study was largely ignored by mainstream media outlets. Yeah. Who, who published it? The Daily Mail, Wall Street Journal, Fortune, and the Washington Times. On Wednesday night, a Johns Hopkins University professor who was not involved in the study slammed the media institutions for downplaying the study. So a guy who's not connected to it, not involved in the study, is slamming the media for not publicizing it. I agree. And downplaying it. 
Dr. Martin McCary, a professor of surgery at a private university in Baltimore, warned that people may already have their own narrative written about the effectiveness of lockdowns in an interview with Tucker Carlson. Pretty quickly, we started to get the data from northern Italy that not only was it not equally distributed in the population, but the harm was so profoundly skewed towards older people and people with comorbidities, he said. Even in early days of New York, we got data that was largely ignored that 80% of the deaths were in people over 65 and half of them roughly were in nursing homes. But that's just from the Cuomo murders. That's not. Yeah. I just, <laughs> <laughs> so you know how Andrew Cuomo murdered all those people, <laughs> you know, effectively murdered them uh, and forced COVID sick patients back into nursing homes. <clears throat> Even in the early days of New York, we got to, oh, there we already did this. So there, so what they're saying is these lockdowns affected everybody when the seriousness of COVID only affected a targeted group of people. That's what they're saying. And yet we continued to treat this as if everybody was at equal risk, and we continue to do that today. Right. The obese are at a, such a higher level of risk from hospitalization. 78, I saw early data that said 78% of the people who are hospitalized with COVID are obese. Did you know what the actual hospitalization rate from COVID is? 0.89%, under 1%. Just so you know. And all those people are usually old, obese, or with four comorbidities. Well, not only that, I'll tell you why it extra affects only one group of people. All the rich people didn't follow any of the own, their own damn rules. Like, they all, <laughs> like, so extra only affected one group. Uh, so he says, in schools where children bear the biggest burden of the restrictions in this country, so I think the public is hungry for honesty and basic humility from public health officials. Johns Hopkins, who's Hopkins? Johns Hopkins itself did not even put out a press release about this frickin' study. And if you look at the media coverage, it's one of the biggest stories in the world today, and yet certain media outlets have not even covered it. Wow. Everything's global except the news, huh? <laughs> yep. And why is this important? Why is it important to realize that lockdowns were ineffective? Because they crushed people and turned millions of people into poverty. That's why. That's why it's important. And they're not even mentioning the study. <laughs> like, wow. shouldn't that, wouldn't, that should annoy you. That should make you livid as a citizen in this country. That should make you livid. Like, what? You guys aren't talking about this study? I know you know about it. The COVID-19 pandemic has pushed about 120 million people into extreme poverty. Over the, that's from the World Frickin' Bank says this. So it's not in their interest to say this shit. So that's why it's okay. That's why you kind of give it more credibility. Most of them were low- and middle-income countries, according to the estimates by the World Bank. The coronavirus pandemic could result in between 420 and 580 million more people, or 8% of the global population living in poverty. Who said that? The United Nations. But don't forget, they also ended up not getting access to the great vaccines that that's they're right. supposedly going to get. That's right. So it's really a harmful, punishing thing that they did. 
In the global recession caused by COVID-19, it'll be much deeper than that of the 2008-2009 financial crisis. The increase in poverty are concentrated in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, with impacts harder in urban areas than in rural the COVID-19-related lockdown measures explain most of the fall in output. Almost 150 million people are projected to fall into extreme poverty or food insecurity. And the pandemic stalls growth in the global middle class, pushes poverty up sharply. And just so you know why vaccine mandates aren't helping this or lockdowns, because everybody will get infected with COVID. It like him. So uh, just about everybody. It will get infected with COVID now due to Omicron. Okay. And if you put three masks on, it'll help here, here, and here. I just wish they would give out more monoclonal antibodies. And I have no idea why they are doing that because you will get it. Yes. You're all going to get it. And, uh, we, they stopped giving the monoclonal antibodies and I wish I knew why I wish I had knew somebody in power who could tell me what's up. And I'll tell you something else. I'm not entirely convinced it wasn't a lab leak. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so you can't vaccinate your way out of this problem. Uh, we were told this. We've been saying this for months and months and months. It's nice to see that Fauci finally caught up to our show, that everybody's going to get the virus anyway, which is so I tell people at comedy clubs, no matter how many masks you wear, no how many boosters you get, no matter how many lockdowns you do, everybody is going to likely get COVID. Even the guy who does, it's not in his interest to say that, is saying that. Finally caught up to our show. So that's the study nobody's talking about. You're still a chump if you're getting your news from the establishment news media. You're being propagandized. And good luck to the country, huh? <laughs> good luck to the country. Who's Hopkins, is it? It's John's. <laughs> Sorry, that was entertaining. Uh, Jimmy Dore, I do enjoy a sardonic uh, form of comedy and sarcastic form of comedy. Oh man, there's so much to go over with. I have a note card here. Let's just see how what I can get through with starting to develop a little bit of a headache, but we will finish out the rest of the show. First of all, one of the critiques is, let's deal with this. One of the fallacies that they're trying to throw out this individual, I think is Steve Hank or Hanky. Not sure how it's pronounced. It's H-A-N-K-E. Hank or Hanky, anyways, <laughs> Mr. Hanky. Uh, the um, okay, so they they commit an ad hominem, which they are attacking the person, circumstantial, but they're attacking the person based on a position that he has or some affiliation or association that he has. And so this association would unfortunately be the fact that he's part of the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian sort of think tank. And obviously they consider to be an extreme right winger because that's how they classify libertarians. I mean, really? Cause like libertarians are for a lot of social freedoms on top of like market freedoms. So that's a strange, uh, situation there. Um, but they're attacking is sort of like his position, his unique circumstance because he holds a certain position as being tied to the Cato Institute. What a surprise. Also the fact that he's an economist and the team, the researchers were done. The research was done by economists only focusing on death rates. Well, that was the number one thing they were talking about was who was dying from COVID hospitalizations and deaths. Um, this shows that it didn't have any impact. Jay Bhattacharya, by the way, the epidemiologist from Stanford university was talking about this very, like at the, the very beginning of the pandemic, he was talking about this issue. Um, 
And obviously he's one of the three individuals that coined the, the Great Barrington Declaration and said, there's another way we can go about doing this and lockdowns don't seem to be the best way because no matter what, a coronavirus, like the standard cold or flu, which are also coronaviruses, are situations that are, we're just going to have to deal with them. There's they're something that's going to be a part of our lives moving forward for the rest of our lives, so long as they continue to mutate and find new ways of, and to infect uh, a, a human. So the fact that they're bringing up this ad hominem circumstantial is pretty hilarious and sort of uh, ignoring the data, those data that they collected. And those data show that, well, this capacity is almost no difference between those who died uh, due to COVID before lockdowns, so forth and so on. It's like 97,000 to 99,000, something like that. Let's see if I had the article up here. And well, I'll find it in a second. I have too many damn things up. Here, the Fortune magazine. So let's see, 97. Oh, now you're going to try to make me pay for it. You sons of bitches. Law. Um, so in the COVID, you know, we'll just go over this. The two authors of the study are Scandinavian and Jonas Herbie. is a special advisor at the Center of the Political Studies in Copenhagen, Lars Jonung. Jonung? I have no idea how to pronounce that. Jonung is former economic advisor for the EU. So, okay. Former economic former economic advisor for the EU who for over a decade headed Sweden's fiscal policy council, the agency that assesses the results of the nation's economic policies. The third is Steve Hank or Hanky, professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins university. Uh, Hanky served on president Reagan's council of economic advisors and has long been one of the world's leading counselors to developing nations on monetary policy, having helped pioneer dollarization in Ecuador and El Salvador and held cabinet level positions in Lithuania and Montenegro. Co-authors are clearly free marketers, but their academic standing, the vast quantities of data they now analyze, and their sophisticated methodology methodology make a strong case for their conclusions. In other words, they are very uh, stringent in the way they went about conducting the research. And I think the most important thing to draw away from this is, yes, they only focused on deaths, but we know it didn't affect hospitalizations. We also know the fact that hospitals operate at capacity for profit purposes, uh, Jimmy uh, Dore mentioned the private equity firms have to staff those hospitals. This is well known. My mom works as a nurse, so now a nurse practitioner, but as a nurse uh, in short stay, outpatient surgery preparation and care for 30 years before she became a nurse practitioner. This was well known. They almost always tried to operate at capacity. And then they would oftentimes utilize other wings of the hospital when they went over capacity because they want to make a fucking profit. It's a pretty simple equation here. They're worried the hospitals would be overwhelmed. Would they have been overwhelmed if they didn't push a narrative that scared half the fucking population over what was still at the time floating around the standard cold and flu, as well as this alpha, the original alpha variant, which affected older people not exclusively, but uh, in an extreme majority uh, until the Delta variant came around and started infecting and having more severe consequences for younger, more healthier individuals. So there's all of those issues. Uh, the hospitalization, all of those emergency hospitals set up, nothing happened. And it didn't happen because the lockdowns stopped. In fact, the Omicron wave just went through. Everyone's going to get it. They are not a seven to 10 with Omicron compared to one to three of Alpha and three to five, I think, with Delta. And Delta, most, a lot of the lockdowns in many of the states are already lifted. None of the hospitals are overwhelmed to the point of a collapse in any capacity. So that has been thoroughly debunked from a conceptual level and then on, a, on the ground empirical level. That's been thoroughly debunked. Okay. So we've dealt with that. Most people on this podcast already know this. We've went over this so many times on the show. 
Um, same with the children in hospitals, you know, what, uh, Jeffrey Jackson, they mentioned all those individuals that were in the hospital when they adjust for being in the hospital with COVID, not because of COVID, you know, as a majority. So you can see again, there's this issue or majority was not due to COVID. They just happened to test positive for COVID, which then begs the question, how accurate are these tests? We went over that issue. Antigen tests are wildly inaccurate. And the PCR test at a high enough cycle threshold is, is becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so you'll always get the answer you want if you run it enough cycles with it. And so, okay. So we know about all of those issues, uh, hospital overload, one over that are not one over that the only argument they have left, the only argument. And when I say they, I'm talking about people who support vaccination mandates, lockdowns, this sort of nonsense, and that the lockdowns are somehow effective and trying to build a straw man. If I were to build it, if I were to try to steal man their argument and build a straw man, the straw man I would build is saying, well, it might've prevented long COVID. The only problem with trying to build that straw man is if you're going to utilize the argument for long COVID one long COVID seems to, from the studies I have seen, including recent studies, regardless of vaccination or not, it seems to be an issue of certain individuals, a seemingly large minority that have a continual infection associated with COVID. And there's continual antibodies that are being produced, CD8 and CD4, CD8 being the sort of memory cell, CD4 being the terminator, uh, the T cells. And for some reason, the hypo one of the theories as to why this is happening is that COVID-19 is for some reason like a in a constant state of reinfection with these individuals, which I think you can deduce from that, that these individuals, unfortunately have some sort of immunocompromised disposition. Why that is, I don't know. It could be comorbidities, age attrition. It could be genetics. It could be a whole host of factors. But, you know, when we look at the long COVID narrative, yeah, that's, you know, so they tried to build that up and say, well, it might've prevented long COVID because it might've prevented infectiousness before we had the vaccine. Well, with the vaccines don't prevent long COVID. So that's a problem, including more, more recent studies that talk about the fact that it exists. The bigger issue though, is that would long COVID exist in the form that it does if it wasn't for early therapeutics, if they were to utilize early therapeutic regimens for individuals that contract COVID, especially those that might be more immunocompromised or have comorbidities, would this be as big of an issue that, that it, than it actually is? Uh, it's, you know, I wonder, I'm not saying it would or wouldn't be, but we don't have any of those data because they wouldn't allow for early therapeutics. Instead, we all went for the one size fits all vaccine, which doesn't really work in this capacity. So the long COVID argument is out in my, my opinion in regard to that. And, you know, so I'm trying to think of what, what is left, what is left in support of lockdowns. I mean, for God's sake, so many other countries have recognized this and said to hell with this, we're done. The, like the data that we went on. Okay. Now that one, thank you, Senna, by the way, let's go over that. I think this comes from Jeffrey Tucker. So another economist style individual, obviously, uh, someone that's familiar and we are familiar with in this community, the 2006 origins, the lockdown idea now begins the grand F. I'm just going to read some sections from this. This is so important. So Senna sent this to me, shout out to Senna. Um, I can't believe she's still up. She probably can't fall asleep because I know what that feeling is like. Cause when I get out off these, when I finish these shows, I can't fall asleep and I'm up until all the wee hours of the morning, but here's our summary. Uh, Inventor of the lockdowns was a 14-year-old girl from New Mexico named Laura Glass. Her father, Robert Glass, was a computer simulation modeler at Sandia National Laboratories, New Mexico, back in 2006. 
So the whole idea of lockdowns and social distancing was Laura's school project and computer simulation modeling to fight the 2006 flu, not a biology or epidemiology project. How hilarious is that? Now when we look at Neil Fer Ferguson and I think I had something up here. So the real scandal is why it'd be. So Neil Ferguson has a connection. I just found this targeted social distancing, uh, Sandia. No, I was trying to research this. I'll have to go through. I found a connection between the two, but the, this is the model Neil Ferguson used that was used in the UK. And I think we extrapolated to the United States or utilized the same model extrapolated to the population of the United States and showed there'd be like what, 200,000 dead or something like some crazy number. Um, you see 2 million or 200,000 in like a two week span. I think it was 200,000, some, something like that. And of course it never manifested. Didn't even come close. Nothing happened for the most part. That's the crazy thing. Nothing really happened. And that got a lot of us asking a lot of damn questions. Well, let me just go over some of this information here. 2006 awards in the lockdown idea. This comes from Jeffrey Tucker, another economist, God forbid, but that has free market leanings. <laughs> well, not leanings is <laughs> he's a free marketeer. Yes. How did a temporary plan to preserve hospital capacity turn into two to three months of near universal house arrests that ended up causing worker furloughs at 250 hospitals and stoppers stoppage of international travel, 40% job loss among people earning less than 40,000. Well, the answer it's got to be a bizarre tale. What's truly surprising is just how recent the theory behind lockdown and forced social distancing actually is so far. Anyone can tell, let me make this bigger for people. Anyone can tell the intellectual machinery that made this mess was invented 14 years ago and not by epidemiologists, but by computer simulation modelers. It was adopted by experienced doctors. They weren't ferociously against it. It was adopted not by experienced doctors, excuse me. They weren't ferociously against it, but by politicians. So epidemiologists, those that signed, for example, the great the penned and then signed the great Barrington Declaration, most of them were, or many were epidemiologists or doctors of another nature and specialization. Um, these, the, what we're operating under is a, I guess, a girl's science project that then was uh, taken um, and built upon in Sandia laboratories. Let's start with the phrase social distancing, which has mutated into forced human separation. The first I heard of it was in 2011 movie Contagion, a little bit of predictive programming there. First time it appeared in the New York Times is February 12, 2006. If the avian flu goes pandemic while Tamiflu and vaccines are still in short supply, experts say the only protection most Americans will have is quote unquote social distancing, which is the new politically correct way of saying quote unquote quarantine. But distancing also encompasses less drastic measures like wearing face masks, staying out of elevators and the elbow bump. Such stratagems, those experts say, will rewrite the ways we interact at least during the weeks when the ways the influenza are washing over us. So there's the avian flu, H5M1 didn't turn into much. I remember that I was in college and I was a sophomore and we're thinking, is this going to be something big? But obviously nothing really came of it. The New York Times tells a story from there 14 years ago to, as they were talking about, and let me see if I can scroll down to something more useful here. And I expect a detour is kicked off. The, okay. Let's let me read this. The New York Times on April 26, 2020, tells the story from there. 14 years ago, two federal government doctors, Richard Hatchett and Carter Metcher, Meacher, or Mecker, met with a colleague at a burger joint at, in suburban Washington for a final review of the proposal they knew would be treated like a pinata, telling Americans to stay home from work and school, and school the next time the country was hit by a deadly pandemic. 
well, last time was that was nearly 100 years ago, but never mind. When they presented their plan not long after that, it was met with skepticism and a degree of ridicule by senior officials who, like others in the United States, had grown accustomed to relying on the pharmaceutical industry with ever-growing array of new treatments to confront ever or evolving health challenges. Dr. Hatchett and Metcher were proposing instead that Americans in some places might have to turn back to an approach self-isolation first widely employed in the Middle Ages. How that idea, born out of a request by President George W. Bush to ensure the nation was better prepared for the next contagious disease outbreak, became the heart of the national playbook for responding to a pandemic as one of the untold stories of the coronavirus that required the key components. Dr. Metcher, a Department of Veterans Affairs physician, Dr. Hatchett, an oncologist turned White House advisor to overcome intense initial opposition. Uh, it brought their work together with that of the Defense Department team assigned to the similar task. And it had some unexpected detours, including a deep dive into the history of the 1918 Spanish flu and an important discovery kicked off by a high school research project pursued by the daughter of a scientist at the Sandia National Laboratories. The concept of social distancing is now intimately familiar to almost everyone, but as, it's, but as it first made its way through the federal bureaucracy in 2006 and 2007, it was viewed as impractical, unnecessary, and politically infeasible. So let's see if we can, but what is this mention of a high school daughter of 14? Her name is Laura M. Glass, and she recently declined to be interviewed when the Albuquerque Journal did a deep dive of this story, or excuse me, of this history. Laura, with some guidance from her dad, devised a computer simulation that showed how people, family members, coworkers, students in schools, people in social situations interact. What she discovered, I wonder if it's like a sort of self-generous uh, sort of like an automata scheme anyways i'm looking it's like self-generating functions what she discovered was that school kids come in contact with about 140 people a day more than any other group based on that based on that finding her program showed that in a hypothetical town of 10,000 people 5,000 people would be infected during a pandemic if no measures were taken but only 500 would be infected the schools were closed laura's name appears in the foundational paper arguing for lockdowns and forced human separation. That paper is targeted social distancing designs for pandemic and influenzas. Here's the paper. It's from the CDC itself. And it gets into this. Yeah. Um, it set out a model for forced separation, applied it with good results backwards in time to 1957. In other words, they started, they made the model fit the results going back in history. They include with a chilling call for them as prescriptive, making the data fit into a contrived model. They conclude with a chilling call for what amounts to it. And that's so classic positivism. This is so classic positivism. They conclude with a chilling call for what amounts to a totalitarian lockdown, all stated very matter-of-factly. In other words, it was a high school science experiment that eventually became law of the land and through a circuitous route propelled not by science, but by politics. The primary author of the paper is Robert J. Glass, a complex systems analyst with Sandia National Laboratories. He had no medical training, much less expertise in immunology or epidemiology. That, in other words, I wonder if their model took into account, for example, or not took into, took into uh, consideration uh, confounding variables. That would change other variables within the simulation, such as healthy immune systems versus immunocompromised immune systems, severity of disease. There's so many variables that there's no way that was accounted for. It was probably a very simple schemata um, of, you know, if all these people go out, if we just assume that one person can infect someone else, you can have this sort of growth cycle, logarithmic or exponential, whatever growth cycle you want to utilize. Um, that uh, shows that it will grow out of proportion. You can, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, as I like to always say. It says the New York Times. 
Dr. Henderson was convinced. Actually, let's let's go up here a little bit. Sandy, no, no medical training. Okay, that explains why Dr. D.A. Henderson, quote, who had been the leader of the international effort to eradicate smallpox, completely rejected the whole scheme, says the New York Times. Dr. Henderson was convinced that it made no sense to force schools to close their public gatherings to stop. Teenagers would escape their homes to hang out at the mall. This actually happened in Australia with, uh, you know, this teenager sneaking out and having like parties on the beach and shit. And it's cops coming and finding them and arresting them and finding them. School lunch programs would close and impoverished children would not have enough to eat. Hospital staffs would have a hard time going to work if their children were at home. The measures embraced by Dr. Mecker, Meacher, however you pronounce his name, and Hatchet would, quote, result in significant disruption to social function in communities and result in possibly serious economic problems, end quote. Dr. Henderson wrote in this academic paper responding to their ideas. Then this doesn't even get into all the variables I am talking, I, I mentioned. Like what, there's too many variables. I want to, I'd have to see how she designed the initial simulation and have to see then how they built upon that initial simulation of her father, directly speaking to her father, who worked at Sandia National Laboratories and see, you know, did they account for all these other variables or is it, you know, my suspicion is hyper oversimplified but that's just a conjecture right now until I am able to view it. The answer he insisted was to tough it out, let the pandemic spread. That's also Stephen Witowski, I think his name was, the Rockefeller mathematician said the exact same thing. He was early on in the pandemic being very critical of uh, lockdowns. Let the pandemic spread, treat people who get sick and work quickly to develop a vaccine to prevent it from coming back. Uh, I think... So this, okay, there, let me, I'll finish with this. Uh, so American Institute for Economic Research is Phil Magnus got to work to find the literature responding to the 2006 paper by Robert and Laura M. Glass. So her father, it's her father and obviously his daughter and discovered the following manifesto disease mitigation measures in the control of pandemic influenza. The authors included D.A. Henderson, along with three professors from Johns Hopkins, infectious disease specialist, Thomas V. Inglesby, epidemiologist, Jennifer B. Nutso and physician Tara O'Toole. Their paper was, or excuse me, their paper is a remarkably readable refutation of the entire lockdown model. And it's quite long. Let me see, I'll just read the conclusion because I think just to summarize this up. Finally, remarkable conclusion. Experience has shown that communities faced with epidemics or other adverse events respond best with the least anxiety when the normal social function of the community is least disrupted. Strong political and public health leadership to provide reassurance and to ensure that needed medical care services are provided are critical elements. If either is seen to be less than optimal, manageable epidemic could move toward catastrophe. Well, I wonder if it does move to or towards catastrophe. I will put that in the show notes and people can read through that. It's a fascinating deep dive into the history of where this damn modeling came from in the first place. And thank you for reminding me, son. I have not researched. That has been well over a year because since I remember getting into uh, Laura Glass and Robert Glass, I'm sure Rich talked about it in some of the earlier episodes when, before I was a part of the GTW community, but I remember saving a bunch of articles in relation to this on my Evernote that has like 400. Someday I'm going to have to do a presentation on that just to show the evolving narrative over the course of the year, year and a half, I was just collecting uh, mainstream news articles and saving them because I knew they were going to be you know, lost in sort of the news cycle and lost the time as well as the ever evolving situation in regards to vaccines and therapeutics. And I wanted to make sure I had a sort of a timestamp to see how that narrative evolved and changed over time. So um, there's one more thing that I really wanted to point out about this, uh, the simulation. Oh no, it's on the tip of my, oh, 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 one more thing. I've 
wax philosophic on this. People know I've mentioned this on the GTW podcast before about the issue of freedom and freedom of choice in regards to the therapeutics you choose to uh, be administered to your body that you choose to take. Um, there's a certain issue in regards to this belief that, well, let me put it this way, the libertarian argument, this argument from the standpoint of the agency of the individual, that it's the individual's choice is very important because one of the things that you do is when you give the ability for the individual to make the choice, ironically, you incentivize sort of subconsciously the individual to actually play the dialectical game. In other words, to research and to try to find as much information, try to make a reasonable judgment in regards to how they'll go about managing if there is a, a pandemic. And so in other words, you give more agency, you give more availability, you give more precedence to the individual to be more responsible instead of rely, uh, instead of um, amputating that responsibility and uh, removing that responsibility is a word I'm looking for that will come to me in a second, but, and giving it to the government. And when you do that, you increase infantilization. You sort of make this, you create this situation where they're incredibly uh, dependent on government agencies. And therefore they stop thinking in that process because they're not incentivized to think and make choices for themselves. They're letting the experts make the choices in the vacuum that has been created by not allowing the individual to have the agency to be able to make those choices in the first place by these contrived government regulations. In other words, it's important that if there was any, if there was a disease out there, there's a virus out there that caused a disease that was like Ebola and, um, but was transmissible like a coronavirus, you wouldn't have to utilize lockdowns in that scenario either. People out of necessity would self-isolate. They would see the devastation all around them. And out of their own willingness to um, preserve their own life, uh, the natural instinct for life preservation would kick in and they would make sure to self-quarantine without the need for the government. To, and for those that want to go take that risk, they can go take that risk. And you have the right not to engage with those individuals. In other words, you'd leave the agency up to the individual itself to make the choice as to how they'll engage with this in the first place. And this ironically, somewhat paradoxically, actually makes the individual more responsible. This is sort of the libertarian, sort of voluntarist, sort of for, you know, freedom-oriented perspective. And when you remove that, when you anesthetize that, when you amputate that, um, you create a vacuum. And then in that vacuum, you have these power structures come in place, the, the CDC, WHO, the FDA, um, various other government agencies, HHS. They talked about Javier Becerra and the Jeffrey Jackson report, so forth and so on, to step in and tell us how it should be done. And ends up having much greater and more devastating effects because there's too many variables to try to model. Just like when it comes to pricing, this pricing, how do you value something? What's well, how other individuals value it? And that's too chaotic and complex to model and any sort of contrived sort of closed system modeling. And that's the, I mean, the Soviet Union attempted to do that and they had enormous shortages for all basic goods even though many economists believe they actually tried, they actually did a hell of a job considering how difficult and actually near impossible it is to try to model what is human volition. And that's why they keep trying to remove human volition from their models because human volition is the problem. The fact that we actually have free will and the free ability to make a choice. And this is something they can't, they can't deal with this hard problem of consciousness because this is the essence of consciousness is the volitional component of it. The ability to reason and make choice. This is the, the cause and effect of our species. This is the, the key identity of what makes us unique compared to all the other animals is our ability to have choice. And they can't quite figure that out. They don't even know 
where that originated from. They have no working theory of consciousness to account for that, um, biological or otherwise, uh, or you know, divine from on high. There's so many different theories out there, but none of them can quite been able to, especially in the scientific realm. They have all these wonderful theories, but yet they don't have a theory for the thing that develops the theories. A little bit uh, recursive and or circular in that regard. Anyways, um, what time is it? Oh my God. Um, I think I'd beat that one to death. And I went into a longer diatribe in some town halls if people are interested. The uh, I will get into more detail as to why it always should be left up to the agency of the individual in regards to any sort of pandemic situation, regardless of the type of disease that's out there. Even if there is a therapeutic that can potentially uh, stop the disease. And, you know, and then the argument has been made from the other side, we don't have the right to infect other people, but without, without testing apparatus that exists that don't violate my individual rights and aren't intrusive, there's no way to be able to justify that. And that's shown in this capacity. But our testing is terrible in regard. We're two years in a pandemic. We do not have good or accurate tests. And the P, if you want a good, accurate PCR test, you have to go to a reputable clinic that runs at a low cycle threshold. They exist, but it's very difficult to find. And they usually take a little bit of time to get the result. These are not these rapid test situations they had sort of set up recently. And all of a sudden, did you notice? Senna made a good point about this. During the Omicron phase, huge case increases, all these testing centers out of nowhere. Now they're all seemingly are sh being shut down and packing up shop. It's like, hmm, I wonder what's going on there, but I'm just speculating now. Um, I'm starting to get a little gnarly. I do want to go over some house cleaning items or housekeeping, not cleaning, housekeeping items in regards to GTW podcast and the town hall. So for those, the town hall has been a wonderful success. I love it to death, but on a 48-hour turnaround, I've discussed this last week and members of the town hall are aware of this. On a 48-hour turnaround after a very intense uh, podcast, go having to, I do have the show card and had to get, especially over the past couple of weeks when I've had to be the host instead of the co-host. Um, I'm just a little overwhelmed currently with all the projects I have going on with my day job and then this sort of part-time job with the GTW podcast, which I love to death. And also some consulting work I'm doing for Autonomy, Autonomy Unlimited. It's become a bit much. So we are changing the structure and format of the town hall. The town hall will be run bi-weekly uh, starting uh, next week. So I am going to take a hiatus. I'm going to take a break this week from the town hall. Uh, there will be no town hall on Tuesday night. The, the next town hall will be on February 15th and it will run from seven to 10 o'clock. And we're going to add some more structure to it. What we're going to do is we're going to re repurpose the question for Richard's channel. For those who subscribe in the private discord community, we're going to make it questions for Rich and Tony, and we're going to put it under the town hall section in the discord. And what I'm going to do is take time to answer your questions in the town hall that you have for Richard or Richard myself in this case. And, um, I, uh, we're still going to keep it free form. Like it's going to have more structure insofar as I'm not just going to start talking about anything. Um, we're going to start by at least dealing with some of the, the most pertinent questions. I think the most meaningful questions that we'll then have, we can have free form conversation around that'll at least give us something more to work with instead of just some topics that we don't get to a lot of topics we don't get to from the show card and then trying to sort of develop conversation around that. So, uh, it'll run from seven to 10 bi-weekly in the, this, this new format. I'm going to take a break again this week, Tuesday, there's no town hall and we'll start on Tuesday, the 15th. We 
I do. We do encourage those that are interested. We have a discord server, obviously. And there's a, there's a voice channel in there for those that enjoy the town hall format enjoy it being every Tuesday. I encourage those individuals that have the time to hop in and see and have a discussion with other like-minded individuals. It's a great opportunity to meet other people and the con outside of the context of the way in which I run the town halls. So we still encourage that. We won't, we're not going to do another co-hosting model where I'm going to have other co-hosts do it um, for various reasons that I won't get into that have to do with production elements and also just um, uh, other issues. But we do encourage people to utilize those voice channels or that particular voice channel if they're interested in the buy and the off weeks where there isn't a town hall to hop in there, have discussion and, you know, do that sort of thing. So uh, we're still make it as maintain the essence of it and the substantive value that people are getting out of it while to get it, while giving me a little bit of a break and uh, a little bit of respite, if you will, from the uh, wonderful and very meaningful podcasts that we're trying to do here, but at the same time, very tiring as well. Just need to catch my breath, especially with rich being gone all these past weeks on top of that, there will be, uh, and we have not said anything in, this, in stone yet. So I want to get people freaked out, but there will be some changes to the structure and form also of GTW show. As you know, doing a six or seven hour podcast is very intense on both Rich and I, where this is not our main gig or normal job, so to speak. Or, and um, we're trying to find different, we're talking with our production team behind the, the scenes to make sure that we capture the essence of the show. But I think in some capacity, less than the time we spend uh, during the production. So we're thinking about going to a four or five hour show, starting a little earlier and doing shorter clips, but having more commentary and especially more deep dives. I've gotten a lot of feedback from people that uh, frequent the town hall stating that the thing they love most about the show is the commentary and deep dives. So I think it's important. What we might do is I'll do a much shorter show card. We'll, I will extricate the most meaningful and best clips of the week. Uh, and, but it'll be smaller snippets of those clips. And then Rich and I will have commentary and more deep dives around those where we can uh, see fit. That's a general idea of where we're moving with the show. Uh, it doesn't mean we will go that direction and we may scrap it all together, but something has to change because Rich and I are both getting ready to run some courses starting in March, his autonomy season starts and I'm doing a logic course and there's just not going to be the time to do this uh, as as much as we have been, it's uh, starting to be, we love it to death. We wouldn't do it if we uh, didn't find incredible value and rich, especially with the knowledge that he has gleaned over the many decades of doing incredible research. Uh, he feels it's you know important to share as much of this research with the audience as possible. So we're trying to make sure that we condense it and make it more useful for us or get, make it more reasonable for us to be able to put on a meaningful production without losing the essence or the substance of the show while at the same time uh, making sure that it has a little bit more structure and a little bit more, um, uh, yeah, a little bit more structure overall to how we want to produce it. That will come probably at the end of February, early March and nothing set in stone. We still have a lot of kinks to iron out, so to speak. And, but I just want to give people a heads up. So there's not this jarring all of a sudden change that happens. And then, you know, we lose viewership. None of the main essence of the show will be changed. We'll still be doing commentary and deep dives around clips and trying to build out the narrative from the past week. We just have to tighten it up. That's all we're attempting to do with this is just tighten up the show and uh, bring a little bit more of a sort of boundary and structure to it. 
as this was just an off the cuff, incredible idea by Tyler Boyer and then manifested, uh, wonderfully by Richard Grove. And early on it started to be, a, it was a shorter show. And then I jumped in and it sort of grew and grew insofar as like the timing because of the show card I was doing. And then the narratives were absurd this year, lab leak and the vaccine hegemony and the lockdown, the mandates. I mean, it's so much to get to, but we just need to get it a little to be more focused and that's that's our goal and so the next couple of weeks when rich comes back we'll do the show as you're normally used to it and then sometime late february early march one of those two weeks we'll bring in the new format which will not be that different from what we're doing now it'll just be more focused and that's sort of the goal so with that mouthful i hope people have uh, continued to still support us we love everyone that uh, has continued to give us support and i hope you understand that these are some of the growing pains with having a successful show it started out to be a very small community has grown and grown and grown and we can't be more thankful uh for all the individuals that have supported our work and continue to support our work. And we're looking to grow the show even more as, uh, into the future, but we have to make sure that we're able to do that while still providing substance and value, um, in, in a way that we can balance it with other activities that we have, we we're currently engaged in. So, okay. Let's go to a couple more clips. LD, I hope you have some time left for it. And then we'll go to, um, uh, go to the thank you for the night and, wrap it up. So I just wanted to get this John down and see, this is under, okay. So it'll be these two, it'll be under the vaccines, vaccine side effects set, section. Give a shout out to our more conspiratorially minded individuals that uh, found some of these narratives. First one's good. The first one's sort of a review of what we presented last week. The second one has to do is a little bit out there with Gregory's, but I'll come back for some quick commentary. Then we'll go to what's her face talking about an assault in the metaverse. Yes. An assault in the metaverse. That should be entertaining. And then we'll finish off with a JP Sears or something. We'll find something fun. Um, but let's go to, I would say LD play those back to back and then I'll come back for commentary. Well, there's no way to be dramatic enough to match reality, but it's very simple. InfoWars has had devastating effect against the New World Order. We've done amazing things. I really feel like our work is not over yet. Format. It's with funding a little... at InfoWarsStore.com. We're not going to be here. Yeah, there's soon. a skip ad. You Maybe that's what's supposed to happen. Shit, no? It's on but... the bottom. There you go. Wall. Although it was ignored and or attacked by the Mockingbird media, the Defeat the Mandates rally was there for anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear. These are my truths, and I believe they're self-evident. Even if every man, woman, and child in the United States were vaccinated, these products cannot achieve herd immunity and stop COVID. In contrast, the natural immunity which healthy immune systems develop after infection and recovery from COVID is long-lasting, broad, and highly protective from disease and death caused by this virus. As was the panel of experts gathered together by Senator Ron Johnson, exposing alarming data, experimentation on our military, and a cover-up by the Pentagon and the CDC. Uh, we have substantial data showing that uh, we saw, for example, uh, miscarriages increased by 300% over the five-year average, almost, 
Uh, we saw almost 300% increase in cancer over the five-year average. Neurological issues which would affect our pilots over a thousand percent increase a uh, thousand ten, ten times that's ten times rate and obviously that eighty three thousand per year to, I'm sorry eighty two thousand per year to eight hundred and sixty three thousand in one year in Project Salus in the weekly report the DOD document says specifically 71% of new cases are in the fully vaxxed and 60% of hospitalizations are in the fully vaxxed. This is corruption at the highest level. We need investigations. The Secretary of Defense needs investigated. The CDC needs to be investigated. Nurses from across the country are contacting me about the, the vaccine mandates, that type of things, talking, you know, telling me why they're not going to get the vaccine because they're seeing this, these patients that their cancers are in remission, then, you know, all of a sudden, boom, you know, they, they're blossoming again. There are suppressor genes, P53, it's the guardian of our genome. There's another breast cancer gene, BRCA gene. We know that the spike protein binds to the receptors for these genes and can activate them. That is a mechanism of the spike protein. So putting this spike protein in the human body via a a gene shot that is completely investigational. These are not approved. What P53 does is it checks your DNA yes. before it replicates, and it makes sure that it's fixed. So P53 is the one tumor suppressor gene that is most um, tied to cancer because once there's a mutation in P53, the mutation rate just skyrockets, Correct. and you're going to develop enough mutations that that cancer is going to have a much more likelihood of becoming metastatic. RNA can regulate your DNA. So when you put an mRNA vaccine or RNA into your body, it can get in, and it can be alternately spliced, it can bind to your DNA, and it can regulate it. For positive or for negative, it can change your gene expression, and there's stuff in there that can do that either intentionally or unintentionally, and we don't know. It's completely unethical because we are just beginning to understand MR, the RNA silencing where these RNA molecules regulate our DNA. So that makes it completely unethical to use this technology. Now I will tell you as a cardiologist, it is crystal clear that these vaccines cause myocarditis. Dr. Uh, Parks has already quoted the paper by Avolio that has shown beyond a shadow of a doubt the vaccines cause myocarditis. In August, when the report was run on acute myocarditis in the DOD website, there were 1,239 cases, and now when you run it, it's down to 307. In January of 2022, there were 176 cases, and magically, they are now down to 17. There is a word for that. It's not suspicious. We have in the military the single best data set we that exists because we have baselines in there. And acute disease across all categories in the preceding years, five years leading up to the vaccination year was 1.7 million. They introduced and mandated a COVID-19 vaccine for our US military when they had only lost 12 service members total to the disease. And in the 10 months of 2021 after that, it jumped from 1.7 million all diseases to darn near 22 million. That was a 20 million increase. As one of the world experts on ivermectin, let me just talk about some programs which used ivermectin. My colleagues here, as Dr. Rich just pointed out, there are a number of compounds that we've identified that are effective in early treatment. Almost all of them are repurposed or generic. Mexico City, December of 2020. 
their state health system deployed an early test and treat program. They deployed 250 mobile testing units throughout Mexico City, and they had treatment kits. They used and they collected data on 120,000 people. 50,000 of them took treatment kits, and they found in those who were given treatment kits that up to 75% avoided hospitalization. St. Augustine, the doctor of the Roman Catholic Church, famously said, the truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose. It will defend itself. The message is simple, and it is a message afforded every American. They would just reclaim their birthright. Please share this and all of the other videos on Bandot Video spotlighting the panel and the rally. This is the so-called misinformation the propaganda machine is terrified of revealing. John Bound reporting. The globalists can't win this fight against humanity if the people have a voice. And Bandot Video is one of the most important voices. The Fifth Column recently published their findings and conclusions on the strange self-assembling nanotech they discovered in the Pfizer mRNA vaccines via optical microscopy analysis. The objects they found in the vaccine correspond with known items in the scientific record. And the conclusion they come to seems quite clear, that the well-documented scientific goal to use nanotechnology in living human beings to form networks capable of controlling several nanomachines is currently being deployed in the COVID-19 vaccines, which amounts to the most intrusive assault against humanity in all of recorded history. While the media and government lie and cover for Big Pharma, the official ingredients are still unknown. But we have thousands of brilliant scientists worldwide studying these experimental vaccines. Some have died in highly suspicious ways, but most have been able to share their findings. And the work shows us that graphene oxide is a key component in all of this. There have been dozens of official documented studies on the use of graphene oxide related to how we see it being used here today. Among other things, as a power converter. Graphene, a one atom thick layer of hexagonally arranged carbon atoms, is the thinnest and strongest material known to man and an outstanding conductor of heat and electricity. It can boost gigahertz frequencies into terahertz, which is exactly what these new nanotech machines need for power. In order to do this, the graphene first needs a frequency to power it. And the optimal frequency to externally power graphene is known to be 26 gigahertz, which is also the frequency put out by 5G. In this model, the graphene within the body is activated by microwave signals in the gigahertz range which it then boosts into the terahertz range, which then powers the novel nanotech machinery to self-assemble within the human body. Once assembled, what do these nanotech machines do? The images, compared to the scientific literature, suggest that they are the foundation of an internal electronic system with an endless potential for biomanipulation of the human host. Nanorooters that emit MAC addresses able to be registered via Bluetooth, nano and plasma antennas to amplify signals, 
Nano rectennas acting as rectifier bridges from AC to DC current. Codecs and logic gates for encryption of communication. The raw material for all this self-assembly is also graphene oxide. And when we compare known side effects of graphene oxide to the side effects of the COVID-19 vaccines, we find them to be the same. Once graphene oxide is injected into the body, it acquires magnetic properties, predictably around the injection site, the heart, and the brain. Graphene is seen as a pathogen by our immune system and will often result in paralysis and stroke. Graphene is known to cause blood clots and heart conditions. Graphene oxide can generate small discharges causing cardiac arrhythmia. There is so much going on with these experimental vaccines and the evidence seems clear that there is a mass experiment going on with certain batches marked more deadly than others and with certain batches that contain a bold new technology akin to a man-made parasite intended to control the host human if it doesn't kill them first in the process. Perhaps that is what the mad scientists and psychopaths are after. Human genetics that can withstand this new invasive and deadly nanotech. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. Interesting video by Greg Reese. Obviously, the John Bound video went over in detail about P53 last week. Some they put uh, that one paper that looked at the suppression of this gene expression in vitro. Um, and then we're seeing in, in human beings when this is uh, represented to the entire body that there seems to be a correlation with the increase of cancers and in those that have received the, va- received the vaccine. Um, so that's, that's that. Uh, I think I've, we've talked about that enough, but this whole, the graphene 5g, oh boy, I'm not going to get into a big conversation about this right now. It's interesting. I, I believe that he's citing one paper for, and this was that Spanish team that looked under these, looked at these vaccines under electron microscope a long time ago. And, uh, I don't know, maybe they followed up with their research. There's been other individuals that have noticed some strange things. Obviously there is that German doctor as well. Uh, one that mysteriously suicided, I believe himself is this was, we had that on the show card months ago. And, um, then specifically talking about graphene oxide, if I remember correctly. Uh, so there's this whole, to be sort of like oxygenated oxygenated graphene to be like a rusted type of gra- it'd be uh, sort of like i ion would be removed and it would be in an ionized state it'd be it'd be able to be manipulated in certain ways graphene oxide in order to c- conduct this sort of self-assembly under certain frequencies i'm just sort of trying to think about how this all fits together um theory crafting as to why it'd be done that they'd use graphene oxide nonetheless it's tough to know because there's so I've seen so many different microbiologists now. A lot of times it really knowing the quality control issues surrounding the vaccine production, it could be just quality control issues as Fleming and McCarran have pointed out. Um, McCarran being a microbiologist himself. And, you know, so there's that issue. The we know that there's this there's a sketchy issue in regards to the production of the vaccines, many of them being produced in the same factories. J and J, 
Pfizer, Moderna, and there's quality control issues. So much so that, for example, Japan, I've stated this before, had to recall millions of doses, not just a million, it's like 2 million plus doses of their Moderna vaccine because there is all these quality control issues. People were getting sick. There's there are strange like contaminants inside the bottle. You could see it, you know, sort of gray material. A lot of it just looks like non-sanitized material. Like in the, instead of having like a saline solution, there's no sort of like microscopic material associated with it. Then you have these microscopic material that could be almost anything, graphene, graphene oxide, maybe, you know, there's a couple of other, it's one of those things that I'll give Del Bigtree some credit. He he waited for a very long time to actually comment on graphene oxide and to do a deep dive in it. He did do it actually a couple of months ago after, and he gave a long sort of soliloquy like I'm giving now about how he is very sort of apprehensive and reticent to actually dive into that because there wasn't a lot of credi- credible information out about it. But then a couple of scientists, microbiologists did come forward saying they are seeing some very strange properties. One of the other issues according uh about graphene oxide though, to think about is, is it, is it the main ingredient responsible for the magnetic properties? Is it associated with every batch of the vaccine? I think actually, I don't know if he did it, Greg Reese that is, or someone else. I was watching another video this week that was talking about different batches have different, different contaminants associated with them. Some that seem to be much more pure. Some that seem to be, have much more many, many more issues associated with them and the form of contamination. And if there really is the inclusion of graphene oxide, it's probably not universal, which makes it even more difficult. I remember when this whole like mag- magnetic thing was going around only like 40%, in some cases, like 25% of the individuals are ex- exhibiting magnetic properties. Um, but there certainly were a large contingent contingency of anecdotal evidence on the internet of people doing this, it's almost impossible to verify how many of those people are making it up. I won't say they were all making it up, but it wasn't all of them. And it certainly wasn't a majority. So it was enough to be curious, but still skeptical. Like what's that about? So I've sort of put that in the background until more information emerges. The only thing I can deduce from this is like, if there really is the inclusion of graphene oxide, then it's not used in every single batch. And then so that's, and if it's not used in every single batch, therefore all of the individuals that are being injected with this stuff, there's going to be a minority that exhibit maybe some magnetic properties or have some very strange, the manifestation of strange diseases or, you know, electrical disturbances in the body, maybe forms of neuropathy. Who knows? I don't, I don't know. This, this all to me is still more in the uh, epistemological cartoon side of it, as I like to it's a term I appropriate from Terrence McKenna. Um, it's, it just seems a little bit too far-fetched yet, but I figured we put it on the show card because at least there is some evidence we could cite some information in regards to it. And, I, you know, it's something to be aware of, but also to remain a sort of healthy skepticism around it and make sure we don't get too involved in that. Um, what we do know, here's what we do know. The graphene oxide sometimes ends up becoming a bit of a red herring there's enough issue associated with the vaccines, especially the vaccines, these experimental gene therapies, uh, pathogen producing synthetic gene therapies that uh, if you, that the cost benefit of them, at least for myself, I would never take such a, a therapeutic. I will never take such a therapeutic. There's no long-term data. Uh, there's an, a plethora of information, both from Pfizer's own data uh, safety trials 
in regards to or the vaccine trials they conducted, as well as the VARES data reporting system, as well as the yellow card data reporting, as well as all the varied data the databases around the world uh, in regards to vaccine side effects. Also, anecdotally, I know individuals in my family and sort of through word of mouth that they know friends and family of theirs as well that extend out that uh, have been injured by this vaccine. And I just, you know, it just seems like there's enough information from just the Pierre Corey's and the Robert Blones and the, and the Dr. McCullough's and Dr. Cole. And, you know, um, I forget her, uh, oh, what's her name? Anyways, Parks, I think is her name, Dr. Parks or something of that nature. All those individuals speaking at that round table to be very concerned enough that the risk benefit is not worth it. Um, it's not worth it. When you, when you conduct that ratio, it's just not worth it. And, uh, there needs to be a severe, uh, re-examination of what we're doing here, but obviously we've commented on this enough and I'm not going to comment on it anymore. We know this is part of a larger plan, a uh, larger transhumanistic plan to bring in this sort of transhumanistic society. And we're now in that sort of, um, that's the nanotech era and that's what we're dealing with. So fun. That's a lot of fun. Okay. Uh, last thing I want to do is, uh, what time is it? Probably four. <laughs> LD. I'm going to have, I'm going to post this in our <clears throat> production channel. I just want to see what this, uh, assault or danger in the metaverse. What's your face release this? So this should be somewhat entertaining. And then we'll, we'll finish out the night. We'll come back for some commentary and finish out the night. I found that one. I've got to pull it. I got it. Okay, cool. Yeah. You can put that in like the technology economic section or something like that. So uh, for the show. Okay. Uh, without further ado, let's go to check out uh, what's her face entertainment, her new YouTube channel. Uh, everyone go check that out and subscribe and uh, see what this is all about. friends how you guys all doing i am actually doing quite well because as you can see after a long and arduous journey through renovation hell i am finally back in my house where i am living out my lifelong dream of having a fireplace in my living room which you can't see because it's to the right of me. There have been a lot of new beginnings for me this year i started my brand new youtube channel i moved into my new house I acquired 10 new pounds on my ass, so I figured I would keep the momentum going and start a brand new series of videos where I discuss shit you missed while you were distracted by other shit. So news you missed while you were distracted by mainstream news. To be more specific, today we're going to be talking about news that is not the trucker convoy. I mean, don't get me wrong, I am so proud of everybody who is partaking in the trucker convoy. But, you know, there's already so much news circulating around out there about it. I figured, why not talk about some other things that are taking place in clown world? All right, let's jump right into it. A woman reveals nightmare of being gang raped in virtual reality. A woman has spoken out about her surreal nightmare of being gang raped in virtual reality as she noted her response to the incident felt like it had happened in real life due to the technological advances of simulation. Nina Jane Patel, a psychotherapist, uh, well, you know what they say about psychotherapists. They're all fucking psycho. Who conducts research on the metaverse said she was left shocked after between three and four avatars attacked her in the metaverse. What kind of people did you think you were gonna find in the metaverse, Nina? There's a whole universe out there 
that looks so realistic. Uh, it's called fucking outside. And that's where normal people hang out. They hang out in, outside. They hang out inside in their house with their families. Nobody's hanging out in the metaverse and then going to pick their kids up from Little League. This is not how the world works, Nina, okay? While the metaverse is still in its early stages, Facebook has created a metaverse with Mark Zuckerberg changing Facebook's parent company's name to Meta in a bid to hone his energies on constructing the metaverse. Hone his energies? I think you mean harvest his energies, you know what I'm saying? This motherfucker is using the metaverse to suck your soul right out of your MacBook Pro. I recently shared my experience of sexual harassment in Facebook's meta venues. Within 60 seconds of joining, I was verbally assaulted and harassed. <laughs> 60 seconds. <laughs> Sorry. Three to four male avatars with male voices, I would hope. Uh, essentially, but virtually gang-raped my avatar and took photos! As I tried to get away, they yelled, Don't pretend you didn't love it, and go rub yourself off to the photo. I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of follow-up questions. First of all, how do they take pictures? Does the avatar- do the avatars have cameras? Can you pick your camera? Is there like a battle between Nikon and Canon, like old school? Um, and don't pretend you didn't love it. How exactly does the rape occur in the metaverse? Like, how exactly did the rape occur? Did Zuckerberg uh, write this into the code? Um, is it graphic? Can you rip their clothes off? Is there a Me Too movement? I just have lots of follow-up questions. The 43-year-old mother said it was such a horrible experience that happened so fast before she even had a chance to think about using the safety barrier adding that she froze. Miss Jane Patel, who lives in London, noted both her physiological and psychological reaction was akin to it happening in real life. Oh, was it? Was it akin to happening in real life? Yeah, have you been gang raped in real life? Nina? I'm sure that the, the guys from Guantanamo Bay would appreciate you saying that getting raped in the metaverse is similar to getting gang raped. The people up in the Appalachian Mountains can probably tell you what it's like to get gang raped by a group of their inbred cousins. And I don't think it's at all similar to what happened in the metaverse, Nina. I gotta be honest with you. Virtual reality has essentially been designed so the mind and body can't differentiate virtual digital experiences from real. Oh, well, it's a good thing we're really pushing forward on virtual reality. Is there anyone that warned you about the dangers of virtual reality? Is there anything we could have done to stop this? She added, my experience of sexual harassment was, to say the least, shocking. Shocking because I am not accustomed to be spoken to in such derogatory ways. Maybe back in 1996, but not, certainly not in 2021. <laughs> Maybe in 1996. <laughs> Those were the days. Obviously she has never played Fortnite because that's just, what's the whole fun of the game? You, you get on the game, uh, somebody tells you that they're they're gonna rape your mother within 30 seconds, and uh, that that's just how you get started. I mean, if you're finishing a game of Fortnite without uh, somebody threatening your life, 
you're not really enjoying the full experience of the game. A spokesperson for Meta said they were sorry to hear of what happened. Oh, everybody's so fucking sorry. I'm truly sorry you had to experience this and this must stop. Oh wow, it's only just begun and it's already, it already must stop. I wish stupid bullshit like this was a one-off, but unfortunately, this is not new. Back in 2015, a legit news station, and I use the word legit loosely here, reported an incident of virtual rape in the popular game Grand Theft Auto. The graphics are so good, this attack is eerily realistic, but this is virtual rape. Hackers rewriting codes and hijacking online video games like Zombie Apocalypse and Grand Theft Auto. The vile scenes are then posted to YouTube. It's violating, it's triggering for people who have survived assault in the past. It's a visual representation of all that terrible verbal stuff that you get as a woman online. If you don't want to get virtually raped, might I suggest not playing a game that centers on criminals running around committing crimes? I mean, are you surprised when the little hungry hippo eats up all your marbles? Or when the Monopoly guy seizes all your assets? Donate the player hate the game. All right, so where do you guys think this is all leading? I think they will eventually attempt to implement uh, an internet identification, probably using biometrics or something like that. Kind of like when we were in school and we had to sign into our computers. Um, and then that way, everybody on the internet is accounted for and we can criminalize online behavior. I think that is where we're leading. Um, let me know your thoughts on this stupidity. All right, guys, that's it for today. Thank you all so much for watching and I will see you next week. Bye. Giving someone a plant is great in theory. How's it great in theory? It's pretty great in practice too. It's a plant. I mean, it's, it's not a trip to the moon. Like what are these people talking about? But if it often comes with unwanted responsibilities, this is what I'm talking about. This is how little, um, <clears throat> people these days can handle. These are the same people who are telling you you don't understand how things in the world work, who, who think a plant is an unwanted responsibility. Literally dumping water into the fucking soil is a huge responsibility for all of these childless degenerates of this. <laughs> yeah, they'll tie it to some biometric scanning system. Maybe they'll do some sort of fingerprinting or some sort of you know, retina scan or facial scan or maybe all of the above. Hell, they'll tie it to a vaccine passport. Oh, they already have that. That smart system we talked about earlier. Don't worry. You have access to it for anyone who's been vaccinated. You can go pick up your QR code at any time. Uh, what was that stupid video game? The Digimon universe where you had to take... No, no. I'm thinking of something different where you had to like take care of those little digital pets. They were big like when I was a kid. It's like, oh, wait, that's too difficult. Too difficult to deal with the plant. It's difficult probably to deal with the digital pet. Um, that's how I love her sarcastic attitude. She's beautiful and sarcastic and witty, and it's always entertaining to have her review <laughs> digital rape. That's a very interesting topic, but, uh, and the fallout of that, of course, there'll be some sort of like, quote unquote, false flag associated with this, you know, sort of like that Facebook whistleblower. Oh my God, all the women and how it's affecting the young girls, um, with all this sort of, uh, social harassment you know, and it's the suicides and the depression, anxiety. And it's like, yeah, we know about that when in regards to social media, but it's, you know, now what's coming to light and now you're, you know, testifying in front of Congress. Oh, okay. Oh, now Zuckerberg gets to put in even more rules and regulations for utilizing his platforms. How surprising.
this is falling under the radar for now, but just wait, this will pop up back up again when the media wants to make it a story and, you know, use it as a false flag, you know, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, I will be damned. <clears throat> Tamagotchi. Thank you. Pilot your mind. Tamagotchi. Yeah. I had one of those too. Everyone had them. All the kids had them back in the day. You know, that thing fucking was a pain in the ass to take care of. Wall. See, even I'm complaining about him now. Thirty-five years old. Shouldn't even. I should not be thinking about these things, Tamagotchis and whatnot. But uh, <laughs> anyways, you can tell it's late at night. I'm running out of things to say. My brain doesn't work. I have a headache. It's been a fantastic show. Love everyone that's still supporting us and still listening to me ramble on. But with that, we are going to finish out the show for tonight. Lots of clips we didn't get to. I want to make one last uh, comment. Again, the town hall. There is no town hall this week. The next one will be on the 15th. Let me confirm that again. It'll be the next one will be on the 15th. It'll be run from seven to 10 and the off weeks. We encourage those individuals that are available Tuesday nights to hop in and have conversation with their like-minded individuals as part of the tragic or tragic hope as part of the grand theft world community. And, um, I just have to say grand theft auto. I got, <laughs> I, I actually real quick, I frequent gaming communities. I play a, particularly pernicious game uh called ultima online it's an old fucking game and it's a it's one of the first mmos to ever come out and it's brutal i mean it's essentially we run around and like dominate everyone and kill everyone and take their stuff and um get to live the life like a irl pirate pirate in a way anyways it's uh the language you, you hear in competitive gaming whether it's Counter-Strike or something like Ultima Online, which is an old wizard game, casting spells and shit. It's pretty brutal. And uh, <laughs> what's your face's point? You know, there's, it's honestly, and it's mostly older generation people that are playing it because that game came out in like 97 or some shit, like October of 97. And um, still people play these free shards and these, you know, uh, that these people host and whatnot. I won't get into that. <clears throat> uh, but you should hear what these fucking young kids say on goddamn uh Fortnite. i mean it's pretty fucking brutal out there that's why you know talking about the n-word earlier i sort of had to laugh i mean it's a terrible word i know i'm not i'm not saying it isn't but some of the language i hear in these gaming communities my god it actually terrifies me um and it comes from a lot of those kids that peterson would talk about that are you know the, the trolling the kids that have no purpose no meaning in life they're younger and they're just like they're there just to cause destruction mayhem and chaos and yeah that is very true like the, the kids from pleasure island and the pinocchio's pinocchio scheme so i uh yeah ultimate the ultimate series is old then ultima online which is the mmo adaptation of the ultimate series to richard garriott they need to go out into space you like circle the earth or some shit he is one of the creators of the game so it was uh yeah, it's I'm looking at some of the chat here. Yeah, it's uh yeah, yeah. I uh I don't take great pride in it by any stretch of the imagination. I barely engage with it anymore, but sort of like a online family, much like my G the GTW community I participate in. It's sort of a way to I'm a very competitive person in a body that's not very athletic. Um, so I need to get my competitive kicks somehow. And I do so like maybe once a week, once every other week by engaging in some gaming and uh yeah, it's just, uh, I guess I grew up in that sort of in between that sort of like digital culture revolution that happened in the 90s leading into the 2000s and onwards. So I'm a product of the transhumanistic agenda, at least a modicum of that product. 
and um, we'll see what manifests with the, the future generations. It's only going to be more exciting and more chaotic and probably less human. Anyways, I'm done. <laughs> I, my brain no longer works. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. Am I saying like words? LD, who do we have to thank? All that good stuff. All right. Well, great job holding it down with Rich on the Road. And uh, big thanks to everybody in the uh, Grand Theft World community. Big thanks to our Rockfin tippers tonight Nicholas, Tcan, Dallas, DM, Augustine, Eugene, Dallas again, and Bent Reg. And um, if you want to look as cool as James Evan Pilato from New World next week, holy 1695, shit, the oh, I'm yeah. part of the control group shirt, you can go over to freedomunitedrevolt.com and pick up one of those shirts or uh, a beanie or a hoodie or whatever you desire. And if you're uh, new to our show or I don't know, <laughs> if you are interested in joining the community, go to grandtheftworld.com, click on the uh, join the community button in the top right and choose your level of support. Get in there. And uh, we hope to see you in the in the Discord, in the community. Oh, and thanks to Matt. Matt just jumped in on the Rockfin. No, oh, thank you, Matt. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Really appreciate it. I really appreciate those that still um, frequent and patronize the show after the fact of... Uh, I know Rich being gone for so many weeks, it wasn't anticipated for him to be gone for all these weeks, so I really appreciate those that still support us and are willing to allow me to be your navigator for the show. LD, you did always a fantastic job, and without you, if I had to do this, well, I would have... I would have, uh, well, I don't know. I wouldn't exist right now. It's like, <laughs> if I had to do both what you do and try to host it, no, I did it once and so we'll not do that again. So can't thank you enough for helping me out and keeping this show on the road, show gone, so to speak. And, uh, next week, Richard will be back. Yes, sir. Yeah. And we're, again, we're going to just focus on providing some more structure, making this show a little bit more focused. It's not going to be any major changes, but it'll be slight changes that will manifest itself late in February, early in March. We'll also look to uh, making sure that we sort of flesh out those donation tier or subscriber tiers, not donations, but subscriptions to the community and make sure we better outline and provide the value that's supposed to be associated with each subscription tier. And so we'll also be working on structuring that better and getting that more in action. And yeah, I wanted to play the new world next week. God, I didn't even know he was wearing that. I just was like, you know what? We don't play that too often. They always cover a lot of really good stories and, but we just ran out of time. Damn. I should have, it's only a half hour too. Well, that's awesome though. Shout out to James. I have a plot of media monarchy for adorning one of those shorts or one of those shirts, excuse me. So very cool. And, uh, we had that PSA. I forgot <laughs> the family guy thing. Is there any funny, let me see if I can find some funny ha ha videos. Funny ha ha. Funny, funny. Got the, yeah, I do have that family guy PSA up, but is that, is it not? I mean, I, I guess it's probably not too funny. Is it? 
Uh, I don't know. I it's it. probably just like, he, according to what's his name, or according to Brett, it was more informative than the Johns Hopkins. Who's Hopkins? Johns. Johns. Uh, <laughs> let's see here. I mean, I hate to always just default to JPC. He does such good work. Uh, do I want to? Well, we did enough of the vaccine stuff. Let's see if we can. Is there anything else we could play? Is there any other like independence? Well, comedians? there's there's some great videos on Twitter. There, uh, this guy Jinx has been making some wild. Edits. Yeah, throw that on there. Um, let's. See if you can find. I'll cover one, for you while you find that. They're like. Let's choose one together. Maybe the audience. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so it's at Crack Connoisseur on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Here's an interesting one. I haven't listened to it yet, but I guess it's uh, looking at the people that were behind, allegedly behind the uh, the Rogan hit job. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I mean, Crowder went into it a little bit, but he went into more than the BlackRock. He didn't get into the specific names. I'm curious. But send the, actually, send, put that on the production channel. I'm curious about them. Okay. But, uh, but this guy, yeah, he does some good edits. There's a lot of information packed <laughs> into like a minute and a half, and it's usually a rap song or something. Oh, yeah. Like uh, Putin playing the piano there. Um. Well, that's good to know. I'm glad we got a shout out to him because I'm going to check out that now. I was not aware of his. Uh, I don't do the this, Twitter thing, but. This is interesting. I never heard of. I, I want to play this one. Yiki. I'd yeah. never heard of Yiki. This guy, Oklahoma City guy. Go for so, it. Yeah, let's pop this on here real quick. When I'm away from you, I miss your touch. You're the reason I believe in love. It's been difficult for me to trust. So yeah, that's so powerful. I, I didn't mean to leave myself on screen there that whole time. No, you're good. Yeah, there's no problem. But that was that was I'd never heard of Yiki. I, I guess uh, a individual discovered some something odd with the um, Oklahoma City bombing and was murdered. Uh, yeah, I remember that way back in the day. 
back in like 2010, 2011, I was helping out Rich. We went over that a couple of times. He is one of a couple of officers, I thought, that questioned the narrative. Very similar to, you know, then mysteriously goes missing with multiple cuts on his wrist, multiple uh, uh, cuts to his throat. It's like, yeah, you know, I don't think he quite pulled a... It wasn't Bill Hamilton, was it George Price from the selfish gene theory inventor? Very strange. He noticed a lot of anomalies that you're not allowed to notice. And uh, yeah, he, well, nothing new there. They tend to take out those people. That's really tragic though, but that's a good mashup. That's good to see. So that's what he does. He does like hour and a half, I mean, hour and a half, minute and a half sort of videos, minute, minute and a half. Giving, that's a great way to actually present information, especially in the digital age. It's, it's not obviously like a meme necessarily, but it's using, he's cutting together multiple. So he's, he has the music associated with it, the quick cuts of him and his family. And then all of a sudden he, he throws in the information, the direct information about what actually happened to him. And it's like, Oh shit. It's just a really fascinating way to get people to think it's a great way to plant seeds that's what i'm looking for yeah it's a great way to plant seeds wait here's so another let's let's, let's play yeah. one another, <laughs> just really quickly because this yeah, one's pop poppy bush um, <laughs> with this 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 is crack cocaine the most serious problem today is cocaine and in particular crack who's responsible no idea who the music is. Style the Yeah, no, I gotta get his sense of style. It's good. Babies in the incubators. Speaking so of JFK's assassination, pure, pure rich plus uh, black book plus I, I I wish I could just run to my library right now, but I'm not doing it at four thirty in the morning. Bush plus uh, JFK. Let's see if anything pops up. Let's see if they scrub this one. That's <clears throat> uh, just gonna go to the book Family of Secrets by Russ Baker. Yeah, yeah. Boy, they really did scrub the hell out of this one. Am I getting Andrea Puhrich correctly? Am I thinking of something different? I could have sworn. Anyways, I'll have to figure that out later. But yeah, of course, he doesn't know. What, he, he was just in a little black book that was associated with the, one of the individuals that helped or perpetrate that whole scenario where I had contact with the Harvey Oswald. So if you were just listening, go uh, check out the show notes, check out those videos or Look up Jinx on Twitter. It's at Crack Connoisseur. 
but I don't think it's. Right <laughs> I love it. Look for Jinx. But there we Let's go. Let's do this. That was good. I'm glad we did something, at least a little couple uh, funny videos. It's um, funny, it's not the right word, but not funny. that's a really unique way, is a uh, unique way of sharing very troubling information. <laughs> yeah. that way. Okay. And with that, uh, let's do. Let's do a JP series, I guess, to carry us out. The truth about jurors. Let's do extremists against mandates. It's his most recent one. And it's uh, what really happened. <laughs> extremists against mandates. I'll let you bring that up. God, I'm, that's going to kill me. I, I have a couple of books on this topic. It's Occult America. Oh, man. Give me two seconds. I have this whole, the whole volume. I mean, it's, you know, some some apophenia associated with that work but occult america white house seances ouija circles and masons there's three volumes mitch horowitz was he the writer of that? that is mitch horowitz oh, that'd be someone there anyways he has three volumes of this and i could have sworn in one of them unless i'm thinking of that other book about olson hold on well fourth fourth however late it is in the morning oh my god it's 4 30 we're i'm not getting it it's like well i'll run to my library real quick and i'll pull out that information now i'm not going to do that right now anyways there's a but there's a lot of occultism associated with the murder of jfk if people aren't aware and interesting connections that uh few really know about and it runs very deep yeah he doesn't of course bush doesn't know where he was the day of jfk's assassination not at all nothing to see there well he had rich because rich can recall this stuff from his his literal brain, not even just his digital brain. So, but uh, at four thirty in the morning, I'm not going to remember this. I'm not going to run to my library either. We'll do it next time, though. Next time this topic comes up, which it will come up again, Rich and I will get into some of the occult nature around the JFK assassination. But we're going to have JP Sears play us out, and I want to thank everyone tonight. And again, next week we're back to the normal show. And thank you for allowing me to your host and navigator these past three weeks it's been a lot of fun and remember this this tuesday i'm taking a tuesday off from the town hall and we'll pick it back up again february 15th the autonomy season for those that are interested get autonomy.info ld where do they get that yes um, get autonomy.info slash ignite there you go. And if you're interested in Rich's course, autonomy, how to become an entrepreneur, how to utilize sales techniques in the framework of integrity, selling based on form and function instead of all these psychologically subversive techniques that we detailed tonight, especially early in the show, and how to be uh, self-reliant and more productive and have more self-assurance and confidence about going through life. Also, um, so that starts in March sometime next season autonomy. You have a chance to sign up for that. If you're interested, my course, if you're interested in taking it, it's just going to be a very simple general overview of the informal fallacies and, uh, uh, essential definition that I will be hosting beginning the first week of March. It'll most likely start, uh, let me go over the dates here. It'll probably be March 3rd. will probably be the first, uh, first session and it will probably begin around seven o'clock PM Eastern standard time. And if you want to be a part of that pilot course, it will be, you know, it's available to subscribers. So you still have time about a month or so to hop on, become a subscriber, have access to the town hall, the TTW community. And ultimately this pilot course will be running after this course is concluded, has concluded, it will be made available on the Agora marketplace. And um, for a very modest price, I'm not going to make it expensive. This is a very simple overview of some, what I think would be the most 
efficient and uh, the, the elements of logic that have the most utility in everyday life. Let me put it that way. So without further ado, we are finished the show. Thank you everyone for tuning in and not top, uh, dr- tuning in and not dropping out. And here's JP Sears to play us out. Thanks everyone. Very much appreciated. Good night, everybody. Good evening. Recently, the world's leading conspiracy theorists gathered in Washington, D.C. to stand up against the mandates. It was there that they, along with 40,000 freedom lovers, conspired to spread the worst kind of misinformation, truth, which has no place in our divisive narrative. That's why we work so tirelessly and fascistly to censor it. Who were the speakers? What did they say? And what impact did they have? Find all that out, plus have your mind controlled by us in tonight's special March Against the Mandates report. These extremists apparently want to make their own decisions about what they do with their bodies. This is alternative to allowing the FDA which is controlled by the pharmaceutical industry and is in charge of regulating the pharmaceutical industry to make their decisions for them about what they do with their bodies. Speaking on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the exact spot that Martin Luther King Jr. stood for civil rights, these freedom lovers sought to continue his stand for civil rights. Only now, on behalf of the entire human race. But freedom replacing mandates go against the will of Satan and have no place in North Korea or Biden's America. So were the speakers successful? Let's find out. Kicking things off was comedian and freedom fighter JP Sears. Let's see what this far right extremist had to say. Right now we're authoring the future for ourselves. We have pen in hand. We will be telling our grandchildren stories. We'll either be telling them stories about what freedom was or what mandates were. What a loser. He obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. He wants to deprive his grandkids of government tyranny and mandates. Can we get him on AOC's blacklist? We need to indoctrinate him into communism. And here's Kevin Jenkins. Do you understand 58 years ago we were standing in this square trying to unite the world to come together to fight against the tyranny of their time? Now that it's our time to fight against the tyranny of our time. Fun fact, Mr. Jenkins made Biden's list of 12 biggest spreaders of misinformation online, which is a telltale sign he's doing really good work. Many media outlets have tried to discredit Kevin Jenkins by calling him a white supremacist. Let's move on. And there were doctors who are dedicated to giving their patients the best medical care possible rather than treating them according to the narrative. Let's check them out. We are 17,000 doctors. That's more than the NIH more than the CDC, and more than the FDA. As a society, we used to say, check with your doctor to see if something is right for you. But luckily, we've evolved past that and adopted a more modern philosophy which says, ignore your doctor and check with the mainstream narrative to see if something is right for you. You and you alone have the autonomy over your body. That is your sole possession. In many ways, it's the only thing you really have. Dr. Peter McCullough, the world's most published cardiologist, he doesn't know anything about medicine. 
Can we take the microphone away from him and give it to Whoopi Goldberg, please? We are fighting against Big Pharma. They have controlled and captured our health agencies. And that is a war on repurposed drugs. We've known now for two years that there are cheap, safe, highly effective, and widely available medicines that can treat this disease. Really, Dr. Corey, Big Pharma has controlled and captured our health agencies? <laughs> I don't think so. You gotta understand, Big Pharma controls the FDA, and the FDA is in charge of regulating Big Pharma. So there is nothing to worry about as long as you're part of Big Pharma. And to all the detractors, if you don't like it, just quit not being a part of Big Pharma. Doctors, now is the time to stand up and save our profession. More like sit down and shut up to save the profit margins. If there is risk, there must be choice. Uh, not if our attempts to destroy the Nuremberg Code have anything to say about it, Dr. Malone. Before we go any further, let's throw it over to our field correspondent, JP, who's got a special guest. Thank you, JP. I'm here with a real doctor who has not seen a single patient in over four decades, so you can trust he knows what's best for you. Anthony, what's your take on what these doctors are saying? I don't like what the heck you say. You don't seem trustworthy at all. Now back to you in the studio, JP. Excellent reporting, JP. Let's take a look at what else happened at the march. The minute they hand you that vaccine passport, every right that you have is transformed into a privilege contingent upon your obedience to arbitrary government dictates. Yeah, and what's the problem with that, Mr. Kennedy? That's exactly what every dictator throughout history wanted for himself from his people. Fun fact, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was number two on Biden's list of biggest spreaders of misinformation. Could you imagine a world where the Biden administration was the biggest spreader of misinformation? And when they saw people effectively spreading accurate information, they would just smear them and label them misinformation spreaders. So it'd be like the opposite of what's true. <laughs> That'd be a weird world. What else did Mr. Kennedy have to say? And what do we do about this? We resist. I think obedience instead of bravery is what he meant to say. And we will not stop fighting for truth, for scientific integrity, and for life. What Dr. Christina Parks doesn't understand is that science is racist. So we're just gonna ignore any science that's not scientifically aligned with our mainstream narrative that's based on science fiction. The truth always prevails. We are victorious in truth because we are endowed with one great power, the power of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We are on the right side of history. Wrong! What Del Bigtree doesn't know is that mandates and censorship are always on the right side of history. Uh, I think he's coming from the perspective of the people rather than the authoritarians. Oh. So like he's just not on the authoritarians' payroll at all? In the end, was the march against the mandates and the 40,000 people in attendance successful? Absolutely not! All they did was align with constitutional and God-given freedoms, 
which does not represent the voice of the American people. The voices of Americans are better represented by the politicians who are controlled by Big Pharma who enact mandates against the Americans that they so accurately and honestly represent. These extremists terrorize the Lincoln Memorial with peace, passion, and freedom and not a single one of them peacefully burnt down a building or destroyed any property. Which is not acceptable. It is dangerous extremism when these alt-right misogynistic racist math-phobic people resort to using peace. All these fringe people at the march did nothing but embarrass themselves by standing up for freedom. That's just not a brave thing to do or something the Chinese Communist Party, Justin Trudeau, or the Biden administration can get behind. We'll leave you with these closing scenes from the March Against the Mandates in DC so you can judge for yourself just how radical these extremists are who believe in freedom rather than our mainstream narrative. Spoiler alert, freedom wins. is the story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.